that you're listening to hear this idea. So right off the top, I want to say that this one is a bit of a departure from our regular programming. Basically, you're about to hear a three hour plus chat where we really just get into the weeds with research and career advice. Um, so it's probably not for everyone, but if it does sound potentially relevant to you based on this intro, uh, stick around because I think this could be one of the most practically useful episodes uh, we've made. So Luca and I have been lucky enough to speak to guests who do all kinds of research uh, in academia or beyond, and many who have decided to explicitly use that research to have a positive impact on the world. But I think it's fair to say that most research uh, that gets done in the world is not squarely aimed at uh, actually improving the world, even though that is often an incidental hope. At least I think it's fair to say that research really squarely aimed at impact may well just look quite different when it comes to the choice of topic and the way it gets done and disseminated. So there's some chance you're listening to this and maybe you're in some corner of academia or you're considering um, a career that involves some kind of research and you are sympathetic to the idea of using your work to really make progress on the biggest problems in the world. And if so, this episode could be for you. It is like three plus hours of extremely concrete um, information and advice about how to start doing impact-driven research. Now, when we were thinking who could be best placed to give this advice, uh, we both immediately thought of Michael Ed. Michael is a senior research manager at Rethink Priorities, uh, where he co-leads the artificial intelligence governance and strategy team alongside Amanda Elder Cackney. Before that, he conducted nuclear risk research for Rethink Priorities and uh, long-term macro strategy research for Convergence Analysis, the Center on Long-Term Risk, and the Future of Humanity Institute, which is where we know each other from. And before that, he was a teacher and a stand-up comedian. In fact, as you'll hear, Michael was a teacher and stand-up comic until very recently. Uh, his transition to co-leading a team of researchers working on a hugely pressing problem has taken about two years total. So Michael seemed like an especially good person to ask about how to really nail that transition to impactful research. Uh, we covered things like how and when to apply for research jobs, how to apply for funding, how to write research summaries, the idea of reasoning transparency, uh, the uses of reductionism, case studies in nuclear risk and AI governance, and how not to get stuck becoming an expert on the history of birds. Before we get into it, uh, Michael asked me to flag that the reason we're focusing on research here as a topic is because that's what Michael knows about. But of course, many people should not focus on research um, in their careers. And some people should maybe try research for less than a year to help them develop you know, knowledge, skills and connections, which they can then draw on in other kinds of work, which are not research. Which means this could be worth hearing um, even if you're not aiming at a full career in research. And equally, uh, the message is not that everyone listening should definitely focus on research over other things. Okay, without further ado, here's the episode. Michael Ed, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to... <laughs> I think we could this not include any in. context. Yeah. Do you want to give a quick like, uh, elevator pitch of what your name is and what you do? Yeah, okay. So I am Michael Ed. I, uh, my main role is I'm a senior research manager at Rethink Priorities AI governance and strategy team, where I do some management of individual people, some team level management, some helping the department as a whole, uh, the long term is the department of Rethink Priorities. I also do some grant making on the EA infrastructure fund and a variety of other like advising and type 
things like that, advising various orgs and projects. Great. And I think we're going to be talking a bunch about like research within the EA community and possibly like some like funding like sides there as well. So it may be good to do like some disclaimers. Do you want to disclaim anything else? Yeah. So uh, the, so we are personally friends and we're also part of this EA community where everything is pretty interlinked. So yeah, Rethink Priorities is funded. One of its major funders is Open Philanthropy. Uh, and we'll talk a bunch about Open Philanthropy for various unrelated reasons. Um, and that, yeah, I'll, I'll just say, I think what I would have said anyway, but just that disclaimer should be on the table. Also, I'm not going to say uh, there's a lot of organizations that I work for or I'm associated with, and what I'm saying is not representing any of them. This is just like my takes. Uh, I'll use a lot of Rethink Priorities examples, but yeah, there's just my stances. Cool. And I should likewise disclaim that we are friends. Yeah. Uh, so right back at you there. Uh, and... <laughs> Thanks for confirming, <laughs> for, for the record. Uh, and I uh, work at Open Philanthropy, but will likewise, like for this interview, be wearing my like, hear this idea hat. So mm. everything I say is on me. This is setting us up for some seriously controversial <laughs> takes. Um, uh, I'm also friends with both of you. <laughs> Good. Cool. Um, you want to talk about, so I think one framing for our conversation is to talk about research and research which is directed at having an impact on the world. Um, <laughs> so one first question is, what is it? mean for research to be impact driven and yeah what kinds of routes to impact can you can you imagine for different kinds of research yeah yeah so so three sort of complementary framings i guess for this question one is that like impact driven thing another i might often refer to this as ea research or ea aligned research or long-termism research or long-termism aligned research uh they aren't exactly the same really what i care about is the world getting better and so the impact driven thing but uh ea can be like a shorthand for that and long termism is the one i focus on most um impact driven i would say my my like janky breakdown uh that i came up with would be sort of four key components one is you're aiming to actually change what happens in the world that's one key thing so you're not for example just trying to sort of quote unquote fill a gap in the literature mm. filling a gap in the literature is often a good way to change what actually happens in the world but often you know no one was depending on that gap being filled so you change some actual decisions uh, either immediately or later or you change stuff about yourself that means your own career can have a lot more impact but it bottoms out in the world being different that's one thing that is impact uh Hopefully, everyone is aware that impact should be a shorthand for like net positive impact, like the change is actually good. But I think a, a lot of people in the world do just want to like, they want to see the world be different because of them. And I'm like, no, like, let's, let's make it better because of you on net. Like, there will often be downside risks, but like, let's see if they balance out to positive. And then a third thing is aiming for that to be roughly the biggest you can make it. So roughly the biggest net positive impact you can make it. And there particularly I'm talking about in expectation. So this expected value idea of like probability time consequences. So you think of all the good things that might happen, all the bad things that might happen from your research. Um, how likely are they? How big a deal would they be? Uh, and I think there was a fourth one, but I can't remember what it is. Yeah. Can you maybe like draw a parallel here between what you're describing there and like how you often see research done in like the normal like quote unquote, like world, whether that be mm -hmm. like academia, think tanks, um, consultancies, finance, or like whatever, like how does this maybe look like tangibly different um, compared to like mm -hmm. what people might be doing otherwise? Yeah, so I think, so I guess we can think of impact driven versus the other, you know, what could come before the driven. Um, some of the other things are like curiosity driven or funding driven or something like status or fad driven or things like that. Now, yeah, a lot of the time in this conversation, I might sound like quite dismissive of a lot of the world. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the world is full of a lot of smart researchers who have like strong methods and often good intentions, but they aren't sort of relentlessly focused on this maximum net positive impact thing. Um, so yeah, a lot of what happens will be 
funders or governments or philanthropists are focused on some particular area, that's the area you can get money. So you flock to that. And that's understandable. You want a job. But like, one nice thing about the world nowadays is there is a lot of money available potentially for the right kind of impact-driven work. So we, we might circle back to that later. Another thing would be like curiosity-driven. So I think a lot of academia is, oh, and, and also something like understanding the nature of the world-driven. And that's pretty reasonable. But understanding the nature of the world, there's so many bits of the nature of the world. So I want to like choose the subset of the bits of the nature of the world where if I get a better understanding of that in five years, the world's much better or it's on track to be much better. Um, and also sometimes understanding the nature of the world isn't good. Uh, nuclear weapons is sort of the obvious example. I mean, it's not super clear nuclear weapons made the world worse, but they, you know, it doesn't seem clear they made it better. Uh, so understanding some bits of physics may have been dangerous there. There's some things currently that are like that. So if you follow the sort of um, the status landscapes in academia or the filling the next research gap and stuff, this will often make the world better, sometimes make it worse, sometimes just not make a big difference. Mm. Um, and you made the distinction between doing research to change things about yourself or more directly change things about the world. Mm -hmm. I wanted to zoom into both of them, but changing things about yourself, why could that be worth doing? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, so, so I, I make this distinction often between sort of three main impacts that research can have. Uh, one is the direct impact of the work itself. So you have this paper or this report or this conference you do or emails you send people where you explain the findings, whatever. And that then makes things better in a way that doesn't flow through your own later actions, except disseminating this stuff. Then another one would be uh, testing your fit. So finding out where you should fit in the world. Like, what are you good at? What are you passionate about? What could you become good at? Because basically, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you, the listener, um, there's, there's, a, there's a fair chance that you could... Um, play a pretty substantial role on making things a lot better because I think a lot of key issues in the world, there's just not many people paying attention or they're just not paying attention in a particularly strategic or focused way. Uh, and it's not that hard to be a key player on some of the most important stories and make things a lot better. Um, so if you find out where you can best fit, and also personal fit matters a lot to that. So you might have a lot more impact in some jobs than in others. This is both research and other things. So you could, via research, test your fit for other things like grant making or policy in certain areas, for example. Um, so yeah, finding out where you're best can help you do a lot better later. And then a third thing is like building your career capital. This is this uh, concept from, I think it's from 80,000 Hours. They definitely are the main promoters of it. Um, and the components there, as far, as far as I recall, are like knowledge, skills, connections, and they call it credentials, the fourth one, but I want to call it credible signals of fit. So have you like demonstrated that you're good at stuff? Um, and so if, if, as you build those, that allows you to have more impact later. So a lot of your impact's not going to come from this first research project you do. It's going to come in five years once you're more skilled and connected and you know where you should slot into and people trust you more and that sort of a thing. So building yourself into that amazing thing later can be where to focus sometimes. Okay, cool. And then we can zoom in on the one of those three factors, which is something like direct impact on the world mm -hmm. via your research, independently of what it does for you. Um, yeah, are there any kind of distinctions we can make there about different ways that research can just make the world go better or improve decisions? Yeah, for sure. There's, I, I can always make distinctions. <laughs> That's one of my main things. <laughs> um, yeah, I recently said to someone, I, I started saying something like, I think we could sort of split this into four separate dimensions and then realize you could like make a meme template of me and <laughs> just have me With always saying that. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so some distinctions for like direct impact of the work itself. In fact, I, I have four distinctions of types of distinctions. <laughs> um, so yeah, one would be like the types of like cause areas or topics you're focusing on. So um, I, I'm particularly focused on these long-termist issues. Um, so things that could plausibly have a really big impact on the long-term future. I know you guys are pretty interested in that as well. Um, 
often these are like existential risks, but not always. Um, another could be like, you know, so, so within that, it's like AI risk, nuclear weapons risk, bio risk, various other things. Also, there's other areas like animal welfare, et cetera. So that's like one type of distinction, like which of those you're influencing. Another is like which types of decisions, like you could influence other researchers and what they do. You could influence funding decisions. You could influence uh, like, like, you know, major grants being made. You can influence the sort of policies that governments are pushing for and regulations and standards and that sort of thing. Um, you can influence entrepreneurs to start new projects or organizations, uh, founding new things to fill these gaps that are needed. So, for example, there's this organization called Charity Entrepreneurship where they do research. They, they have like this factory model of producing amazing new nonprofits where they yeah, like... We, we interviewed Sam Hilton oh, um, cool. on this before. Okay, yeah. so maybe the listeners are already aware. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, they have like pipeline, do a bunch of research, churn out these new organizations to fill these gaps that they've identified. Um, you can also influence people's career decisions. So again, this circles back to like individuals who are strategically working on these things are really important. And so helping people find what they should slot into can be really important. Uh, and then I also have like, yeah, other uh, would be an important category of like, you know, maybe someone does a conference or something like any other decision I hadn't thought of. Yeah. Mm. And like maybe one of the others is crowding in more research. Yeah. So yeah, you could get more research to come in and you could also like make it go better, like building the foundations for the next research to have an easier time picking up. Also, yeah, one thing I forgot as well that's pretty important is like, technology research and development and deployment so you could influence like whether people do some dangerous ai stuff uh you could influence uh which sort of ai technologies they develop that mitigate risks so one thing could be figuring out the interpretability might be really important for reducing the chance of extreme ai risks and then you could like get people to fund more of that and do more of that work there's also things in other non-long-termist areas like clean meat research or something I, I'll, I'll use various jargon i'm not sure like how <laughs> feel free to like poke me on any of that maximize jargon it's all good. okay <laughs> okay so for all of this research you can do it within or beyond an academic setting um so for instance, I could do a PhD at a university or instead I could join uh, a research organization like Rethink Priorities. Why in general might I consider doing this work outside of that academic setting? Yeah, so yeah, so there's academia, there, there's organizations like Rethink Priorities, which are sort of fairly explicitly effective altruism focused and just use whatever methods seem most important for getting the most important questions. There's also a variety of other things that like you could do research within governments. You could do research within a standard non-effective altruism aligned think tank, um, independent research, various other places. Uh, for academia versus other things, I mean, there's definitely pros of doing academia, but um, you sort of, there's a lot of norms within it. There's a lot of standards that you're meant to meet, a lot of like paper structures you're meant to do, a lot of types of methodology you're meant to do. Often it pushes towards quite narrow questions. Often it pushes, like another thing is it could also push towards trying to do big conceptual breakthroughs, but but not really focused on what's most impactful or things like that, um, which is understandable. Like academia grew up this way for a particular reason. It, it was like pushing against people making random crap claims uh, and and trying to make sure that everyone can like critique each other and no one's allowed to just make claims. But if, if you want to make a decision in the next five years, often you do need to have a sort of hot take that is like minimally researched and then you move on. Yeah. Uh, and academia often doesn't let you do that. So in academia, people are often pushed against having like clear bottom lines, uh, like like rushing to a bottom line quite quickly of what people should do. And, and the distinction will be different for other areas, like uh, for, for think tanks. Think tanks decently often do rush towards bottom lines fairly quickly, but sometimes it's, uh, you know, justifying the existing policy choices and stuff like that. So 
Yeah. So each one has pros and cons. Each one is quite good for different people. Like I often advise, like each of the things I listed are things I advise people to go into sometimes. You've just got to think about what makes most sense for you. And a claim I would make though, is if you do just actually want to find out what's true, rather than things like advocacy or making sure that the decision makers listen to you, uh, what, what's true on the most important things like impact driven stuff, then I, I would claim like effective altruism aligned research organizations are unusually good for that because mm. they strip away most of the baggage and they just try to get there fast. Do, do you think the same holds for like skill building and stuff as well? So I guess like one argument you could make for like doing a PhD is that it's just like a good like five year, mm. four year, three year like program to just like acquire skills, learn how to do independent research, mm. get a supervisor and stuff as well. If you're wanting to do that, maybe more independent or within like the EA community, do you think that's like still the same argument kind of there holds? Yeah. So I, I do think like for sure people should take into account skill building and, and like sometimes you should be willing to do four years of basically pointless research in order to just become great at something yeah. uh, and also becomes viewed as great at something so when you do go, do great research later you can get those jobs so for yeah. example a lot of like government jobs and think tank jobs you do just you need the credential you don't just need to be smart and know the stuff it needs to like literally have that stamp on your cv yeah um yeah, yeah so for sure but yeah it depends on the person also just four years is a lot and if you do four years um of something that is in roughly the right area and you have a mentor on roughly the right topics, who knows about roughly the right things, that might be slower skill building than if you do four years of just actually doing something really close to what you want to do and having to like scrappily figure it out yourself. I, I think mentorship's pretty key. So I think like if you if you wouldn't be able to get a good mentor at some other place, then academia might be a better choice. But often PhD supervisors, as far as I'm aware, like don't have great feedback loops, don't spend a lot of time on their students and stuff. So it would, it would vary a lot from person to person. Also, I haven't personally done a PhD, so I can't like crap talk them too confidently. <laughs> um, but but my, my general hot take is like, if you're not sure you should do a PhD, you probably shouldn't do a PhD, yeah. at least right now. Like you should um, probably try other things for like six months to a year first. Like I think a lot of people think they assume they would need a PhD before they get something good. Um, and they just haven't tried. Like I spoke to someone who... Uh, had applied to four effective altruism aligned organizations, got rejected, but got decently far in the application processes. Yeah. And he assumed he needed a PhD. Uh, and I was like, four rejections is basically nothing. Like in most jobs, there's a roughly one to 3% acceptance rate in most of the world. Like, I, I don't know about most jobs, but like like jobs of this type. Yeah. Um, and not just in EA orgs. Uh, so four is very little. You got fairly far. Like just try applying to 10 more. That's so much faster than a four-year PhD. And then he, he did apply for like two more and he got one. Um, so I, I won that round. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I want to maybe flesh out a bit more is when you were talking um, about doing research, I guess, like within the EA community and stuff, how much of like the impact and particularly the direct impact that you're talking about there is just because you are engaging in an ecosystem that you think is like highly leveraged and like really impactful versus this is like a really good way to do like research. And then, you know, if you just bring that research to like governments or to like other uh, like actors and stuff, that's like how the impact comes. Like how much of it is like the ecosystem argument versus the like um, epistemics or like attitude kind of argument. Mm -hmm. So the, the first one is like maybe being in an EA org. Yeah, like being able to influence an EA org by producing EA quote unquote like kind of research. That's like what's impactful because you have a much higher ability to impact like funding decisions because you're like close um, to those because it's like maybe just like much smaller and there's much fewer people working to change like open fields like view on something than uh, like the US government uh, for example versus no like these are just like really important topics and um, you know maybe have like uh, different kind of epistemics and like methodologies and stuff around it and like that's where the impact comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah interesting. Uh, I feel like I haven't thought of it quite like that before so I think one thing I'll flag is you can 
you can certainly be outside of an EA org, but work on the right topics in the right way and mm. influence the EA people. Yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to like, yeah. Yeah, so, so that, that, that's one key thing. You don't, so yeah, the Effective Actions community has access to a fair bit of resources, like an impressive bit of resources relative to how young and small it is. Uh, young in terms of how old, like how long the movement's been around, as well as just the median age of its members. Um, a, a fair amount of money, a fair amount of either political influence or ability to probably gain political influence if, if required, think, things like that, uh, entrepreneurial talent and things. Um, so that, that is pretty exciting. That's one reason to be really excited about this. But you don't have to be at an EOG to do that. You can do work. So, so one model I think is probably good sometimes. If someone is, if they've decided PhD is the right move for them, or they're working in like a regular think tank, just a, a prestigious think tank with really smart people that would provide good mentorship, but doesn't have quite the right thinking styles or quite the right focuses, but they are really good at research methods and things like that. Um, I would suggest those people often try to do things like occasionally on weekends or like they take two weeks off or something. And during that time, they try to adapt the sort of thing they'd been learning and working on to tailor it for the EA needs. So you, you might have done a lot of work that is relevant to AI risk, but you were forced to mostly answer shorter term questions and to kind of like hold back on giving your real bottom lines because it's not rigorous enough and stuff. And then you could do like little sprint documents um, where you just quickly chuck out like, I've, I've learned all this stuff and here's my hot take yeah. given that or something. So that's definitely a model you can do. Um, yeah, I think the main benefit of working at Effective Altruism Aligned Orgs is just actually working on the right questions and getting to the right answers mm. relatively quickly and explaining them transparently, like explaining what you believe precisely and why you believe it. Academia also has uh, often a lot of hedges to like sort of cover their ass, which is understandable. That's what they have to do. But um, yeah. yeah, so I think that's the main benefit. You don't have to, it, rather than working at an EA org is the only way to influence EAs or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, it very well may be the case that some of the time, but maybe not all of the time, there are lots of hedges in academia. Um, <laughs> you mentioned this one to three percent ish acceptance rate for many of these EA aligned research orgs. I'm worried of that projecting too kind of pessimistic a mm -hmm. uh, an impression. Um, so, yeah, maybe one thing that's worth mentioning is that um, worth not writing off applying to these things. Mm -hmm. Having heard that figure, you can imagine like a very like a kind of toy model where you know 100 people are just like shotgun applying to like 100 orgs each and there's like another 100 people who apply to the like one or two orgs that seem like an especially good fit for them and then for mm -hmm. each application round you're going to have the number of people applying being basically dominated by the kind of shotgun appliers yeah but if you're one of the few kind of focused appliers then you should maybe think your chances are like better than that yeah, kind of naive guesses. So yeah, any thoughts on on how to think about your your like chances of ending yeah. up at these places? Yeah, that's a model that makes sense, but I don't like it because I, I like be the shotgun applier. Like that's actually <laughs> what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 yeah, a few things on that. Um, one is uh, the one to three percent thing. I think that's fairly true of EA organizations, but I actually meant like, I think this is fairly true of this sort of caliber of job in general. Uh, I, I haven't tried to look at proper stats, but like at some point someone told me that this is like roughly right. the normal thing. Uh, and I think I think that is, for example, I used to work for something called Teach for Australia, which is sort of similar to Teach First or Teach for America that slightly more people would be familiar with. Um, and that also has a very low acceptance rate. And I think it's just fairly common for the sort of thing that fairly talented, ambitious university graduates shoot for to have fairly low acceptance rates. And that's just sort of fine. It makes sense because you just can apply for a lot of things. Um, yeah, and so some people, it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean a randomly chosen person 
should be confident they have a 2% acceptance rate. So the, the thing your model is pointing out is like, correct, some people have reason to believe that their acceptance rate is much higher. But also I do think a lot, so I think when you're in like active job search mode, you should probably apply for something like 20 things mm-hmm. um, and just see what happens and quite a wide range of things. And uh, like motto I have that I've like written a post with someone else fleshing out is like, yeah. don't think, just apply, exclamation mark, usually. Yeah. So I did, I allowed myself that hedge, um, <laughs> but mostly don't think just apply because so experience I often have, I, I give a lot of people career advice and stuff, or like a lot of people want me to give them career advice and stuff. And really often someone reaches out to me and they're like, I think I might want to apply for rethink priorities. Can I talk to you for half an hour about whether I should? But the initial application stage is one hour. And what I'm going to tell them, <laughs> like, like what they want to hear from me is like, what sort of person's a good fit? Like, would I be a good fit? Would I enjoy the job? But probably they're not going to get the job. And also like the first application stage is really sh- short. So I'm not saying they should be confident, but I'm saying they should be like ambitious and just go for it. Like you just roll a lot of dice and see what happens. So a lot of people, I tell them like, hey, you're probably not going to get the job anyway, but do apply for it and don't bother thinking about it. Yeah. Like it's a waste of your time to, not in every case, there's some caveats, the post has some caveats. Um, but yeah, mostly just like fire them out and see what happens. Um, in my personal case, I, I, um, I, apply, yeah, I applied for something like 20 jobs in 2019 when I was doing my big effective altruism job hunt thing as a high school teacher trying to like take a really hard left turn into like nuclear sure. security policy. Um, and yeah, I ended up with two offers out of the 20 and they were both the things that I specifically thought were less likely than average out of the things I applied uh-huh. for. And that I w- if I was ruling things out based on whether I might not like them and they might not be a good fit for me, I would have ruled those two out. They both did not seem like the obvious choice for me. And then once I had them, I thought a bunch more. I was like, actually, both of these seem pretty good for me. Now that I, But it wouldn't have been worth me spending those three hours thinking and talking to people up front. That would have been silly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know if this is a useful analogy or not, but it definitely makes me like think back to like university when, so I studied economics and a lot of like friends and myself at the time included, like applied for investment banks and consultancies and like that kind of like yeah. era of jobs. And it was just like a whole like two months, three months that I essentially yeah. took up with like applying for things, going through work tests, doing interviews and stuff. And you yeah. kind of knew like going in that it was like kind of random about like what you were going to like get out of it yeah. at the end. Um, and just like, yeah, the like kind of shotgun approach you mentioned there. Yeah. And then I had like, I remember a very similar experience with applying for like research assistant positions at like, you know, mainstream kind of academic uh, like fields and stuff. Uh, but like the same, like I think I applied for like 20, 30 things and didn't, and got like one uh, yeah. in the year of like 2020 and stuff. But yeah, yeah I remember it's just like kind of a, a brutal like job market. Not to, again, like dissuade people from doing it, but just saying that it's like <laughs> yeah. um, the same in like so many like other like fields and stuff as well. Yeah, I, I sort of want people to hold two things in their head. Like I, I, I don't I don't want to tell people you're probably going to get things. Like I also have this with like applying for funding. Um, I, I don't want to tell people like you're super likely to get funding or something, but I also don't want them to stop applying. I want them to just like just think about expected value and just think about... Hey, if it takes you like one hour to apply, yeah, and there and there is a two percent chance that you get this job that like changes your life basically and puts you on this amazing trajectory and can like really help the world. Like you could save like a yeah. lot of factory farmed animals. You could save like a like substantially reduce AIX risk or something. <laughs> like chuck it in. It's one hour. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, it's not just the apply. Like it's not just that you might get the job. It's also that you learn things along the way. I was yeah. going to mention that. I really yeah. that point that part of the value is actually finding out skills you are underrating mm-hmm. or overrating via that process of doing work trials and getting feedback on them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so part of it, is like the, the sort of crapshoot that Luca mentioned, um, part of it is like <laughs> it is noisy, like that there's a good, like as in uh, noisy as in there's randomness. Yeah. So yeah. the employers will make mistakes. Like I, I've done, a, I, I've, I've been on both ends of hiring rounds now. And when I, when I am the hirer, like I'm pretty confident of our process. We get good people and stuff, but I'm like, you know, I can't say I'm confident that we always get exactly the four best people and that everyone we rule out should have been ruled out. And, uh, and even the people we ruled out at stage one all should have been ruled out. Um, 
there, there's like noise and there's randomness. You're just getting tiny samples. Also, like it's really hard for a person to know what they're good at. Um, so one thing is like some of the jobs Luke applied for and got rejected. Maybe you should have got them and they made a mistake. <laughs> Another thing is like ex ante. It was really hard for you to know what kind of person you are. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and they have like they've done the job for like ten years and you haven't done the job at all. So and they've designed a process deliberately with a lot of effort and trial and error and measurement to like check like a process designed to check if you're good for things. Yeah, if yeah. you enter that funnel, you can gather that data from them. But but also. Please do not get rejected from four things and think, oh, I definitely can't do this job. Um, yeah. <laughs> decent chance that's yeah, the noise yeah. kicking. And one thing I definitely want to plug for maybe listeners who are like currently going through like the, yeah, like job crunch or mm. um, are like about to and stuff is like one thing that I found like really useful was looking at like people I looked up to or like impressive people like in the field and stuff. And some people kind of have like these like CV of failures and I've yeah. kind of like made my own. I'll just like plug it and stuff. But just like <laughs> listing like all the jobs that like people who are like now, right, like really impressive and like, yeah. Um, like cool and stuff and like seem like so far away and stuff and then you just see like their full list of like 20 50 entries yeah. of like jobs they applied to and didn't get and i think that like kind of hammers at home that like yeah everybody kind of has to go through that as well yeah yeah but personally i um personally there's multiple orgs that i was rejected from often really early and sometimes ghosting me who like now i've like evaluated grants to or like <laughs> they've they've, they've asked me to apply for like a much more senior role or i'm on like i've advised them or something like that and these yeah it's just like, like I, one thing is like maybe they were wrong another thing is like i just was a very different person then yeah. so and also like each role is pretty like if they're two are research assistant roles they're still they might be really different so if you get rejected from one even if that was the right call you might get another one yeah so just like like keep at it hang in there um applying for 20 jobs might take you a total of something like 50 hours if there's like 21 hour first stages and then some work tests along the way there's not like it, it is a non-trivial amount of work um but it's not a huge amount of work it can be worth just rolling those dice a bunch also you can potentially get funding for like your like this is valid work applying for lots of things so if you like need to take a few months off for this you can maybe get that yeah um and speaking of applying for these kind of impact driven research jobs yeah yeah, are there any indicators you can look out for that might suggest you're a good fit for particular kinds of this work? And in particular, any any like traits or aptitudes that um, are kind of less obvious or more mm -hmm. more different from just standard like academic application? Yeah. Uh like my, my like headline thing <laughs> to sound like a broken record is like, yeah, yeah. just apply. And <laughs> like uh like they've designed things to check. Um and e each each rejection gives you little evidence, but but still it adds up. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some other things. Also, I would say like, yeah, I don't know if you need to check if you're a good fit for this rather than academic research. It's sort of more like often this is just the better thing. Not always, but often this is just the better thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so if you like <laughs> notice that you should do this, most people haven't noticed they should do this. Yeah. Um, and so like maybe if you could get into both, you should still go for this one and just like see what happens. But there are some things. Um yeah, one thing is there's like a stepping stone of levels. So so 80,000 hours, I really like their advice. People should like check out their site and stuff. Um, they, yeah, they, they have this concept of a ladder of cheap tests, I think they call mm -hmm. it. Um, where this goes back to the idea of testing your fit. You you don't this this is this is also part of why I'm like slightly anti PhD. Again, there's a lot that I like about academia and PhDs and stuff. But yeah, I'm a little anti PhD because a PhD is such an expensive test. My whole like EA aligned career has been 2.5 years so far. Um, right. PhD would be like <laughs> right, right, right. more than double that. And I've like learned so much and done so much. Not not everyone's going to do that. I have been like faster than average, but still. Um, so yeah, you can do like a ladder of cheap tests. Like the first thing is like yeah, applying for a bunch of stuff. Um, you can also do things like 
the sort of thing I mentioned earlier, there's probably a topic, like the effective autism community, it's really hard to define it, but there's probably something like 7,500 people in it. So not that many. And this is spread across a lot of cause areas, a lot of work types. This includes people who aren't professionally working on it, but just really interested. So there's a good chance you know more. uh, There's some topic that you know more about than anyone in the movement or that you know more about it than anyone who's written it down. So maybe there's like 10 people who do know more than you about it, but they're busy and they haven't written it up. So you could do things like, you know, choose some weekend to spend eight hours writing some post that translates your knowledge, which might be like super well-known in most of the world, but the effective housing community is like incredibly naive about it, translates that and pulls out the implications and takeaways. So you can try that sort of thing and see how you like it. I guess obviously a related thing is there are also things which you could end up knowing more after yeah. a couple of weekends of, yeah. of research. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's not that hard to beat the frontier, which is like a really, like it's exciting, but also like terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's yeah. like so much we need to do. And Finn, do you want to talk about that and like space governance maybe? Um, like how did you find that experience or maybe give like some context there? Uh, yeah, so the context is that I was asked to do some research on space governance, um, the output being a piece on the 80,000 Hours website, um, try to figure out what are the most important considerations here and how might people begin to work on these problems from a kind of long-termist perspective, broadly speaking. Um, I went into this knowing almost exactly nothing about the any technical details, but with a kind of just generalist's, you know, research mindset. And... Um, uh, there's yeah, there's some weird feeling of feeling like totally inadequate, but also appreciating the fact that if you look around in this kind of research community, which is still very yeah. small, you know, it's worth taking seriously the fact that well, no one else has spent as much time yeah looking at this stuff, and um, yeah, there's some kind of weird, slightly scary responsibility there, but it is in fact possible. Yeah, like I, I yeah, I think. My sense is like space governance isn't even exactly like one of your top three things, but still yeah. you're like one of the top three people in EA for it or something, I think which is right. sort of crazy. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> Hopefully yeah. not for much longer. <laughs> I think there's like an important like lesson there as well, which is that like fields can be like really big and like exist already, but yeah. like EAs have like weird kind of goals and often the fields that do yeah. exist aren't like you know, learning information for the right, like, decisions or, like, values that, like, EAs have and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, like, there's more more of a, like, leading question or something here for, like, Finn. But I would imagine that with, like, space governance, there's a whole bunch of people thinking about it, you know, maybe from, like, space company, like, views right. or, like, the US government views or, like, what kind of yeah. have you. But little people who are thinking about space governance in the context of, like, future generations, like, long-termism or, like, AI or, like, whatever yeah. kind of have you because, like, EAs are kind of weird and that means it's, like, easier to, like, summarize, like, big existing literatures with, like, an EA angle and often mainstream research into like EA terms yeah. like fleshing out the like bits that are like weirder or wonkier and like give EA like an arbitrage there. It's a great point and I think this is a cross-cutting point in the sense that it doesn't just apply to space governance. No, no. It's yeah. definitely the case that there's, you mm. know, there's an entire field of space law and there are space lawyers who've spent like decades of their lives getting into the details of like space law. There's also obviously a huge technical field of people who are building like spacecraft and mm-hmm. instruments. Uh, governments are very interested in, in space policy, especially from a defense perspective, and so on. So there's a huge amount of like very deep, narrow expertise. But um, you can ask this question, like how many people have sat down and thought across all these different kind of angles on space stuff, what just seems like overall most important to work on or change or push for from this like broadly long-termist perspective, as in just making the world go best overall <laughs> the rest of the time. And it's like really very few very few people have had the kind of chance or opportunity or thought of doing that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to attempt to roll out a fresh, pithy phrase nice. uh, <laughs> that I came up with when Luca was talking. So we'll see how this goes. Um, th- there's like the classic like stand on the shoulder of giants thing. I think what we can do is we can like stand on the shoulder of giants and just like look to the left or something like that. It's yeah, like, there's right. like two reasons we can like, it, it's really easy to beat the EA frontier, partly because there's so few EAs working on stuff and there's so few people working on it with the right angle. But there's also a whole world doing a lot of relevant things that you can just eat. You don't have to like come up with everything. You can just like gobble up what they've done. They, they might even have like review papers. Like they might have good summaries yeah, and textbooks yeah. and stuff. You can gobble up their own distilled versions of what they've done and just literally ask, and what does this imply for bio-risk? And spend like five hours of armchair reasoning. Right. And that might mean that you have the best post on this topic or something, uh, which is, yeah, again, it's scary. I also, yeah, it also feels like it's pretty crazy that I'm the right person for my job. My background's like a psychology undergraduate, some stand-up comedy, two years <laughs> of high school teaching, and then two years of like, kind of like scrappily trying to do the thing I'm currently doing. And I'm now like leading a 10-person team or like co-leading a 10-person team on things to do with like national security and machine learning and stuff. This just doesn't make sense, but I am in practice the best person available for this job. Um, so, so yeah, again, when people like think of applying for things, like the fact that you might feel like an imposter or something, you might, you've, you've, there's very plausible you're still the best we can get. Um, and that like that, that really is good. Like if, if you get the job, there's a good chance you should do the job. Like they, they're not going to give it to you by mistake or something. I guess there's also some nice feature about how this kind of figuring out what's most important overall type research interfaces with the more uh, narrow and deep kind of research, especially in academia, where you can talk to these people who have this like incredible expertise on a fairly narrow part of the puzzle. And you can say, well, look, I, I'm really interested to hear, you know, what you've learned about this little chunk of what I'm trying to figure out, because I'm interested in the upshots for this like broader thing. So there's not a competitive element there where it's like, you know, I'm basically in the same field as you and we're kind of trying to get into the same journals. It's more just like, I quite like to work together with you for a bit and can we get on the call? And that yeah. just works quite nicely. Yeah, I mean, I definitely found that translating research into EA terms a really useful framework at the beginning. And that was definitely like also the moment where I f- think I felt the most impostery or like the most unsure of what value yeah. I could add. And having the framework of, no, there's a bunch of smart writing in this field and stuff already. And what I'm doing is I'm helping to like get a lens of X risk or a lens of helping like the like global poor and like really internalizing log utility functions or something there, yeah. uh, which is like what most academics don't do because it's um, not like in their incentives or something. Um, I found that useful at least to like um, get first steps of research that I was confident that I was adding yeah. value to. Do, do you mean... Do you mean just making it so that EAs can understand this existing work when you say translating into EA terms? Or do you, do you mean like answering slightly different questions? Yeah, like, like answer, answering stuff? like slightly yeah. different questions. So I that, guess that like, makes sense to me. Um, maybe cut this, but to like um, spell out like an exact example here is I think like climate change is clearly a super crowded field, but that was the first kind of EA big project that I was involved in. Mm. Um, yeah, it's definitely like not a neglected literature. What you're saying there with synthesis and like literature reviews and stuff, right? You have the IPCC reports mm-hmm. and you have uh, like God knows like how many thousands of papers. Um, but the world is optimizing for like a different um, climate outcome than EAs are like most worried about yeah. or like most interested in, which would be either on the one hand, climate leading to extinction, which is a way higher bar than like, I think what yeah. like most people like actually think about when they like worry about their climate outcomes or it affecting the global vulnerable poor. And a lot of climate studies think about like GDP in like dollar terms rather than in utility terms, right? Where yeah. you're then like super interested in like, how does this affect the global poor in India or Nigeria or uh, wherever, uh, where the US government is not too interested in that. And therefore like the kind of research it would like direct or like summarize in like yeah. National Academy reports is also like not interested in like that specific question. But there is a huge literature that you can like use and then add a few like extra steps or like this is like what I mean with translation. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, flesh out something that I still feel is valuable or new. 
one thing. So I think we've we've said a lot of stuff that's along the lines of like EA is interested in slightly different questions and topics and stuff like that, and maybe implied that this is because of EA focusing on different causes. So you know, neglected animal populations, neglected human populations like the global poor, neglected populations such as the future people, uh, neglected risks. But I, I, it seems worth flagging that a lot of the, like I think that that is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. So I think a, a lot of a lot of the stuff is things like. For example, nuclear risk, that's an area I've worked on a bunch. A lot of people just haven't looked much at what will happen for the really extreme scenarios. They focus more just on any nuclear war at all, rather than what about one that causes a thousand. A thousand weapons are used, a huge number of cities are on fire, there's a huge amount of smoke produced. Like, there's been a little work, but that's much less, and like following it through to what's the chance that actually kills everyone or like right. causes, causes permanent collapse because they stop at really awful, which is totally yeah. understandable. But I'm like, but how awful and how do we stop that stuff? Like, how do we mitigate the ex- extremely bad thing? Yeah, you but, get you get this in biosecurity as well. So just to like, uh, maybe like adding another example, but like biosecurity or public health is a really big existing field, but global catastrophic biological risks of pandemics that might kill everyone is such a higher bar that yeah. then the number of people working on that drops significantly. But, yeah. yeah, sorry, I was like interrupting there. Yeah, and some of the interventions will be the same for both. Uh, definitely like reducing the chance of nuclear war is good for both. Reducing the chance of like standard pandemics and like various prevention methods are good for both. But there'll be some things that we like won't notice mm. if, if we're just focused on the smaller things, which are still huge, but smaller. Um, and there'll also be some things, you know, we, we, we have the same bag of 100 things, but maybe we don't prioritize them well. But, but the one thing I want to add is I think a lot of the time it's also a thinking style type thing. So this comes back partly to academia having certain norms. Like I think a lot of the world is sort of covering its ass or something. A lot of the world is like not willing to really put a kind of shaky bottom line. Um, so for example, nuclear risk, one thing that had never been done that doesn't make sense, like just from this cause area thing, you need to add the thinking style thing, is as far as I'm aware, no one had ever just gathered uh, different estimates of how likely a nuclear war is per year or various types right. of nuclear war. And this is a thing that obviously the world cares about. Like there are a lot of people talking about how likely a nuclear war is, um, but f- pretty few of them actually put any numbers on anything. Uh, basically, almost none of them use known good practices for forecasting that we have like empirical evidence that these practices are good for forecasting, at least for the short term and geopolitics, which nuclear war can be short term geopolitics, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and also no one had just like put, you know, 10 of them together in one place and been like, okay, what's the average then? Uh, and this is something where it, it doesn't make sense. Even if you're just a regular person who just really doesn't want any nuclear war in the next five years, you should want that. But people are focused on standard rigorous methods following the norms etc and they're not prioritized they're also spread across so many issues so many different topics so that they haven't gone deep on particular ones in particular ways do you think there are internal estimates like in governments of those numbers but no one's had any reason to do it publicly yeah yeah that's probably it seems pretty likely uh, i really hope so um, I, I i am confident that governments have some things like like I'm not confident for private reasons. Like I, I just I expect that governments have things like nuclear winter models um, that are either better or complementary to what exists in the public. I, I but but I mean, there's a lot of topics where governments could publicly do things like aggregating estimates, like make, putting numbers on things, aggregating estimates, and they don't do them on these public things. Mm-hmm. So there's I think there's a good chance they are missing it too, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So why do you think I guess like this gap? exists? Is it because um, people are just like uncomfortable putting, you know, uh, like answers to these really uncertain questions? Or is it that, um, you know, there might be like some like difference between like personal incentives and like social incentives and being wrong or like being called out there is, is the issue or like, yeah, why, why, why do you think that is? I think, yeah, I mean, you, you could start with like, um, 
you know, just by default, people don't put numbers on. Like the, sta- the, the standard thing is just to not do that. Like if everyone's just running around trying to farm and stuff, they don't do that. So like what would push them to do that? And one thing that pushes them to do that is like caring deeply about things actually getting better and, and also thinking rigorously about how to do that. And to be honest, like this, this is one of the things where I maybe sound dismissive of a lot of the world. Like I think a lot of people aren't super doing that. Like I think a lot of people do care deeply. A lot of people do think rigorously, but it's somewhat uncommon to have those two things combined really intensely. So you have like hedge fund managers who are thinking really rigorously about how to make the most money. And you have a lot of like uh, nonprofit workers who are caring deeply. Mm-hmm. But to really combine both of those at a high level in, in the same person is somewhat uncommon. And then to have them connect in a community. So I wouldn't have come up with good forecasting methods if I was left to my own devices. So even when there are these people who have those two things combined pretty strong. So I, I was basically, I had the same thinking styles that I do now before I encountered the A community and my plans were so much worse. Yeah. So if left to my, if, if there was like a th- if there was like 10,000 of me but scattered and they didn't know each other, they wouldn't have created this like um pools of resources and knowledge and methods. So so yeah, that that just happens in the world by default I think or something. And then it's yeah, and, and then if if you care so intensely about making things better, then it's like it's really on you and you really have to make sure you find out the best way to do it and then you apply like evidence and reason to the most good possible yada yada. I love this <laughs> thought about caring deeply and thinking rigorously and numerically being anti-correlated or at least being at the kind of extreme right-hand side of both of them is quite rare. Do you have any sense of why that is? One thing that comes to mind is maybe occasionally there's some sense that for the really high stakes, really important questions, it often feels um, maybe a little like inappropriate to try putting numbers on such important things. You know, it's like kind of... um, frivolous or trivializing these things which can't really be quantified but any other any other explanations well okay yeah firstly is is this phenomena real before we, um, no, no, before we explain we it that. <laughs> <laughs> you've gone too hard on the non-hedging um, <laughs> right. uh yeah i i i would guess the ph- i would guess the phenomenon is at least more complicated um so i, I think that i think one thing you could just explain it pretty easily. So my guess is they are roughly uncorrelated, caring deeply and thinking rigorously. And, and you know, I would define those more carefully. Uh, this could sound very rude to a lot of people, um, but like, trust me, if you, if you spoke to me, I assume I would sound less annoying than I do um, in the snippet <laughs> version. Um, but yeah, the, the care, yeah. So I would guess they're roughly uncorrelated, and then it's just not that surprising that being really extreme on both is very rare because it's, it's pretty rare to be extreme on one, it's pretty rare to be extreme on the other, and then you ought to multiply those two rarities or like those two probabilities. Um, I would guess there's some things that make them correlated, which is what one is like the thing I mentioned, which is like, I think one of the main reasons to care so and to, to, to think so rigorously, to like push yourself to do good forecasting. And so like, I, I, I have become much more productive in the last few years and even before I encountered the A community and a lot of that sort of thing like a lot a lot of me improving my reasoning and my productivity and my work ethic and my connections and all that and like trying to accrue resources and abilities is driven by this like passion to make the world better uh, in a way that I don't think I would be driven by money although some people are I see. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think that that creates a correlation I think there's also something in the opposite direction which is like I, I it, to some extent I think thinking rigorously will tend to like lean you a bit towards like noticing that helping others is a good thing and things like that. Uh, and it's really important. Um, and you've seen that there are huge opportunities and yeah. potentially they're bigger than you yeah. originally imagined. So I think that they can, but I think there is one reason they would be anti-correlated as well. Well, uh, one reason that comes to mind immediately, at least, uh, I, this is not my area of expertise, which would be like a sort of sacred values type thing. So that there's this, um, I think Phil Tetlock has done some work on this. Uh, he's, he's a political scientist. And the idea is like certain topics, 
it feels it's like taboo to compare them and it's taboo to like think in certain ways about them so you you can't you might like in hospitals people have to actually make decisions about which patients to in expectation let die in order to prioritize giving resources and doctor time and and um, bed to other people uh but you're not really allowed to think like that like there's certain things where we've let certain people think like that but generally it feels really wrong and off to prioritize but you have to if you aren't making a decision that is like a decision yeah um and so yeah there's that like you can't put a number on things but it's like in, in practice if you are putting all your energy into nuclear weapons risk or if you aren't you are implicitly assuming certain numbers you're acting as if you are assuming certain numbers and so getting a better number probably makes the world better yeah, yeah. even if it's still a crap number just better like we're, we're so blind just like have a little bit of sense yeah yeah i remember this is like still i think like one of the like big things that i really enjoy about like ea research in particular is exactly what you said there about like just making implicit assumptions explicit almost as like an invitation for like other people to then like criticize and critique in order to get to a better number right it almost feels that like often the first step is just like putting some number out there and then discussing about like what that number should be should it be higher or should it be lower yeah. rather than um if everything is kind of like implicit it's like really hard to like arrive at like compromise or not not compromise to arrive at like deliberation um and and then like a better like kind of updated yeah. number. Yeah, and one thing there is just like yeah, it's really hard to know if you even do disagree with someone and in what direction if you're if you're using qualitative probability terms and there's like some research on this but like one example just from I think Thursday was I was talking to someone about their career plans and they were I think they said there was like a non-trivial chance they want to end up doing research mm. and I I asked what what do you mean by non-trivial and they said uh, I guess like 50% or something. <laughs> I, like, oh, I mean that is non-trivial. <laughs> I agree, but I assumed you meant 2% and this conversation would be much less productive if I was yeah, like, oh, yeah. you probably don't want to do research. There's like a tiny chance probably to like leave it off the radar for now or something. So there does seem to be something particularly unusual about the kinds of questions that like EA research involves. I guess like particularly on the like long-termist side, if you're like engaging with AI or uh, like biosecurity, uh, like nuclear, I guess like risk and stuff, these feel like almost by definition, like really, really uncertain area and like really hard to get like feedback on. Um, and then I guess like on the other hand, like likewise, right, with like animal weightings and uh, like whatever have you, there's like loads of uncertainty there as well. Um, do you think that this is like a big barrier towards like getting people to like engage with this thing where like you almost have to enter like kind of a different realm um, of um, uncertainty and like comfortable like making, as you said, like these kinds of like explicit um, like statements and like, and it's just like really hard to know like whether you're like doing good research or not, because it's like really hard to get feedback on these things. Well, one thing I would, yeah, one thing I'd mention is like we've talked a lot about numbers because numbers is like a sort of shorthand for some of the main types of ways that a lot of ectotism reasoning and research are different to others. Um, but often, yeah, often the work isn't numbers. Uh, often the work is quite qualitative. A lot of my work, personally, is, is the sort of thing I met, the meme template I mentioned earlier of uh, there are these four distinctions or there are these four dimensions or something. Like a lot of my work is armchair reasoning and then sort of factorization would be one way to put it. But not, you know, I'm not necessarily numbers. I'm like, here, here I think are like the four main factors that might drive this topic or something. Mm. Um, and then I think you... Yeah, there is an issue of getting... Fee you can't... It's very hard to... For ex existential risk stuff... It's very hard to get feedback loops on the thing you ultimately care about most, which is did we all die or did like we get locked into some terrible future? Because if it happens once, you know, it's too late. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you can get feedback loops on a lot of the other stuff along the way. So you 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 can train your prediction abilities on shorter term questions that are on the right types of topics. Like there's there's a bunch of nuclear risk relevant stuff happening all the time, for example. And you can make lots of forecasts on that kind of thing. You can you can have a model if if you, if you don't just have. So I'm not just saying like. 
0.5% existential risk from nuclear weapons 2100. And I have no sense of what's driving that. Um, instead, I, ha I have that, but I also have some sort of sense of um, what the factors causing that are. And if this is true, what should the world look like in two years? Um, and this allows me to make, so it's same as like, um, you know, scientists will often have theories that predict something that's pretty hard to observe, but also predict a bunch of things that you can observe sooner. And you can check those things and get some evidence on whether the theory is true. So this is an issue. The feedback loops are an issue, but uh, it, it just, it somewhat slows us down, somewhat makes things more complicated. It doesn't like kill this enterprise. Mm, mm. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering, particularly from the like early career perspective, um, how people should be thinking about getting feedback or like acquiring skills and just like knowing whether they're like on the right track or not in order to skill up in order to then like, right, have much more like maybe impact like down the line yeah. and stuff. Would you encourage people like engaging with like maybe quote unquote, uh, uh, like less uncertain um, like problems and stuff at the beginning where there might be like more feedback loops? Or is it again, maybe what you were saying right at the beginning of just if you want to like ultimately have an impact on something, you should like head directly towards that? Well, I, I don't think you should always head directly towards that. Um, so I think basically, so generally I want people to have a theory of change for what they're doing. So like, I'm going to do this, it's going to lead to this, it's going to lead to this, it's going to lead to this, the world gets better. And they have like the sort of like flow chart in their mind of what's going on there. And I want them to often work backwards from where they want the world to be. Like I want this variable in the world to become better, like less factory farmed yeah. animals, lower nuclear risk or something, work backwards from like what needs to happen for that and then flowing through to what they would do. And also work forwards from like what options are available to me, which ones seem like they might lead to good things. And that doesn't mean having one rigid, precise theory of change. It means yeah. um, ha having a sort of like suite of them, having some flexibility, having some uncertainty, uh, often making local decisions, like just applying for a bunch of stuff and seeing what happens and then trying a job for a year. Sometimes though, making a grand plan. Yeah, so some sort of blend of those. And so given that sometimes you should take the direct path, but sometimes you have some reason why wandering over here for a bit, doing a PhD on international relations on a topic that doesn't really matter, uh, might be the best thing for skilling up for some particular thing. But like, please know why you're doing it. And it can be okay that it's just like, this is my best option. And it seems like it's building generically good skills, but at least know that. Don't, don't, don't trick yourself. Yeah. Um, but then, okay, circling back to what you, what you were intending to ask, um, I, think, I think it doesn't affect the feedback loops much because I think like in general, researchers get better over their career. And most of that doesn't come from observing whether the world matched their observations. I, this is, I, I claim this now. Yeah, yeah. I haven't thought about this much before precisely in these terms, but I claim this is true. I think like a lot of research skills are reading papers rapidly and extracting the useful insights and uh, writing clearly mm. and making an argument that is like logically valid and noticing which factors seem most important and which sub-questions to zoom in on. And if we... So, so one thing is some of these you can sort of pretty visibly tell. Another thing is some of them you can like survey people. You, you can like, you know, set, write a bunch of things and then survey people on like how clear was this and like track this over time. Um, another thing is if, if we all in the community, if, if there's a given research community, it doesn't have to be effective altruism. It can be like any topic, like philosophy, for example. A lot of philosophy stuff is like probably on average, a, philosophy's judge, a philosopher's judgment of another person's paper is probably slightly more likely to be good than actively bad. Uh, and so if we have like a hundred philosophers telling you how good your paper is or like how, how sound it seems to be and how useful these contributions are, they're a bit more likely to like push you, give you accurate feedback than exactly opposite feedback. Yeah. Uh, and therefore like, yeah. And so in the same way, like even if, so the, the AI risk community has a lot of people, if I, if I write some post or something, I can have like 20 people tell me how sensible and useful it seems and they could all be wrong, but they're a bit more likely to be on average right than on average wrong. Um, yeah, so, so I can still get that sort of feedback. And, and this connects to the theory of change thing as well. So you can have theory of change for like your career or whatever, but you can also have it for a given research project. Mm -hmm. And it might, 
ideally at some point, like it could flow through your own actions and making yourself better, but it could also flow through other people's decisions. If, if your theory of change research project involves this type of actor making a different type of decision, then you can just ask them, like, did, did you read my work? Did it change any of your beliefs or behaviors? If so, in what ways? Did you think it was useful? Do you want me to do more things like this? Now, this doesn't tell you the decisions they made were better. So it is possible you made things net negative, but th but it's unlikely. It's like it's like slightly less likely than the opposite. Um, and in order for your work to have done well, like this node turning out correct, like this node in your theory of change turning out to have been like, oh, they did read my work, they did find it useful, uh, that updates you positively. If they didn't read your work, you should think the work was less useful than you hoped. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, the, the, like this 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 is basically like conceptually on an abstract level, this is the same as the nuclear risk thing, where I'm like. Even if I don't just have that bottom line number of the chance of existential risk by 2100, I also have the factors that go into it. And I can check those early steps and get some like feedback from reality on the early steps in the chain, even if I can't do the whole chain until we all die. Or yeah, don't, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. All right, I suggest taking a, a timeout, lots of high-level conversation about feedback loops. But I seem to remember about 20 minutes ago, Michael, you were halfway through before we interrupted a list of cheap tests you can take to test for... Um, fits for various kinds of research. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to finish, finish the yeah. list. Yeah, so like at the bottom of the ladder was like uh, applying for things, uh, which is usually pretty quick for the first stages, can get longer once you get fairly likely to get a job and you get decently like decently long work tests, but by then your odds are fairly high, so they might be worth doing, etc. Um, and then sort of in parallel on the bottom of the ladder is the sort of spend a weekend writing a blog post, adapting what you already know mm -hmm. for a new purpose. Um, then like next rung up or something, roughly, uh, would be what I call uh, EA-aligned research training programs. Um, but, you, but you could, you know, there's various things like this, like fellowships and internships. They don't have to be research. They don't have to be EA-aligned. Um, these are usually things along the lines of one to six month, uh, can be part-time, can be full-time, sometimes paid, sometimes volunteer opportunities, where they, a key advantage there is like it's temporary mm -hmm. and it's like you're not, an asshole if you quit. So, so like you can quit jobs, but you're a bit of an asshole if you take what's meant to be like a permanent full-time job and you quit after like three months. Um, these ones, like it's designed that way. And also because they are temporary, um, they generally have a lower bar. So it's like easier to get into them first. Uh, so some concrete examples, there's um, the Stanford Existential Risk Initiative and the Cambridge Existential Risk Initiative. Um, both have uh, roughly 12 week, I think, positions mm -hmm. of this nature. And they have a higher acceptance rate than things like Rethink Priorities Fellowship. Um, then, yeah, and where you can find these would be, um, it's called EA Opportunities, I think is this website that's been set up just very recently. It used to be called the EA Internships Board, and it lists like a bunch of things like this. There's also, of course, ones outside of the EA world, like, um, you know, regular prestigious think tanks have all these internships and stuff like that. So you can look for various things like that. And then like, kind of maybe the same rung, just a little higher on the rung or something, or maybe the next rung would be things like this, but at established organizations. Uh, and it's not just designed for training. They actually do sort of want you to do good stuff too. Um, so Rethink Priority is an example of that. We run fellowships that are three to five months, 20 to 40 hours a week, um, and same structure, but we have a somewhat higher bar and we expect the people at the end will produce quite useful stuff, as well as it's a talent pipeline thing. Um, Center on Long-Term Risk has something like this as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, and then actually doing a job is maybe like the next rung on the ladder. So applying is like bottom. You might be able to skip all the way up the ladder. Like you might find out like, uh, like one of the people who's going to join Rethink Priorities, one of the people who's very likely to join Rethink Priorities quite soon uh, is I think a second year undergrad. Uh, well, she'll, she'll be joining as a, um, as a fellow. Uh, but we, we, yeah, we have a decent number of undergrads or recent, uh, like recently graduated undergrads 
whatever that's called, um, <laughs> who uh, yeah, who join either temporarily or permanently. So you might be able to skip up all the all the ladder, but um, if you if you if if that's not working out, you can try like the next thing. Awesome. And beyond the particular examples you gave, where can people go to find these opportunities collected into? single places yeah oh I, I should first flag that obviously that list wasn't comprehensive there's also phds and and masters and all, all sorts of stuff and, and just trying stuff independently getting a grant to do independent work for three months is there's like a lot of options like this basically the, the the fundamental principle is how much will you learn and how long does it take you um how much will you learn about your fit and how much will you get better at stuff and how long does it take you uh and then where you can find these things um yeah there's the eighty thousand hours job board is a great resource for i guess rung one and the final rung of like both applying for and getting a job um they mostly have things that are somewhat hard to get and are like permanent full-time stuff. But again, like don't rule yourself out. Like I think both theoretically and expected value, it's often great to apply, but also empirically, a lot of effective altruism aligned people are quite surprised by getting things and have like uh, something like imposter syndrome. Um, maybe this is just the whole world. I just don't pay as much attention to the rest of the world, but definitely the EA community, I pay my attention and they have that. Um, yeah, and then for the like, yeah, as I mentioned, the EA Opportunities website has a lot of things at that like middle-ish level. Um, both of these boards also have some things that are things along the lines of graduate programs and stuff. Obviously, you can just like hunt in the wild in the real world for graduate programs for things that you, you know, you know, according to that theory of change that you've made, because I told you to earlier, uh, that these would be helpful for your career plans. Um, something else? Oh, yeah, funding. Um, yeah, so... Yeah. People might be surprised, like uh, grants often have a higher acceptance rate than a lot of the other things because well, it depends what you're working on, it depends how you're doing it. I'm not saying you will get a grant, but it, it does have a surprisingly high acceptance rate and it can be pretty quick to apply, so there's a good chance you should give it a shot. Um, and you can get that for anything that's going to make the world net better in expectation. EA yep. aligned funders, it's not like people so often ask me, can I get funding for this thingy? And I'm like, well, is this thingy good? If this thingy's yeah. good, then you probably can. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not, then you probably can't. Um, <laughs> for people who are considering applying for funding for the first time, mm. you try rattling off just like a bunch of random examples of what good for the world could look like. Yeah, well, okay, so one thing is where you can go to find more examples. Um, yeah. I have a post that I'll mention again at the end called uh, interest, it's called something like um, interested in EA slash long-termist research careers, question mark. Here are my top recommended resources. And then <laughs> contains my top recommended resources. One of them, if I recall correctly, is a like workshop I made on like why you should consider applying for funding uh, with capital U because I want you to like, really know that it applies to you. Um, and <laughs> yeah, that lists like some examples of the kind of thing you can get money for. I will also now say them uh, as a bonus treat. <laughs> so, yeah, some of them are like yeah, you can yeah, you can apply for things like actually doing a project that is obviously useful. This is the thing that people would imagine. They're like, oh, I could do a research project for three months and this could have a useful output. Yeah. Or I could like um, write a book on some topic that's important. I could make a website that fills some need that people have. I could start offering uh, legal services or therapy to like important organizations or people who are doing useful work. These sort of things might be somewhat intuitive, though you might not realize just how wide the range is. Like, yeah, and any service or good, any good or service is useful. But but there's also this other category that I think is especially likely to be missed, which is things that build you. Um, and often these things can seem kind of like they're, they're like frivolous or they're just like for me, quote unquote. There's going to be things like travel funding or funding to uh, quit a part-time job or take some time off in order to apply for lots of jobs and scale up or um, funding for various things that would improve your physical or mental health. Uh, a lot of people are quite surprised by these kind of things, but if these things, and often they won't get funding, like it's, it's not like everyone 
gets funding from the EA bigwigs for all mental health treatment they want. Um, but if these things, if you're pretty unlikely or unable to do them without money, you would do them with money. And they are like they make the world better by a substantial degree in expectation. Uh, then that can be totally valid. So sometimes, like traveling to some city that is a hub for the kind of work you're doing to like network and form collaborations and find opportunities later, or taking three months off to apply for a crap load of things while also like skilling up and reading up and getting feedback and finding mentors. These these are valid work, mm-hmm. even though they're just like getting the next piece of work. They, they you are exerting labor and time and energy in order to make the world better. Ultimately, uh, that style that counts. <laughs> yeah, it's a good answer. That, that's really useful framing. There, there's one thing um, you touched on there that. I you want to ask explicitly about so if i am looking to do independent research uh and do that by applying for a grant it seems that like one of the drawbacks especially if i'm early on in my career is like not having the mentorship maybe that i would if i applied for like a fellowship or for an internship or like even a job is there any advice you have for acquiring that mentorship so if i'm already you know taking kind of like agency action by applying for a grant is there like any recommendation uh that you might have if i'm like looking for a mentor like what should i be looking for and how can i go about doing that yeah. Um, okay. So firstly, on the other thing, because I think Finn's original question before I took for a long time was like, where can you find these things? So on funding, where you find these things, I have another post called uh, list of <laughs> EA funding opportunities, which is a list of EA funding opportunities. <laughs> I think it plus the comments is comprehensive. There's also like an Airtable link. So you can find a bunch of stuff there. Many of them like take one or two hours to apply. To. Well, you, you, you think first you think about what you want to do. Then the actual application takes like one or two hours. Um, and yeah, they do have a like slightly silly high acceptance rate that I like won't say, but you can, it's like publicly available knowledge if you want to go find it. So like believe in yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, mentorship. So stepping back, um, yeah, I think finding mentorship is really important. I think that's a really good question. And for that reason, I don't think you like getting funding to do something independently should rarely be plan A. Getting funding to augment what you're doing anyway, like like for, for travel or like better equipment or like some time off to apply for things, mm-hmm. that, that could quite reasonably be plan A. But getting funding to like do an actual full independent project is probably usually less good than joining some sort of program or course, or well, I don't know about course, but like program or job or something. Because uh, basically the incentive structure, if, 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 if someone works for me, if they're on my team, then their success is my success and their failure is my failure. And I'm strongly incentivized for them to do well. And I am like, I, I am hired for my ability, like my role. I was like promoted into it for my demonstrated ability to do good mentorship and for my like knowledge of the area and stuff like that. And I know that like, uh, like working on this is like my top, one of my top pro development, professional development goals. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just like ask someone to be your mentor and they're doing it because they're nice, even if like they are also super impact driven and they know that your project's important, we don't, we, we aren't acting fully rationally. We're, we're not constantly like chasing impact the most. We, we do respond to sort of local incentives. And at the end of the day, when, when they have like a really busy work day and you email them something for feedback, if it's not their job, even if it's really impactful, they might just like engage with a different mindset. Like they might not engage at all or they might engage pretty lightly. Uh, and they want like intensive, like, uh, there are times, mostly in the past, I've, I've become a better manager, so it happens less often. But there are times when, like, I see something that one of the people I manage has written, 
and I'm like worried. Um, and then I'm motivated to like give a lot of feedback because I'm like, oh, this would this could be embarrassing. <laughs> like this looks pretty bad for me. Um, and, and if they were just like someone I like loosely mentored, and it's no, uh, there's no website that says I've done this. Uh, like th- actually, there was a time when that happened. There was someone like I loosely mentored in that way, and they wrote something, and it was like it wasn't very good. Um, and I, I I tried to help a bit, but I was mostly like oh, I'm gonna cut my losses. To be honest, like I'm very yeah. busy. I'm gonna like walk away. Uh, and and I I'm like you know, a pretty EAE person. So yeah, it's like you respond to local incentives. So like the main way to find mentorship is to join a structure that is designed. Oh yeah, that, I, that was all about incentives for the manager. Another thing is just like, for example, on my team, we have an onboarding process. We have an ops team, an operations team. We have like a, a bunch of institutional things. We have a team that we've worked on building cohesion and making sure everyone knows each other mm-hmm. and, they, and they like feel connected so they can like give frank feedback without it hurting and stuff like that. So it doesn't all come from me. Um, so all these things are set up and if you're like floating around by yourself and you find a mentor who's being nice to you, uh, you're just missing so much of that. It still decently often is a good move. And especially if you've tried the other stuff and you haven't got the other stuff yet in general, doing things rather than just reading is good. So if you, if you haven't been able to get any opportunities, then this is probably better than just reading a bunch of blog posts or doing a course, but ideally you get something where it's like packaged incentivized mentorship feedback loops. Yeah. One thing I want to throw out as like an alternative, which I'm curious for the kind of like Michael take on is there's like one version of this where I am doing an independent project and then I reach out for some mentor to try and get them to like help me support that project. And there's another version of this where I could just like reach out to like a senior person or somebody who I like think does really good work and then offer to be their like research assistant uh, or something. And then maybe those incentives like could become more aligned because suddenly, I mean, it's like maybe more of a barrier for them to like take on then as well, because they're like entrusting you with like more responsibility uh, and like their own work there as well. But then you do have that like alignment of incentives where like uh, your success is also like their success and they maybe have that like vested interest. Is there like, yeah, like a trade-off there um, between uh, you doing your own like independent research looking for a mentor versus uh, assisting somebody on an existing project there, even if it doesn't have like the fellowship structure. Yeah. So yeah, that, that will often be better than just doing your own thing and getting a mentor who's like helping you with your own thing. There's also, there's also middle ground ones where you, where you're like, here's a menu of five things I might want to do. Can, I'd be happy for you to mentor me on any of them based on your preference. And also I can like somewhat scope them based on your preference. So there's like a sort of sliding scale between how self-directed and uh, other directed you are yeah. in what you're choosing. Um, b- both times you should be impact driven, but like what flavor of impact driven? Um, yeah, so that, that that would often be better, sometimes be worse. I, I don't know which one's more common, but 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 both seem generally worse than actually joining an opening someone set up. So one thing to think about there is like, if someone really wanted a research assistant, they probably could open a job ad for a research assistant. Uh, and there are people who've opened job ads for research assistants. So like those are people who've decided, I have these things I really want someone to do for me and I have time available to help them. And probably I have like institutional support and funding and all that sort of thing. Um, so that they're probably just more invested and, and maybe like better able to support it. This won't always be the case. There are people who've done this thing of like proactively finding an RA arrangement or other things like that. And it does go well sometimes. Everything, you know, caveats, but like generally step one is like probably apply. Or one other caveat I do definitely want to mention is like, there's a certain kind of entrepreneurial person who will learn especially fast if they just like chuck themselves in the deep end and they build a thing like super themselves. Um, and I, I don't, yeah, it's hard to say if you're that kind of person. Um, but I think that apply, my sense is that is less, my sense is most people aren't that. And also that that applies less to research than to like building a thing. So like if you have an idea for like a forecasting organization that is like providing a product or service, then it's more likely 
that you like, like th- that's the sort of thing where, where I think it's more likely that chucking yourself in the deep end means you learn really fast and do something really cool than if you just want to like do research on forecasting. Yeah. I'm uh, not confident. One thing I want to like slightly maybe push back on is at least like from my experience, maybe with like academia or like maybe more like um, mainstream like research is that if you already bring your own like research assistant funding, I think that opens up like a lot more doors than if you are having to get the academic to a like get all the like university sign off things and get funding and go through like what is like a lot of time and effort of like vetting candidates. Whereas if you can like bring funding and bring like a credible signal that like you can do good work. And I think often that like involves already maybe having had like your like previous relationship um, like with them or having like shown credible interest in like the more like narrow field uh, like that they're working in and stuff. I think that does like open up a bigger chunk of like existing opportunities. Do you want to say um, just concretely what you did? Because I'm presuming you have something in mind here. Well, I mean, I'm thinking like in particular of like the research like scholars program or something. I don't know like how like generalizable this is or something, but like to some degree, right? That was like, we had like funding for two years to do like whatever research we wanted to do. And like one version of this is you do your own like independent research. And another version of this is like viewing this as like, oh, I can now do what would have otherwise been a bunch of like unpaid internships. And I was able to apply to like government positions and also like other like think tank positions and stuff there as well. And kind of because I already had my own like existing like funding and had the like university like signal or something there maybe, I think that did like credibly like open more doors um, than if I had just like um, applied to like the like quote unquote like normal process. And there was something there of like, I want to encourage people to maybe be like more agency or like more uh, outgoing. Again, I think I take like Michael's like hierarchy of like how good things are on there. But I think this is like one way that like if it's easy to get like or easier to get like independent like grants and stuff, then you can like kind of use that as well to then like kind of hack yourself back into the like fellowship, like internship program um, by taking like some kind of initiative there. Yeah. So one thing I like. So so I, I've most my like EA aligned career has all been in effective altruism organizations yeah. uh, and you super can have an EA aligned career in other organizations. And so often I will like fail to like flag the things that apply elsewhere. And I think things do look really different in like both for like non-EA versus EA organizations and also other types of organization types can make huge differences. Um, and, and so I think this point applies pretty little to effective altruism aligned organizations because but but applies quite a bit to the rest of the world and is a really good point for the rest of the world and i think like the sort of explanation of this uh, to like get sort of abstract about it is like demand signals are really important uh and the market often works quite well um but there are these externalities and there is market failures and uh but so if if, if you if you reached out to a company and were like hey i want to bring my own funding of any intern for you um then like, yeah, they'll be happy about that. But like, they probably didn't like super need that job because if they really needed that job, they just would open it. But for like think tanks and governments and stuff like that, they don't have all the funding that they sort of should have in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but because a lot of what they're working on is like social impact type stuff. Um, also, you aren't, yeah, like also they just like, they, they, they want you there uh, because it helps them. And you can extract from the mentorship. So you're each getting different things from relationship. You don't need to be like boosting a thing that they're doing that's useful. Um, You just need to be like extracting their knowledge and skills and training, uh, whatever you're doing for them. But for effective altruism organizations, we, especially in in the long-termist course area, we have decently solved the like the market failure by like within our community. Like obviously the world is still like very much on fire, Um, but, but, uh, we are like within the community, the the jobs that sh- to a decent extent, the organizations that should have funding to open roles do. Um, and that means that if they if if they aren't willing to pay you for something, there's a decent chance that like that isn't super useful or super needed or, or, or and also 
um, like for me, if I just got a free new employee, I wouldn't be happy <laughs> because like I, I am just, we're like time constrained and management capacity constrained. And also there's just like only so fast that you can or should grow a team. There's like various like cohesion type issues that happen if you just scale extremely quickly. So we just like, if we, if we could have another person for free, we probably would have another person uh, and money's not the bottleneck for us. But I, I super take your point. And I think there's very excitingly, there's a lot of programs where you just can, like Effector Arctis have helped set up these programs also individuals, as you say, can like um, be agentic and set up the programs themselves to come along to governments or think tanks and get weirdly important roles uh, just because they like brought money and they can get mentorship from like amazing people um, because these orgs are just like very sort of in some sense underfunded, but full of talent focused on kind of the wrong things, but very smart and you can learn a lot. Yeah. So yeah, if you're going in that path, that's I, great. I think that's like a spot on uh, like distinction. I think that like helped clarify like my thinking on it a bunch. Uh, yeah, I am aware of a kind of like maybe burrowing into like abstract territory again. So I'm going to ask for like another concrete example, which is, can you talk us maybe through one research project that you did? You mentioned uh, kind of like nuclear risk and stuff before, and maybe like to begin, just like let us know what your like theory of change or kind of goal that was. And then we can like maybe dig through and extract some lessons from, from how you kind of approached it. Yeah. So this was this, so um, the organization I work for, Rethink Priorities, it, uh, a lot of the time we operate kind of like a consultancy where we're driven by people reaching out and having specific needs that they ask us to fill. Um, and sometimes they give us money and sometimes they don't, but they, we just like know that there is a clear theory of change there because these people have the important decisions to make and they want us to do this. Um, sometimes we operate more like uh, we, we like are self-directed and we just notice something's important, but we still have a theory of change. In this case, this started, there was a very big nuclear risk project that started from like a comically small um, request that someone made that, that they wanted Rethink Priorities to look into. And this is like a smart person, important ability to influence things, uh, wanted us to look into some particular organization as a funding opportunity. This is my understanding. This is before I joined. Um, and then this was, and then this turned into like a year long, really interesting project uh, on uh, the, like all of nuclear risk. And then that person left and then I inherited it. So basically we, we, our scope could be pretty much to what extent should people focused on improving the long-term future or reducing existential risk, focus on nuclear weapons risk. Mm. And if they are, how should they do it? So one question is like the how how high priority is this area? Like how likely are nuclear weapons to sort of kill us all or turn everything onto the wrong path, um, even if we don't all die? Uh, and also like what should we do about all those high priority things? And so this is very broad, and I could do like whatever I wanted within this area basically. Mm. And um, so I tried to sort of like factorize that into some of the key topics. I, I made a lot of mistakes. I didn't finish much stuff, and we can maybe circle back to the mistakes. Yeah. Um, but the yeah, my aim was sort of thinking about firstly, what are at a very high level, the reasons why nuclear risk might matter. And so I wrote, I, this is just like armchair reasoning, just like fleshing out like, why might we care? One thing would be the um, direct, relatively direct paths from a huge nuclear war to the long term future being much worse. So this could be an extremely huge nuclear war that has extremely huge nuclear winter effects kills almost everyone. And then we just like never recover for some reason, like something else finishes off some other weapon, or just we like, uh, stagnate and then die for some natural reason. Um, or, or yeah, the future is like on, on the wrong path because of the political systems and values that re-arise are bad. Another thing could be sort of pretty indirect paths from nuclear weapons to the long-term future being bad. So this could be a relatively small nuclear war that um, sort of really harms geopolitics and means that a lot of other things go worse. So this could like um, make countries all much more afraid of each other using WMDs, uh, weapons of mass destruction. And so then they each flood in to come up with new fancy WMDs that would counteract these things. So this, would be, this And then nuclear weapons aren't what did us in. 
um, but they sort of like triggered this chain of events and, and contributed. So Toby Ord calls this like an existential risk factor rather than existential risk in the precipice. Yeah. Uh, that'll be another. And then there's a bunch of other reasons that are like indirect part, like why working on nucleus could be helpful for like building our expertise that we can apply to other areas, stuff like that. So that's like one example of a project within this general space, which is just like at a high level, why might, my, why might we care about this? And then you can look into why, how much each of those matters. So you could then look into like why the direct path might be important, why the indirect path might be important, and to what extent, like, how does nucleus compare to other areas in terms of building our expertise and credibility and skills and knowledge and connections for working on other things like AI or bio? So that's one thing. And then another thing was like um, uh, aggregating estimates of how likely nuclear war is and how big it would be. So trying to like find a whole bunch of numbers that have been put out there mm-hmm. and put them all into one place and trying to extrapolate from them into some sort of common currency. So a lot of people estimating different um, uh, that you know, they might be estimating different timelines, like 2024 or 2040 or something. They might be estimating just a U.S.-Russia war versus nuclear war in general. They might be estimating a nuclear war with at least 100 weapons used versus just a nuclear war in general. I'm trying to like extract that all into one common currency, weight these things differently based like some of the sources are really atrocious, uh, and some of them are like quite solid, and trying to like put different weights on them and come up with like overall how likely is nuclear weapons use. Uh, it appears, by the way, roughly one percent per year. There's my like headline. Um, yeah, so like not not fifty, not zero. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, and I also got like excess. Like uh, yeah, this is very this is like work in progress, very rough. But my like rough sense of existential risk from nuclear weapons by twenty one hundred is something like 05 percent. We could talk about what that means if you want, but maybe we should like skip on. Um, but there's my like hot take. Um, yeah, and then to fuel fuel that, I'll just mention one other project, which was like building a tournament, uh, a forecasting tournament on nuclear risk to give us lots of numbers. So this project was trying to like factorize um, what are the paths to nuclear risk and what are each of the like steps along those paths and can we come up with operationalized questions of will this thing happen by X year or like how many of this thing will exist by X year. So it could be like number of weapons in various countries stockpiles or amount of smoke uh, lifted into the stratosphere if there is a nuclear war above a certain size or if there is a nuclear war, will the US have any detonations on it because th- th- that can help us like dis- discern whether w- will it just be India, Pakistan, will it include the US, etc. And so this is like a lot of questions, getting a lot of estimates, feeding them into this database. This is now like a resource that other decision makers can hopefully use. In broad terms, you get handed this like enormous uh, question, which is maybe figure out what's important on nuclear and what could improve the long-term future. You're describing how you factorized that question. You want to aggregate risk estimates. You want to figure out... Um, pathways to um, making the long-term future go worse. Um, you started this forecasting tournament. I'm curious now to explore some of the real kind of granular details of what this work looked like day to day. For instance, what tools were you using? Were you speaking to other people whilst you were doing this? Um, how much progress did you feel like you're making day on day? Yeah. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah. Um... Yeah, so, so one thing, like those three things I mentioned are like a subset of all the various things I did, obviously. Um, each thing like has pretty different. So maybe I should mention one more example just to like flesh out. I think there's four be like four types. Another one was I tried to, this one was unfinished, but I tried to look into, um, I think it was something along the lines of given nuclear winter, how much famine would there be? Uh, so if, if there is a, and some things there are like like there's one like in my opinion really bad white paper um, trying to answer this question that is like the resource everyone cites um, that just completely ignores questions like 
what if we just move crops? So, right. so like Classics. in a nuclear winter, it's yeah. like various areas get colder or like the amount of rain changes, the amount of sunlight changes. This changes what you can grow. Um, and, and so then this paper is just sort of like, well, everything would, everyone would try to do what they're trying to do normally. No one would move or whatever. <laughs> and then X many people starve. Um, yeah, so like this, so... Th- Okay, so then there's the, these four types. There's like this armchair reasoning type where I was trying to look at like at a high level what might our goals be. There's like a sort of like aggregation type of just like pulling a bunch of estimates together and then doing some like janky maths and explaining my reasoning really transparently to like see how I got to my bottom line estimates, which I have not done on the podcast, but it's in the database. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and it's like kind of like empirical, but also speculative thing where I'd be reading on the nuclear winter thing, where I'd be reading a lot of papers and trying to like notice all the things that suck about them uh, and all the reasons to not super trust them and like try to come to, and like, again, breaking down the question, factorizing, trying to like look at the science of some things. Um, and then the fourth one would be this nuclearist tournament. Each of them look pretty different. So a lot of a, a lot of my work day is just like, yeah, I'm like at a desk doing various things on different apps or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> A lot of it is like, yeah, like just trying to think and write and, and trying to relatively early. So I, I used Rome, this this tool called Rome. It's pretty similar to like workflowy and Notion. I think it's like you can like infinitely indent things. So starting with a starting with a question like nuclear is like the heading, <laughs> <laughs> and then like gradually like sub like topics emerge and subtopics and breakdowns. And this is partly a way of note taking, but it's also partly a way of like factorizing this huge problem into what seem to be the big questions, and then the sub questions for those questions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, notes on papers. Um, talking to a fair few experts, so like listing the relevant experts. Often these people wrote papers. There's also other people um, trying to think, what do I want to ask them? And when do I want to ask them? And sending a lot of emails, having a lot of calls, taking good conversation notes. Going back to, I think Lucas said like an hour ago or something, (laughs) this thing of like translational research. Like I think, honestly, a lot of the time, yeah, you can get a lot of mileage out of just like asking really deep experts questions they've never thought about before asking three of them this, taking notes and doing some like really quick, like relatively easy things for like a sharp, not very biased person who just wants the truth uh, to do to like not just trust everything they say <laughs> and like notice the flaws in their thing. And they just have like three nice conversation notes and key takeaways. So yeah, some of that. A um, uh, few other things. Oh, getting a lot of feedback um, pretty early on, try to send like send my project plans to a bunch of people who had worked on nuclear risk from a sort of long-termist existentialist perspective to say like are there other questions you think would be important for me to look at do you know of existing resources like uh, uh, yeah really often the question to ask people are how useful do you think this is going to be for what purpose is it useful and what target audience is there anything I should read is there anyone I should talk to um, and like asking a lot of people that and like chaining that into something good um, yeah it's probably more I'll pause yeah can I maybe ask about how iterative this process is so to the degree that you take a big question and like uh, split it down into like smaller sub questions and then maybe try to like find cruxes there to what degree is this like something you have done right at the very beginning and then it's just kind of like ticking through and like going through the list and maybe doing like the grunt work there versus this is like an iterative process where you know you had some framework at the beginning and then you realize that's not like the right framework to have or like not the like best way to kind of dissect these things and then it's kind of like a maybe more like ongoing kind of like muddled uh like thing yeah um yeah, I think I'll first try to say what I did and continue this descriptive portion. But this is not a normative portion <laughs> or a prescriptive. Yeah. Uh, what I did was not perfect. Um, so, yeah, I already... So a person called Luisa Rodriguez had worked at Rethink Priorities before on this topic, before I joined. And um, so I sort of inherited their breakdown and their work and stuff. 
Um, this implied a bunch of topics I should focus on, all the things they hadn't finished. Um, and so to begin with, I thought I'll do the things they haven't finished. Um, but yeah, I first did like an exploratory phase where I tried to learn a bunch about those topics and a bunch just about nuclear risk and trying to like vaguely think, like like read a bunch of papers that seem relevant, uh, like skimming a bunch of papers, taking notes, vaguely thinking like what seems important here and writing like very rough project plans. Then going from that to sending pe sending a bunch of people this like list of like 10 questions I might look at in like prioritized order. Um, then writing like project plans on three of them. One key, I'll, like, I'll, I'll, I'll spoil one of the mistakes I made, which is I did a lot of things in parallel. I, I like pursued sort of eight different projects at once. And if, nice. if I pulled it off, it would have been great. <laughs> like they all do feed each other. And like if I was definitely going to be doing this for five years, it would have it been the right approach. And I would have ended up with like this great set of like interlocking things that all inform each other. But I, I did not. Like outside view should have told me I'm going, like outside view forecasting should have told me I'm, I'm going to pivot. I did pivot. Uh, so I have like five unfinished things, three crappily finished things. But anyway, yeah. So I had um, a bunch of things in parallel. Um, yeah, project plans, then reading a bunch to inform it. And the project plan, I, I have like this theory of change of like which actors might need this, what might they need this for, what are my goals here, including my goals for my self-development. Mm. Um, what are the questions I'm probably going to look at, roughly how long am I going to spend? This is all useful planning, um, but yeah, it, it, it is iterative and the, I deviate from the plan as I go. And my, my general thing here is sort of like, the plan you there's there's a phrase of like plans are worthless but planning is essential i think there's like overstated but like in the right direction or something um and, and i would often say it like having a theory of change in a project plan puts you in the right general region of the map and gives you a sense of like what are you looking for as you explore like what should i keep my eye out for in order to change direction but you aren't right in the right place of the map and you don't have exactly the right path and you should explore and you should change your mind and stuff so yeah as i went i um noticed that some of the topics I was looking at, some of the topics that Louisa had been looking at didn't seem like the key things to me. And they were like skipping over things that seemed really important to me. And so then I wanted to zoom into those and deprioritize some other stuff. Um, yeah, and like one thing I did a decent job of is writing relatively early and trying to have bottom lines relatively early. But I, this, is the, this is one of the main things, <laughs> one of the like several main things I should have done better. Um, I, did, I spent a lot of time just kind of miscellaneously learning and like taking miscellaneous notes that were like organized by topic and subtopic. Yeah. But, but what, I, what I now want to do, like basically like one of the best posts I would suggest for like trying to get up speed on research stuff, other than my uh, interested in research here, my top recommended resource, which links to this, um, is uh, a post by Holden Karnofsky called Learning by Writing and a, a complimentary post called Useful Vices for Wicked Problems. <laughs> Those are literally the two plugs I did in our 50th episode yeah, special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. yeah, I, think I think they're really, really good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I really like um, my, my, a lot of my stuff, like three people messaged me at once on like the day it came out or something were like, oh, I just read this and I'm, I want to do this method and I feel a lot better about my project now or something. So yeah, they're, they're, they're good things. Um, um, uh, yeah, so basically the idea there is like pretty early on, you like you do a little bit of miscellaneous reading. Uh, wait, when you did a plug, did you already explain it? Should I no, like, no, no, okay, go for it. Go it. For it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also don't think we can assume that every listener will have listened to every episode. <laughs> Typically, like, the plug yeah, yeah, yeah. on episode fifty. <laughs> go back; it's one of the classic plugs. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think yeah, the idea is sort of like do a little bit, like pick a topic. Do a little bit of like exploratory reading. I have an Anki card on this, so I think I'll get like the eight steps fairly right. Um, uh, do, yeah, and, but then right then, you now form a bottom line. So you already form a take. So like pretty early, I should have formed a take on like 
unfortunately, it's not a binary question of should we pay attention to nuclear risk. It's like roughly like how what fraction of our resources should go towards nuclear risk mm-hmm. for what high level goal or what ranking of high level goals and roughly what in- interventions seem most important. I should have like within a month formed a bottom line on that, maybe even less. Um, and then, but then still do a lot of research. Don't at that point publish my bottom line and walk away, but then do a lot of research that's aimed at like either affirming or countering that bottom line. So maybe I would have thought relatively early, nuclear actually probably should be like, I don't know, 50 times less important in our portfolio than AI and bio-risk. And then I'm now like, what would change my mind? And what would change my mind includes, for example, the chance there'll be a huge nuclear weapons buildup because then I make, or, or the chance that um, even a small nuclear war really reshapes geopolitics, the thing I mentioned earlier, and predictably in a quite net negative direction. So I think one thing a lot of people think is going to shape geopolitics, and they sort of skip over the idea that it might strengthen a nuclear weapons taboo and things like that. And I'm like, the future is very hard to predict. Right now, I feel pretty uncertain. But at that point, I could have like spent a lot less time on some of the questions that seemed really unlikely to flip my bottom line. Like one one thing I spent a decent amount of time, not very much, but like I, I was, I was going to was... Um, how bad EMPs would be. And this is sort of important, but it's like not one of the most important things. Um, so yeah, so I, I should have at that point like focused on ch- flipping my bottom lines, started writing pretty fast, uh, like started writing like an outline that tries to justify my thing and explain like, here's my take. Here are the three arguments that I think are strongest for it. And like the breakdown of those arguments, each of them have a heading. Uh, a heading is like phrased as the argument. And here are like the three things that might change my mind or something. And then send that to a lot of people and have like tell them like, why am I wrong or something? That would have been great. I would have finished more stuff. It would have been fantastic. I, I did like kind of a bad approximation of that, but yeah, not okay. perfect. Mistakes. We're already talking about at least one mistake, but anything else that you would have done differently? Yeah. The Okay. So one is like the too many things in parallel thing. Um, and to like break that down a bit, um, in my case, I, 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 th- there's a lot of things that are kind of like outside view. So I like failed to account for planning fallacy, the fact that like things would take me longer than expected. Um, I also failed to account for the number of side things I would embroil myself in. Like I, I did so many side tasks and I don't, I don't not endorse them. Like they all were useful and they were always like shiny and new and variety and interesting. But yeah, that either should have led me to like drop those side things or to do less things in parallel and just like finish one thing by the end of my time or just like notice halfway through that like I keep doing these side things I should adjust my forecast based on that what's an example of a side thing? Uh, like anything other than my main work so (laughs) so like for example like I'm like I do grant making on the EA infrastructure fund and that was like not my not my original job uh, and like took a decent amount of my time also like a lot of like writing random blog posts on other topics a lot of like mentoring people um, writing like a like uh, advising research training programs, yeah. Uh, write it like I, I seem uh, giving career advice to lots of people, things like that. Um, yeah, so I, I should have been more tuned to that. But the reason that matters is because, like, let's say I roughly have an end date. I had an expected end date of like the end of twenty twenty one or something. Um, all the side, like the planning fallacy means that things are going to take me longer till that end date. The side things mean I'm going to do fewer things by then. And then the, the, the third thing I didn't account for is like the chance I'll pivot early uh, and something else really cool is going to come up. And I should have expected that because I'd pivoted a bunch by then <laughs> for like, yeah, other things. And so something really cool did come along that was worth pivoting for. And all of those things of like doing the side things, planning, fall- that's all kind of fine, but it meant I should have done one or two things at a time. So I was robust to that. So that when I finished, I finished with a proper version of something yeah. rather than a kind of like scrappy scattered yeah, version of eight things. Yeah. Um, 
And if you like serialize rather than parallelize, yeah. then it's more likely you at least get some things done yeah. before this pivoting. And it does depend on the person. So like, as I said, like if I was going for five years, parallel, like the logic, there was logic there. <laughs> like parallel made more sense. All the questions do inform each other, mm-hmm. but like I'm going to stop at some point. So I just need to like do something well. Um, and so th- to, to apply this to like other people, um, another version of this is scoping down. Um, so like most people aren't as silly as me and try to do eight projects in parallel, but a lot of people do start with a project that's sort of like as big as what should we do about nuclear risk or something? Or like, what are the strategies people take nuclear risk? Yeah. This is pretty big. If you think you have 12, so there's like people I've talked to recently, you have like 12 weeks to do a project and they want to do a project along the lines of like, what's, what strategies are people considering for nuclear risk? That's, that, that's possibly doable, but there's a good chance that they'll end up with like a half finished thing that was on track to be great but it doesn't get there and they should maybe choose like a narrower less ambitious version it's kind of complicated in many ways i think a lot of people should be way more ambitious and realize like there are these extreme stories going on in the world that almost no one is an active character in and you could like really be a leading player and everything's on fire and like you might be able to help it and step up and stuff and you can get into good things but um but for like research stuff, scoping down seems to usually be good and is, I think, in line with the be ambitious thing because like yeah. this is the path to um, doing great research at some point. Yeah. And you can pick the important thing and then pick a narrow part of it. Yeah. Scoping down doesn't mean doing some random thing because yeah. it's smaller. Because the entire topic itself is smaller, right? Yeah. So you can still aim at something like, yeah. I'm going to work on one of the most important problems in the world, given what other people are working on like one of the most important on the margin. And I'm going to aim my research. Like this research really might flip a $1 million grant decision or, or bigger or whatever. And it might put me on path to be one of the three main people at the intersection of nuclear risk and existential risk. That's all great. Do that. Good ambition. But, but then like the path to that probably involves doing something somewhat narrow, but in the right topic really damn well. I guess I was just repeating mm. you longer. But it, it definitely sounds as well with these like really big kind of like fleshy questions as well, that it's like maybe worth reflecting on like the work that you are doing as an individual versus like the work that like the community as a whole is doing, right? It sounds that like when you were entering like the nuclear risk question, there was already some work that somebody had like done before, right? Like with Louisa having like had a like first kind of go and like having produced resources there. And then if I'm like um, interpreting this correctly, you left as well at some point. And then like presumably somebody else is now like um, taking it over from there and like thinking about like handover uh, and stuff as well. And like this maybe like adds into there of like taking a like narrow piece, but like doing it really well will like make it easier for the next person to build on it. Whether that person is like at the same team um, or whether that person is like at a different organization, but then has access to these like documents and can read them and then like, right, continue to like iterate and like build uh, build on them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, yeah, another way to put something like this, this isn't, a, this yeah, there's like a, a separate tip is like try to make your thing a modular piece of an overall whole that we're going to build together. So try to make your project sort of like a nice brick that is like evenly shaped and it's like clear what shape this brick is. And then other people can lay bricks on top of that. And we can build this house together rather than like it's very unclear what shape this is. It's sort of like a pile of sand or something. So slightly more concretely, it's like... Um, Choosing a scope that makes sense, it's coherent, it fits in, other things can like take the next steps or the previous steps or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you make it really clear what your scope is, what assumptions you're making, what limitations you have, what you're leaving out of scope. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, so, so don't say that you're covering how big a deal is nuclear risk when you're actually assuming three things. Um, instead, say you're covering how big a deal is nuclear risk with these three assumptions and focused on just this one pathway and make that clear. And then someone else can drop one of those assumptions or focus on another pathway or something. And then together, like these five people going for a while add up to this whole thing. 
Yeah. Uh, that's a good way of approach. In my case, I did I did a version of like succession planning or handover planning, which is not the ideal version normally. But like I I got myself into the situation, um, and then what I did is like made I, I like spent I sprint I did it like a couple work sprints to clean up all my crappy notes. So they're intelligible to external people. And so they remove, like I had a lot of conversations with people and like I'd have like hot takes on floors and their reasoning and stuff. So, <laughs> so like cutting some of those things. Um, and, and, then, uh, and then I shared it with some research training programs. And now there is now a suite of people who are like doing projects that are like kind of along the lines of like next steps from mine and can use mine as fuel, which is pretty cool. But that's not, that's not the usual right approach. And out of curiosity, are there concrete questions like additional little bricks that people are adding or can add on nuclear that you want to you want to talk about funny you ask finn <laughs> Isn't it just? yes indeed there is um yeah there, there's a post of mine called something like nuclear risk research ideas summary and list or you something have a great way of naming yay forum posts what do you mean it's just literal? like very right to the point yeah, yeah. I, yeah there was a post recently yeah some of them it's just like what on earth is this three. about yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just want I want people to I want, like yeah there's another research tip that that reminds me of is like yeah just ha have clear titles and have clear summaries because I do not have time to read everything I want you like help me make an informed choice about what to read don't call it like yeah anyway um, so yeah this one has a bunch of ideas one thing I'll flag is like I don't. There are other ideas that I know of that might that that I think are probably slightly more important than the average one in there, but are like non-public, which is like kind of awkward because some things like info hazardous and stuff like that. Um, but I think this is a pretty good set of ideas. Uh, I also would suggest if anyone does want to pick these up, don't just run with one of these. Also, like reach out to people who are actively working in the field, such as well, I, I'm not one of them, but you could reach out to me as well. But also like um, Longview Philanthropy, for example, is now it's like this EA aligned funder that is stepping into the space in a big way. So they would be a key user and a key expert and, and finding out what's useful to them and according to them could be great. And I, I probably didn't, that was another, uh, going back to the mistakes, uh, another one is I probably didn't spend quite enough time checking what's actually useful to people. Uh, and I did a thing of basically like informing my own beliefs on nuclear risk, which is pretty good. It's a pretty good proxy, um, but it's less good than talking a bit. Like I talked to other people who are like interested in the area and know about it, but not many of the people would use my work, uh, which is a little, yeah. So I actually want to talk a bit more maybe about like learning by writing because I actually think it might be fun like digging into that a bit and then I think that maybe gives us a nice segue to like reasoning transparency as well. So maybe one way of like framing this is uh, I guess like as you as you said like Holden has this like piece on learning by writing. I'm curious maybe for like the Michael Ed like take on like learning by writing. Is there like any like um, yeah like frameworks or lessons that you want to like particularly highlight there of like why they're kind of useful? Yeah, one thing I should flag is like yeah, everyone's different. And like, I, I know there's like specific researchers that I know that like a lot of this advice isn't right for, and they should choose like some kind of like really weird nebulous path of like go out to the wilderness for a couple of years, do whatever seems most important to them based on some like really complicated model and then come back and share it. Um, but yeah, m what I'm saying, I think is useful for most people as is learning by writing. Headline thing, read the post, it's good. Read the other post, that's also good. Uh, but also uh, one thing I've like personal experience type thing was like those people I was managing. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. There's this book called managing to change the world. Um, and it's a quite good book on management. I think some of like, it's not very rigorous or something. Some of the ideas are wrong, but like, there's a lot of good lessons in there. Um, it, it's, it's for like management at nonprofits and like leading a team, leading an organization. One of the key principles in there is guide more, do less. And another principle that's either in there or it's in a, um, uh, in, in like a workshop that this company behind the book ran is uh, take early slices. Uh, and I'll explain what both of these mean. Um, guide more, do less is basically like, a, or at least my version of it is um, a pretty common pattern, a pattern I've had is you don't make it super clear what you want someone to do um, 
and then and then they go and do it for a bit and, and you also don't get you don't like check in early you don't give them much feedback along the way they go and do it for a bit and then you check in relatively late and you find out it's like really off track mm-hmm. and then now you're basically like rewriting their work um and this like feels really bad for them um, and like takes a lot of your time and, it, and it's like why why were they doing this and it also doesn't build their skills because like I, I guess they can see the parallel between what they did and your good version. That's kind of like a useful data point. Um, but they didn't like get to like try doing it themselves. So the way this applies to research is um, trying to do things like laying out where you're aiming pretty legibly, pretty early, and then sharing with ideally, hopefully you have a manager um, or a mentor or something or like a range of feedback givers. So for example, um, an outline, like this like learning by writing style outline, you don't even need to have filled it in. You can just be like, uh, here's the question I'm answering. Here's what I currently think is the core argument in like bullet point form uh, that I'm going to flesh out later. And I don't even know if this is true, but this is like the core argument. Uh, here are like the topics I'm going to hit. Here are the, what I think are the core counter arguments. And here are what I think are my core rebuttals. I'm not very confident about any of this, but this is what I'm going to cover. And then you can ask people something like, if I filled this in, would that be useful to you? And also, like, what are your high-level disagreements and stuff? And you can share this, like, pretty early. You, you don't have to have done much reading at all yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so this is kind of implied by learning by writing, but it's like a, like a, it's a thing I want to zoom in on. And, and the reason, this was already salient to me before I read the post, and this is part of why, like, reading the post, I was like, oh, I wish I had read this earlier. Um, there was, like, this time when I was managing someone, and they shared a thing, like, relatively late in the journey, and I just, like, had to rewrite. Well, I felt I had to rewrite a decent amount of it. And this was, like, really on me. Like, this was, like, their, like they joined this, they joined me to learn, uh, and I just hadn't guided them on a bunch of things. And, and one reason is because, and this, so I, I'm sort of most obviously talking to managers here, but this really applies to like managees or like junior people themselves. And I'll like flesh that out. Um, one reason here is managers will have done the thing a whole bunch and they'll have a lot of tacit knowledge about what's good and how to approach it that they probably haven't articulated. Um, and so try to articulate that more. That's part of guide more. Like try to like flesh out all your models. And like, so I, I in, in, there's a bunch of docs I have floating around that people like on like tips for writing well and tips for like research methods and stuff. This all basically originated from like halfway through this project. I was like, oh crap. <laughs> there's like all these things I knew that I didn't tell them. And now I've got to like tell them late and this is on me. Ah. Yeah. Um, so I just started like collecting them. Um, yes, yeah, so there's all this tacit stuff. One way to help with that is like, yeah, articulate the tacit stuff. But often you don't know, like you don't real, like you don't realize how they misunderstand it, or you don't realize there's a thing you never notice you do until like you notice someone not do it. Um, so like getting that early feedback is useful. So what, for the junior person sharing with the the senior person, um, then you can you can have their, their tacit knowledge is activated by seeing what you did wrong or what you were missing, and then they can like uh, communicate it to you in a tailored way. Mm. Yeah, there's maybe um, two other lessons I kind of. I'm like keen to to flesh out a little bit. One is we were talking before about how, you know, there's a difference between like research and this kind of like impact driven research, which in the like direct sense has to do with like whether it like changes the decision or not. And one way that learning by writing can be like really useful is because it like constantly forces you to like think again back to the like ultimate kind of goal or the theory of change of this research, which is like, well, how does it inform like this decision I come on? And you were talking before there, um, yeah, who knows, like 20 minutes ago or something about how it's like very easy in research to kind of get lost, like by the curiosity of it a little bit or like going down like tangents and stuff a, a bit. And I think that like often bringing it back to this like kind of learning by writing, well, how does this actually like change the decision that I'm like ultimately hoping to like inform is like a really good way to like maybe, yeah, like um, stay on there and like really find um, the things that are like most important to that actual decision rather than like always the like 100 tangents uh, yeah. that are like possible. 
Yeah. So, so that, so th- yeah, that's part of what I had in mind when I said like you share the outline with someone, mm. and then they, and then you ask them something like, if I filled this in and it was true, would that matter to you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so this this can be for like opinionated things along the lines of like, what should we do about this? It can also be for informational things. So one of the people I'm managing now is doing a thing that it kind of has bottom lines, but actually this one is mostly like pulling together a bunch of info. Um, and that is sometimes that's fine. Sometimes it's the appropriate thing. But in this case, so when he's sharing with people, uh, it's less like if I convinced you of this, would it change your mind? And it's more like if I informed you on these topics, would that help you make other decisions? And then you might find out before you've looked into any of the topics and before you've checked if the thing's true, you might already be able to find out they're like, no. Um, yeah, <laughs> they're just yeah. like, if, 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 I be, if, if I started to believe, they might be like, I already believe this. Or they might be like, I already know about these topics. So um, uh, like, I think a, a lot of time junior researchers, they don't know about something. And they haven't seen any of the senior people write about that thing because the senior people are busy. So they don't write about everything they know about. But they might mostly be, so they might like look into a broad overview of the topic mm-hmm. and mostly cover stuff that all the people making the decisions already know. That can be good. That can be distillation for other junior people. It can like bring people up to to the level that the senior people are at because senior people don't have time to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like be aware of that. Yes, yeah, so you can send it to people like, would any of this be new to you? Would any of it change your mind on anything yeah, yeah. if I filled this in? Yeah. And then this is like, other lesson uh, I'm like really keen to explore, which is uh, in terms of like finding uh, like cruxes or being able to just like develop like good reasoning like in of itself. Where I think there's this nice thing where like learning by writing encourages you to make like the best case for or the best case against something, and then that forces you to like reflect on like what might change like your actual mind. And I think that then like helps instruct you towards like finding cruxes that would like tangibly change um, your mind, and in doing so like spots the like most like valuable like information that you could like acquire or something there and i think that's like interesting where i think like humans are like often or like at least like looking at myself often like kind of like bad at like reasoning or like often like fall into like motivated reasoning or like confirmation bias um or whatever have you but constructing the best case for and against something is a way to like almost like harness that kind of like bias where like okay i'm just gonna like think of the like best way that i can like um, steel man, uh, a kind of like argument, and then infer from that what kind of assumptions I need to make for like that to hold true, and then I can like, kind of almost red team uh, it again by like doing the like complete opposite and then kind of like iterate between. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. Um, also, yeah, m- more broad, like e- even ignoring the like the bias type thing, I just think it's like super important to not just list twenty factors that might be relevant in a flat way, but like try to like pretty early on like. You'll never be sure which factors are most important, but try to pretty early on be like, okay, I think these are the four important topics. I think four topic, I think topic one's the most important. I think for that one here are the four most important factors. You still list the things that you think are less important, but just like flag them as probably less important and like spend less time looking into them. Because if you look into everything equally early on, um, then you're just not gonna have time for the things that matter most. So like pretty early on become opinionated about which things to zoom in on. But then yeah, also harnessing um, ha- sort of harnessing motivated reasoning to like have a war against yourself that can be useful. I think also like in my, ex- <laughs> I mean, this sounds like the sort of thing a just blindly biased person says, but in my experience, <laughs> like I, I think it's pretty feasible and I think I do it to like just not have a thing I want to confirm about nuclear risk mm-hmm. and just like actually be confused. And I think, I think you can to a decent extent cultivate that mindset. And I think that's a big part of added value. So for like long-termist work in particular, we're working on issues that are mostly about risk and mostly about like the bigger the risk is the worse. Mm. And that means that most of the rest of the world who's working on these issues, who 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 have selected into working on the same issues, think the risks are big. Yeah. And also they want to convince everyone the risks are big and they want to convince everyone to take drastic action. And so you have like a lot of communities that have like quite a bit of alarmism and quite a bit of like taboos of things. That, so for example, in the nuclear risk field, um, I think 
uh, I think it would just be a lot of people would have a really hard time properly engaging with the question. Maybe tactical nukes, tactical nuclear weapons aren't a problem or a net positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying they are net positive or aren't a problem, but I think these people like they haven't like properly looked into it and confirmed it. It's just like it, it like that that pushes against the vibe and the ethos of like advocating for everything to go down and stuff like that for, for all the weapons levels to go down. So, but, but I think you can decently well just like try to try to check what's going on in your head, uh, and I think you can get some mileage out of that and just be like notice notice when you're leaning into certain conclusions a bit more than others and try to continue like balance yourself and just be like like th- th- there's some uh, refrains in the rationalist community that i think are useful one is like that which can be destroyed by the truth should be uh i think that's a good one just like y- you want to believe the correct thing <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool uh i think that's a key way we can add value um yeah since we're talking about uh something like useful concepts for doing research well um there's this idea of reasoning transparency. We've talked about it a little bit in the past, Luca, but I'm wondering if you can give us your impression of what reasoning transparency means. Yeah, so there's this post called Reasoning Transparency um, on the Open Philanthropy blog by Luke Mulhauser. It's really good. Um, one of the core things he mentions is this idea of r- making sure you always start with a summary. And that's that's just very simple. And you can just tick that off. Like if, if you tick that off, you're doing a lot better than a lot of researchers. And and a key thing is also make it actually a summary. So like write a goddamn summary, make it an actual goddamn summary. Uh, and that includes things like actually say what your conclusions are, make that clear, make the key piece of the reasoning clear. Try to make it so that if I only read your summary, I get a decent chunk of the value just from that. Not the whole thing. Uh, And I was resistant to this for like a full year. I I wrote like a lot of EA forum posts and got this feedback so many times. Like actual, like A, write a goddamn summary and B, stop doing overviews where I just say, I will cover X, Y, Z. Like I will discuss these topics. Overview is is better than nothing. It's better than having a vague title and then just launching in and people don't know what you're talking about. Um, But but it's not like... What's the difference between a summary and an overview? So so I I don't know if these are like the correct terms or something, but like what I mean by it is like an overview would be like, this post will discuss X, Y, Z. So it helps me, what it does is it helps me choose whether to read it and it helps me know where this will fit in, in my mental models. And that is, that's useful. That's better than nothing. But a summary would be like, uh, I looked into X, I looked into X in this way, I had this conclusion, here are the three core arguments for that and here are the two core arguments against. Mm-hmm. Um, summaries will you like what I mean by this, <laughs> or like key takeaway sections or executive summaries or whatever, they'll usually be a bit longer than an overview because like you're actually giving the meat of it in a condensed form. Um, and, then, and so then that can look like, oh, you're sort of wasting people's time. But if you can like, the, the two key functions are, your help, three key functions, you're helping people decide whether to read it. There's way too many things to read and you're helping them make an informed decision about like, is this the thing I should invest time in reading the whole thing? Another thing is you're helping people get the value from it without even reading it. Uh, another thing is you're helping people orient to the whole thing. Like you're helping them know where each piece fits in. So it's less like you're just sort of rambling for an hour uh, in, in the in the post or paper or whatever. And it's more like, oh, I, I already know the structure and I know why this person's giving me these five paragraphs. Like I know where this fits into the argument and what, what it's helping with. And then I said three things, four things. Uh, the fourth thing is like super often I know something was useful and I read it a while ago uh, and I made the mistake of not making an Anki card. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I no longer know what it says. Um, and I'm like, I don't want to read another I won't read it again for 40 minutes. The summary is really sure. nice to like go back to it. Um, 
Yeah, so like writing an actual summary that condenses the actual thing. If your actual summary to condense the actual thing gets too long, you can just add like a two-sentence summary at the top as well, like a short summary, longer summary. So that's that's one piece of key reasoning transparency. And there's a way, I guess, of like linking that back to the idea of like transparency in the sense that if you have a lot of like information or takes, but it's like hidden in an 80-page Google Doc or in a bunch of appendices and stuff, that's not very transparent for the reader then, right? To infer like what you're actually thinking, what your cruxes are, or like what the like big like takeaway even is. Yeah. So so yeah, I, I guess I should, like yeah, I, I was wanting to like the tip for achieving reasoning transparency but the key principle is like what do you actually believe and why do you believe it um yeah that's basically it and and that's like one of the key things where we can add value like we being like the ea community relative to places like academia like i think the ea community is like it's it's median intelligence and work ethic and stuff is pretty high but that's not like our key advantage there's like so many super smart people elsewhere but a lot of the time, as I said, they're like covering their ass and they don't, like, they're like hedging and they're like avoiding the bottom lines. And, and yeah, so saying like, what is my actual bottom line on these key questions? What are the key things driving that bottom line? What will change my mind? And, and not, not what is most rigorous. What is the actual source of my belief? So like really people walking around, a lot of things they believe is because someone said it sometime or because of some shaky analogy that they're drawing or because they had three like relevant pieces of anecdata or something. And that is evidence. If that's actually what's driving your belief, A, that might actually be useful info for someone else, like in itself, like that actually is evidence. And B, if that's how shaky your belief is, then I want to know that. That <laughs> It's like, it's doing a service community. So it's not like, don't cover your ass, don't oversell, just say what do you believe, why do you believe it? As if you, like in your brain, if you were asking yourself, what do you believe, why you believe it? And then put it on paper. And summary helps with that because it like lays this out and helps you navigate the rest of it with that in mind. But there's other tips as well. What are, what are some of the other like tips and advice then under this like idea of reasoning transparency? So summaries is one, yeah. what, what else is that? Yeah, so another one is, um, yeah, try, trying to continually make it clear what your key claims are. So don't just like say a lot of, like if, if, if you're thoroughly covering a topic, then it's probably gonna be like 20 pages or something. Mm. It's good that you say the 20 pages of stuff, but make it clear to me which of the, which, which sentences in there are really the key bits. Mm. Like what, what's the most decision relevant pieces? And then what are the key um, reasons for believing that? And you can literally do this by saying like, my key claim is, or like the strongest argument for this is, or I put the most weight on this and the least weight on this, or like this is my rank order of factors or something. Mm. Um, so that's one key thing. Related to that is like this putting numbers on it thing. You don't always have to put numbers on it, but often trying to be like, I consider this factor roughly five times as important as this one, or I think there's a roughly 20% chance of X, mm -hmm. or things like, um, this is my current belief. I think that if I did another thousand hours of research, there's an 80% chance I would still roughly believe this. Yeah. And this is like a way of saying how, like instead of just like, so academics kind of have a like, universally the same hedge or something like however confident again I, <laughs> stereotypically uh, the median ahead, academic in, in my mind um, would yeah like all claims have the word may in them <laughs> like this may cause this uh, and, they, and they would all have the same sort of like but further research is needed um, so like tell me how uncertain you are and one way to do that is like you know, like, is it really likely you would change your belief in another 100 hours of research or is it pretty unlikely? And like, how wildly would it change? Yeah. Things like that. I like this point because I can imagine hearing something you said earlier about the fact that other kind of research communities often hedge. Um, the lesson from that should not be, well, you should be more confident than them, like across the board. The lesson should be, you should just be much more transparent about the things you are confident about and the things you're not confident about, rather than this kind of like blancmange of hedging everything so it's unclear what the most important points are. Yeah. yeah. Well, one way I cash this out in my mind is that like EA research, as we've like talked before, engages with like 
questions that are like way more kind of like uncertain and maybe don't have as good like feedback loops. And I think also EA research is like way quicker than like academic research is in terms of like the hours we maybe like dedicate to uh, like a kind of question. And reasoning transparency is a way to like mitigate the like obvious downsides from that is that at least if you're like really explicit about like how confident you are, where your sources come from, um, what your cruxes and stuff are, at least that like helps other people then point out like errors and like flaws and like iterate on that like work in a way that is like really, really critical for if you want to have like all of the like upsides from dealing with these like un uh, like uncertain research questions uh, in like a really kind of like um, breakneck speed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are both very good points. Like, um, I should have said them earlier. So, like, edit me in earlier, <laughs> pitch your voice to mine. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, th I think, um, yeah, basically what you want is calibrated beliefs and calibrated hedging. And by calibrated, I mean, like, you know roughly how uncertain you are and things like that. So it's not necessarily that you're, like, super likely to be right, but that you're, like, your level of confidence is well calibrated to how confident you should be and how likely it is that you are wrong and how likely it is that you would change your mind. And so have calibrated beliefs and calibrated uncertainties and then tell me your calibrated beliefs and calibrated uncertainties. And those are two separate things, but, like, packaging them well is good. And this also connects into the point of, like, one good thing about academia is it's set up to pit people against each other and pit ideas against each other and see what wins. And this is a lot... We, we, can, we can do the same thing, but in some ways better, we're, we're, we're hampered by having so few people. So a lot of things just don't go uncritiqued. But we can make it easier for like the two people who do come along and critique us to do that by making it super clear what we're saying and why we're saying it. And we like map, out, map this out and like, come at me. Uh, and then they can like, <laughs> yeah. like, like here, I'm, I'm vulnerable. I'm showing my belly. Like I, and if I'm wrong, I want you to change my mind because we're all, yeah, we're not pushing for this theory so we can sell some book or something. Uh, I'm not saying all academics are doing that. <laughs> but we're like rather trying to actually find out what's true as a collective thing so the world gets better. And yeah, putting your beliefs out. Okay, so so one thing is like, you make it easier for people to see how much they should trust you. Another thing is you make it easier for them to critique you. Another thing is, I've said bottom lines a lot. I keep saying bottom lines, um, but the the mod the structure matters too. Like the structure of why you believe it is important because the world changes, and then your bottom line might not transfer. So you, so what I learn from you. I'll be able to generalize better if I know why you believe it. Like, like what is the structure of your beliefs? What are the factors? And that also tells me what mechanisms to intervene on. So if I just tell you there's a 0.5% chance of existential risk from nuclear weapons by 2100, you have no idea what to, like you have a sense of whether to pay attention to nuclear, but you don't know like what to intervene on. But if I tell you like, here are the five pathways I think are most important and like the steps in them and which ones are most important of that, then you're like, oh, okay, I can, I can target this node. Like I, I yeah. can stop this event from happening, this specific thing. And to be clear, by structures, you mean often people will have one or more models that are feeding into some bottom, bottom line single number. And it's really useful to know how sensitive that single number is to um, guesses at other numbers mm -hmm. higher up in that, in that chain. And indeed, less sensitive to things, so you know where to push on, and also where to do more work if you want to yeah. get clearer. Mm. Yeah, I, I I like to think in like flow diagrams, and I think that's mm. like a good thing. So like all, most of these things would be like flow diagrams, and we're like know the structure of the flow diagrams, which nodes are most important. Where do I want to like poke and like make things go better? And I think it is worth emphasizing what uh, you said there, Michael, that like being vulnerable. Uh, is like really hard with research. Like I definitely get this as well, that like reasoning transparency is like not easy because it often means showing to other people some like pretty, right, like egregious like assumptions I'm making that I feel like really silly for or having to admit that like I've only skimmed some work rather than like checking like all of the assumptions and stuff. And I think in like a day-to-day 
way this can like often feel as like me being like lazy or like me um being like stressed about like what other people are going to perceive my research being but again like the maybe bigger framing is that it is like really important to be transparent about these things because it will help make the work better and people pointing out that you are wrong or like building on this is like good for the world yeah. and uh this like vulnerability is like really hard and i definitely get that on, like on an emotional level sometimes um but it's like really important too yeah yeah so one, one example there like so i guess another tip and also an example is like don't just cite a bunch of sources, like don't believe a claim and then find sources and then cite them in like a flat way that doesn't say how important those sources are and whether you've read them and stuff. Instead, like cite the actual sources that are feeding in and say how much you trust them and why and how much you read of them. So own up if you just skimmed it, own up if you just read these couple of pages. Also say reasons you think the source isn't very good yeah. or whatever. Or like also though, like if you think the source is great, like if it's like, I read the full thing, I vetted several claims, they all held up, I've read a bunch of this author's other work and it all seems strong, th then that's also good to know. So basically this means that like, so a, a lot of the time when I read like normal stuff, like uh, including like stuff by EAs, but they haven't learned this stuff yet, um, they just cite a bunch of things and I'm like, well, I don't know if you believe it because of that thing you're citing. And I don't know if I found out this, and I think this source sucks. Um, but I don't know if that matters. Like if I tell you the source sucks, like would it actually change your mind at all? Uh, and that makes a difference to like how I'm going to vet this. So if I'm like vetting someone's research, uh, if they just like cite 50 things and I don't know how important each one was, and I don't know if they already think these things suck, then it's very hard for me to like correct it. Um, yeah. yeah. Another distinction I found really useful is between your independent impressions when you're reading research or doing research. And on the other hand, your all things considered beliefs. What's going on there with that distinction? What does that mean? Yeah. So that, that one's separate from reading transparency, but I guess it's in the general category of sure. like thinking well and writing yeah. well. Um, so yeah, the, these, I did not come up with these terms, but I wrote uh, one of my rare concise posts. So I might be able to say basically the full thing. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. So independent impressions are what you would believe if you didn't account for deference to other people. Mm -hmm. um, so you can learn from other people, like you can learn from the things they pointed out, mm -hmm. the sources they cite, the arguments they raise and stuff, but completely ignore the extent to which you're just like, well, that person's smart and they believe X, so I'm going to put some weight on X. Um, instead, just like whatever you believe just based on sort of the evidence itself, quote unquote. Um, then all things considered is just like you bring back in deference. Uh, so it's like independent impressions is your all things considered belief with one particular node deleted. And the reason to delete that one particular type of evidence is because, well, there's several reasons. Um, one is if as a community, we defer to each other and then we tell each other our beliefs, yeah. we can get what's called information cascades yeah, yeah, yeah. where we all just like, on, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think this, I think this has like happened in some ways. Uh, so for example, both. I don't, I don't know, I don't know how much this has happened, but um, for a long time before the book *The Precipice* came out, there was this survey of existential risk researchers on how likely they believe various existential risks are. Uh, there was like roughly ten of these people, um, and they, I think, all worked at or pretty associated with the Future of Humanity Institute. Um, and then, and then the surveys released. And so these people just would probably like talk to each other a whole bunch. And then the people like update on that and be like, oh, these 10 people all said this or something. And, and then a bunch of other work is produced. And then people will like look at these five different sources of estimates, but, but they might all be informed by each other. So yeah, but anyway, what I recommend doing, it's good that the survey was done. I just think like people should like use it carefully. Um, what I recommend doing is forming both independent impressions and all things considered beliefs, acting mostly based on your all things considered beliefs, but, but being clear what you're communicating. Sometimes you want to communicate one, sometimes you want to communicate the other. So it's totally fine if I tell you my all things considered belief 
and just make it clear that I'm doing some deference. And then you just like know to be careful because you might be updating to the same, you might, you might be already accounting for deference to the same people or it might be slightly deferring to you or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you're actually acting, like, you know, you want to make the bet that's most likely to be right. And other people do contain some info. So based on that. And then the one final point I'll raise is like, one reason independent impressions or like the habit of forming independent impressions is useful is again, this like structure point. Like it's not just about bottom lines. It's about like, what is this belief? What is driving this belief? And what is driving this risk? Or what is driving this intervention? Uh, if I only just listen to like, so if I just listen to Finn saying like, space governance is X amount of important. Um, and, and like, here's the main intervention Then I know I like don't know anything about like how to do something on space governance really. And I don't know how to change my mind when like two years later, a bunch of new research comes out that like flips a lot, like it might flip a lot of the things Finn, that was driving Finn's belief. And I wouldn't know unless I ask him again. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really useful. I'm imagining, for instance, a guess how many jelly beans there are in the jar competition. And if the only thing I wanted was the most accurate guess at the number, then the thing I should do is ask the crowd of people who are guessing independently. Maybe just not even let them communicate with one another. Um, but if I'm in the crowd and I want to get my guess to be best, I kind of want to speak to as many people as possible who are also making guesses. If everyone else is doing that, then there is some risk of a kind of cascade-like thing where one overconfident person just is sure it's like 513 jelly beans and everyone inherits that, that guess. And so you get like a biased overall guess. So depends on what you want, but it's like a really nice distinction. Yeah, it's like somewhat related to the idea, like like at Rethink Priorities, a nice thing we do is like pretty often when we're making an important decision, we uh, use this thing called Rot13, which is like this this website where you just like type in your text and it gives you like a weird garbled version of it. Um, that like you can't immediately read, but you can immediately chuck back into Rot13. And that means that like, like someone notices this question exists and then everyone forms their independent take, writes it out, mm. but but doesn't read each other's yet. So we all get our independent takes. We don't anchor each other, quote unquote. Uh, I, I think anchor, that's a slight distortion of the term anchoring, but yeah, close enough. Um, this is different from independent impressions. It's not quite the same thing because you can, you can form an independent impression after hearing someone's take um, and you can form an independent take yeah, but but like they're like vaguely related. Like some of the benefits are shared. Um, you also can form an all things considered belief while still having like a quote unquote inside view model of like the structure of things. But just like yeah, that's why I said like the habit of things like forming independent impressions seems like spiritually related to this um, inside view model thing. Also on that, there's this great post called something like inside view models and deference or something that like flows through like why goes through why you need this stuff. I want to maybe go back to one reasoning transparency question quick. Yeah, I, I think that's this like important point as well that if you're looking to create impactful research, you want to be making research that provides new information. And that often means like acting on the like frontier of like knowledge. EAs do research on things that are like really like unknown. Therefore, we should expect that like we're going to be like wrong in a bunch of things, especially if you're the first person to be working on this like nuclear like question or AI like sub question or something there. Um, and therefore, um, being transparent about uh, like what your assumptions and stuff are is like really important because you are aware that there's like a high like probability that you're like probably wrong on like something really important and it's then like up to either like future you or to like other people like reading your work and stuff to be able to like interpret that yeah yeah i think that's a good point so yeah one thing i wanted to raise so i think the reasoning transparency stuff connects back somewhat to the thing i said earlier about like making your work a modular piece of an overall community effort yeah. and like making it like a nicely shaped brick that can be built on so um 
yeah, I think in general, we should assume that what we're doing is really hard, both because in general, forming correct beliefs on like big things is hard. And also the thing mentioned earlier about these are often the thing we're most interested in is pretty unprecedented. Yeah. I think unprecedented is not a binary. Like yeah, yeah. A, a, literally, like the next thing I say is unprecedented. But like <laughs> existential risk is more unprecedented. It's like yeah. less like anything we've observed. Uh, and so yeah, it's, what we're doing is really hard. Also, we just have so few people. Like academia has like huge numbers of people working on topics of similar difficulty. Uh, so yeah, we should expect that we're super often wrong. That that does yeah, I think increase the case of reason transparency because we do want other people to be able to poke these holes. And usually we'll get there. Yeah, a, a, a vaguely related point. It's not quite on the same thing, but I like, yeah, want to hammer it home is um, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. So this comes up as well with the quantification thing that we talked about earlier of like a lot of people being resistant to quantification. I think a common thing is like, you just can't put numbers on that. You can't know the number and stuff. And my response there is like, yes, you can put numbers on it. No, you can't know the number. That's fine. Current, like if, if I, yeah, we just want to be a little less stupid. A, a way I put it sometimes, yeah, the sort of like in in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, that kind of thing of just like, we are currently so stupid. Uh, I want us to be a little less stupid as a world and as a community. And I just, that's the bar. Like the bar often is something like just put 10 nuclear risk estimates in one place. And that, that's not the truth, but like that's slightly closer to the truth than if we didn't have that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so it's good for that reason. We want to be this incremental community movement, gradually moving in the right direction. One thing I want to push back on, though, is um, you said something like, because we're advancing the frontiers of knowledge. And I think we're, we're sometimes not. Um, so I think like in general, our research can be doing a few things. We can be like, advancing the frontiers of humanity's knowledge mm. or advancing the frontiers of a given community's knowledge yeah. or bringing more people to the frontier. Sure. And what I mean by that is like, so the, the translational thing we discussed earlier would be an example of advancing the EA community's knowledge where like maybe the rest of the world actually knows some topic, um, but we're just like helping EAs learn that thing yeah, because yeah. like this group of people is kind of na naive. We just need to distill for them. Yeah, I mean, that that's fair pushback. I guess like to the degree that it like, matters to my point for like reason transparency it's that like the individual researcher is like acting on like the frontier of like their knowledge and is like therefore constrained and should therefore like expect that there's like a high probability that what they end up concluding will be wrong and the more constrained they are and like the research that they can like act on or like the less like precedence there is for them to like draw on and stuff yeah i think like the higher maybe it is but yeah like i think, yeah. I think the point is like I yeah I, I, yeah i agree with yeah, both, yeah. both things we're <laughs> on the same page <laughs> yeah but but yeah i do think it's important to remember that like you don't have to advance humanity's knowledge in order to no, do this yeah. good stuff. And that's part of why it can be relatively easy. Uh, like not easy, but relatively easy to do a bit of a less bad job than what already exists. And then also they're like bringing more people to the frontier. So the thing we discussed earlier of like, there might be a thing that the senior people know, but no one's written down. It can still be useful to write that thing down because you bring more people in the community up to the level the community has. And that means more people can be involved in these high stakes decisions or doing research based on that or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that framing. Pineapple. Binoculars. Pineapple again. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've been talking about doing useful research. A continuous question is how to write usefully. Michael, any tips for communicating research in the best possible way? Yeah. So one thing, recurring 
broken record call to action. My post of here are my recommended resources uh, has a link to a doc with my recommended things on that. Um, but again, I will say pieces of this as well, but you can like check very that generous. for the details. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm very giving. Um, so one thing there is, uh, yeah, I want to hit it again, write goddamn summaries, make them actually summaries. <laughs> uh, try to have in mind what the reader wants from your thing, like what's actually useful for them. Uh, again, it's like, rather than covering your ass. This, this sort of connects to reason transparency, this connects to summaries. So for example, I think a lot of, uh, it, it would be very easy to just sort of cover a topic or something and not think about what they need from this, either not saying it at all or not emphasizing it. This connects back to the theory of change type idea. So think, what are the bottom lines that would most flip their mind? What are the key pieces of info that are most useful to them? Um, how can I make sure I've covered these? How can I make sure I've explained them to them in a way that makes sense given what they currently know? And how can I make sure I've emphasized this enough? So they're not just like trawling through. Because once you've, once you've spent a while learning about a topic, you could probably just talk for eight hours, like stream of consciousness, um, unstructured. <laughs> oh, your other nervously. Like, oh, no. <laughs> In theory, one could do such a thing. Um, and, and, and yeah, you could write the same thing. And that would contain a huge amount of nuggets of wisdom, but it's just like too much to wade through and it's hard to process. Uh, and in your mind, it makes, because we don't naturally on our head structure things like a proper document. We structure them like clouds of knowledge and stuff. So trying to like turn it into a nice structured thing with the reader in mind. It's, that's a core underlying principle. And then that like feeds into having summaries. A related idea is something called the curse of knowledge, which is once you know something, it's very hard to sort of intuit uh, how people could be confused. So th I guess this is one of the few things that I got from being a teacher that is still relevant to me now. Uh, it's just like, like you know, I, I know maths and I know psychology and stuff like that. And these people just like super don't. And I can just, I can say the fact I want them to learn in a way that makes sense to me, such that if, if, if you just deleted from my brain this one fact, and then you told me that sentence, it would work for me. Um, but it's like relying on a bunch of background knowledge. It's like a, a bunch of like concepts that are baked in here, a bunch of terms they might not know, a bunch of ways they don't know how to understand it. So yeah, beware of cursive knowledge. A good way around that, and a good way around a lot of writing stuff, is just draft relatively early, and then send it to people. And just get anyone outside of your own brain. Uh, to help you to spot where, where they're confused. And ideally someone who is pretty representative of your target audience. Also, you after a week is is <laughs> somewhat of an approximation of someone outside your brain. And you go through it and you're like, oh, a lot of this is unclear. And I'm like shredging through it. Um, oh, like, yeah, I guess a, a sort of meta point or something is like, yeah, I, I say draft early. Be wary of spending too much time carefully crafting perfect phrasings when you're probably going to massively change your conclusions in a month mm -hmm. uh, and have to rewrite everything. Because that's basically like sunk cost. It's not fully sunk cost because, like it's not fully wasted cost because you, um, you'll get useful feedback. Like ha having written up will mean you'll have a better conclusion because you can get useful feedback, but still it's kind of a waste of time. Mm -hmm. So when I say draft early, I mean something more like a rough and ready bullet point version. Unless you're someone who like good writing flows sure. really easily. Um, concrete examples. It's really good. That's probably something I could have done more in this episode, <laughs> but we, I've tried it here and there. Um, like th th there's a bunch of, yeah, one of the other few things I got from being a teacher and, and like a lot of education research is terrible, but some bits of education research are good. And one like finding that I think is pretty good and just intuitively makes loads of sense is if you have an abstract concept, having a concrete example is useful and especially having multiple that like don't share other variables in common. Uh-huh. 
And what's a concrete example of a concrete example? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh, I should have remembered this. But um, scarcity. Yeah, the example, there's like this blog post from something called The Learning Scientist. I think The Learning Scientist is pretty good if you want to like learn about how to learn and how to teach. Um, it's got like nice digestible resources. This is, this is like one of the resources I liked before I was into effective altruism. One of the few, one of those things I recommend still. <laughs> but I, I imagine it would still hold up if I viewed my new enlightened eyes. Um, so yeah, they, they, the, uh, the example they use is like trying to teach the concept of scarcity and don't just like say the concept of scarcity. Instead, like also use an example where like everyone wants the jelly beans and there's only so many jelly beans. So then like someone can charge more for jelly beans or whatever. And also use an example where like everyone wants to water their lawns at the same time or something. Uh, and, and so therefore the price goes up. If you just use this, <laughs> I probably should have loaded a concrete example to mine, but hopefully that's good <laughs> enough. Um, yeah. If you just use the jelly bean thing, then the students might like really anchor on that and think like scarcity is about food. Mm -hmm. Like it, it only applies when everyone's hungry or something. So try to use concrete examples. Basically, this is a matter of triangulation. Um, you're yeah. trying to like use like a bunch of things. What's the overlap between these yeah. three examples? Yeah. Trying to use things that have as little in common as possible apart from the thing you want to point to. Mm -hmm. And if you use more examples, that helps as well. Like, sorry, that applies especially if you're explaining concepts. It's not always relevant in research writing, but it can be relevant. For example, if you have like a like, you know, a four-part breakdown. So earlier, I did I did this once, um, earlier in this conversation with the like high-level goals for nuclear risk, when I told you like there's this direct path to existential risk and this indirect path. Um, a lot of writing I read sounds like that. It just stops there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I can, I can guess as to the kind of thing you mean, but I'm not sure. And also there's like a lot of different kinds of things you can mean. Um, so I, I want to know at least one example of the kind of thing you mean, like illustrate this category or this type. And so, and so then I gave you the illustrations and they're partial, but they give you a sense of like what level granularity or whatever it is. Mm. So for, another example is like, I think in AI governance, it's really important to have a sort of high level theory of victory, a, uh, a sort of mid-level intermediate goal, like set of intermediate goals and like a low level concrete policies. Mm. Uh, from me just saying that, it's like very unclear what I mean by each of those categories. I think I probably won't bother explaining, <laughs> but just to illustrate that that was unclear. Uh, and if I was like writing this up, I would give you like two examples of each of them and then it would make you a lot easier time generating more examples yourself. Nice. So some of this advice over the last half an hour or so for doing research well and communicating the research well, some of it is just like really easy, useful, quick wins. Like, for instance, writing a summary before the body of the thing you're writing. Some of the advice is difficult, and that explains why not as many people do it as perhaps they should. An example is flagging when you didn't properly read things that you're citing um, or if um, you saw flaws in some of the sources you're citing. I'm interested in any other examples of important skills for impact-driven research that might feel especially aversive or easy to overlook. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I would note is I think a lot of things that seem difficult are probably mostly difficult first. And it's sort of like driving. Like when you first start learning to drive, there's like 30 different things you got to pay attention to at once and it's very difficult. So if, if while you're trying to learn about some topic and trying to write about it clearly and trying to reason about it well and trying to not have motivated reasoning, you're also trying to remember to flag how confident you are in a given source and how important it was, that's really hard. But as you ace each one and as you get feedback, you're, a lot of them, they become fluent. You, you move from, there's this model of like... Uh, unconsciously unskilled where like you're not good at something you don't know it and then like consciously unskilled and then like unconsciously skilled or something i, I probably mangled that a bit <laughs> um, uh yeah so like a lot of it like if it feels hard at first that's because there's like 30 things at once if you keep going you gradually or master each one 
uh, probably, if you get good feedback loops. Uh, and then each one becomes fluent, it'll become second nature. Like nowadays, a lot of this stuff I just do. Uh, and it just comes naturally. And I can, I can, I have all my working memory free to actually like think about the topic. But then your question. Um, so, yeah. So, so some of the things, I don't know if they're like much harder than the things we've talked about, but some of the things that we haven't talked about that might be harder, depends on the person, um, is sort of like maintaining this impact driven prioritization mindset in the face of the whole rest of the world not doing that or something. Uh, and, and like a lot of incentives and fads and taboos and norms. Just in general, if you do something that's different to what everyone around you is doing, it just feels really weird. And at first, you just probably won't do it. And that's part of why the EA community is pretty useful because you can see like, oh, I'm not crazy. Like, f this is different. But for me, I when I first, before I learned about effective altruism, I was already shocked by global poverty and unfairness. And it was like just crazy and sickening and disgusting. And I like planned to be super frugal and live down to basically like the line at which taxes start applying and, and just like live on that budget. And I think I probably could have. I, I don't, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've changed my mindset now. Um, and then just donate all the rest. But I didn't know anyone else who was like that. And there was a decent chance I just wouldn't have followed through. I think I probably would have, but I would have felt super weird about it because yeah. I was like the one crazy guy I knew. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so anyway. Um, so yeah, the prioritization type stuff. Relentlessly focusing on what's most important, being willing to drop a lot of topics, being willing to like not follow the news because like 20 of the topic, like the covers they're covering mostly aren't the most important. And also, you know, a lot of people paying attention. If there was like ways to help with the stuff on the news, decent chance someone would have found it. That's not always true, but yeah. Um, I follow the news a bit, but like not much. Like there's a lot of times when it's like, I don't have an opinion on this latest hot button issue because it's not worth my time to form an opinion on that because I'm focused. Like I have way too much good stuff to do to fill my time. Yeah. And then within each topic, not just focusing on the things that are easiest to learn about, um, not just focusing on the beliefs that are easiest to justify, not just following the thing that is most likely to be exciting to your readers or that like pushes in favor of your thing being important, having this like balanced mindset and just chasing the truth and chasing what's most important for impact. That's one thing. Um, relatedly, the quantification thing, you'll have a lot of people telling you you can't put numbers on it, you're arrogant, et cetera. <laughs> so you got to be like willing to do that and also to do it reasonably. Like you definitely can be stupid with numbers. Um, so like learning that is difficult. Um, and, and there's also like a, a, a thing around like reductionism and analytical thinking. Um, I'm basically a pretty big fan of reductionism and analytical thinking. It's not always perfect. Um, but so, so, so there's certain... Okay, can you explain what you mean by reductionism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean Spoil like... Spoil it down for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... Taking this big system or this like overall observable thingy and trying to think like what are the pieces and what are the drivers and, and like what are the components and what are those components made of and what are those components made of, etc. And trying to bring it down closer to like root level. And, and I see this like related to analytical thinking, which is like separating this like big... Like the world, everything is interconnected. Um, like one, one example is like when I dream, I, my, I, I'm pretty sure this is true. When I dream, it actually changes the orbit of Jupiter because there's like electricity moving in my brain. And there's like a tiny little gravitational pull created by that. Um, and that's like wild and amazing and it's true and everything's connected. But if I want to understand the orbit of Jupiter or my dreams, um, <laughs> either of those are not the most important variable for the other. So like, yes, tuning into this idea with my <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, like it is connected. It is true. Some of this like new agey stuff like has a big kernel of truth but like it's just not the most useful way to think about the topic and instead like break it down like what are the factors relevant what are the drivers of this thing what are the most important drivers and be willing to like box and ignore 
a lot of the other variables that the, 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 they're straggling on. There's like there is this web of connections, but like those one that's that's not where you should be focused. Um, and basically, so I think there's so the 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 overarching thing with um, prioritization, quantification. Uh, impact focus, chasing what's actually true rather than what's most exciting or appealing to your audience, mm. um, reductionism, analytical thinking. All of these things sort of can go, quote unquote, too far or wrong or something. And there's good kernels of truth, the opposite. But the key thing is, I think there's a lot of like things kind of like fads or buzzwords or taboos that push people away from these things. And I don't want you to be pushed away from these things because of fads or buzzwords or taboos. So there is a place for noticing interconnections. There is a place for noticing the intersections of two risks. There is a place for thinking about like unknown unknowns and like we just can't be sure that things would be okay if X happens uh, and for like being wary of numbers and stuff uh, and for systems thinking and all that sort of stuff. But I think a lot of these time, th these are just like a buzzword that stops people actually thinking. And so if someone's like, how big a deal is climate change? How big a deal is nuclear risk? They'll sort of be like, you can't put numbers on it. We can't know. There's unknown unknowns. We just have to like pursue all things at once. If they'd really thought really hard in a balanced, sensible way and somehow actually landed on that conclusion, that would be okay. And I think it's like good that they're looking at intersections of things, but it's kind of like just some sort of like fad or taboo is blocking their thinking. I want you to like actually think, sometimes use systems thinking and notice interconnections, sometimes analytical, mm -hmm. be willing to use whatever's actually effective. Another way of like maybe framing this, at least in the context of like cause prioritization and, you know, like what we should be like focusing on, which is I think like maybe implicit in that like nuclear climate example is whether you're making like apples to like oranges comparisons, right? Because we can, can think of like all the like cascading and like unknown, unknown, uh, like things for like, let's say climate and nuclear, but then we also need to, right? Like surely apply all of that to where for thinking about like economic growth or, um, AI or, uh, yeah, like whatever, like other cause you want to do. And just adding all of these things like on the score of like the cause that you happen to be focusing on, but not doing it for like all the things that you're like choosing not to focus on, then creates maybe like an unfair comparison where I think those arguments are compelling if you can give like maybe a really particular reason of why you think cascading risk on this particular thing is like really important. But then that maybe is then going to what exactly you were saying there of like actually deeply engaging with it. Yeah. And rather than just like saying the word, like unpacking it and making a case for why it's like disproportionately so the case. Yeah, so, so you're saying like, there, there are some of these sort of like buzzwordy things that like have a kernel of truth, but they, they just could be applied everywhere. Yeah, sure. Like I can say like, you know, there's like unknown unknowns. Maybe climate does offer like a direct extinction risk. But I could also say the same is like true of like economic growth in like Nigeria, right? And like if I only consider it on the case of like climate, but not on the case of like this other cause, then that's an unfair comparison, right? That you're like now making like you have to apply to everything. And if you do really strongly think that like cascading risk or like unknown unknowns is like really important in climate. I think you have to make a compelling case why it's like disproportionately the case for this rather than for others. But then that involves deeply engaging with it, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I strongly agree with that. I think like a lot of these things, the, the key thing is not that there's no truth to this sentence or that this word or phrase or concept is never useful. It's like sometimes that word or phrase or concept can be invoked everywhere and it's just not action guided. Right, yeah. So one thing is like, it's hard to put numbers on things, yes, um, but we need to do stuff. We need to decide we are in the world. We are acting, we are moving around. So we need to decide also that, yeah, unknown unknowns, cascading risks that can apply to just a lot of things. And these are useful concepts, but yeah, like actually think, and also notice when, like notice if you're applying them to one thing rather than another, because you already are working on that thing. Uh, and so therefore you like want to like justify that or whatever, or because like, that's what society is telling you. So like if everyone around you has always, so I think climate change is a big deal. I think it's like on the margin, less important to work on than AI, nuclear, and bio, and, and a couple other things. But I think it is a big deal. It's like relative to most of the world problems, it's quite a big deal. Um, also like, yeah, there's a, yeah, I'm talking about on the margin. Like just in, if no one else was working on climate, then it would be like screamingly important. Um, 
But uh, if everyone around you all the time is telling you how important climate change is and it's on the news and all that sort of stuff, then like notice that by default, you're going to be pushed towards that conclusion. Uh, and you're going to like whip out all the arguments that like help you with that and, and try to like notice this internal sense of like, am I actually chasing the truth? Or uh, often that won't like there's this concept of the bias blind spot, which is like if you tell people about various cognitive biases and, and then you like check you, know, you, you put them in a situation where that bias is activated and then you ask them like did it apply for you uh then they say like no it, it didn't like I, I they understand it they like check comprehension but i read this in like 2014 before i really uh, understood the replication crisis so maybe it doesn't hold up but it's probably true um this bias blind spot thing so like often i think asking someone like are you really chasing the truth here um or are you just like going for your preset conclusions often that won't work but i think to be honest for a lot of people listening to this triggering that question probably is helpful like sometimes like like for example there was one time when i was talking to someone who rethink priorities had offered a job to um and they were deciding whether to take this job and and so they had a call with me to like help them decide and during the call i felt a little off and then after the call i reflected and i was like i think i was like biased there i think and this person didn't take the job so like maybe they picked up on that or something but i think i was like just slightly everything i was saying was kind of true but like the set of arguments i was bringing to bear was all like a little skewed towards one side. I was like less ready to notice the other thing. And there was just like some sort of like mental dance going on that just wasn't quite balanced. And I think, yeah, people like listeners to this podcast, it's decent chance, not that you're like bias free and perfect or something, but the like triggering yourself to think about it could be enough sometimes. Um, yeah. It's mm -hmm. helpful. Yeah, I also wonder if, if there is some kind of unfortunate asymmetry between a view which emphasizes, quote unquote, reducing problems to factors and trying to put numbers on things versus the approach which instead emphasizes that things are connected and often it's you know misleading to try to put numbers on so many things which we're so unsure about because in the case where you're putting trying to make estimates come up with mechanisms make forecasts um you're making m more precise guesses which can turn out to be more precisely wrong as contrasted with making more kind of true and cross-cutting claims that are nonetheless kind of vaguely true and won't turn out to be wrong because yeah. because they're kind of vague. And so I guess the more you quote unquote reduce problems, the more surface area you're opening yourself up to to be wrong in a way which is like asymmetric with the other thing. Which is, I don't know how to fix that, but it, yeah. it's, it's just like a problem. I guess, yeah, uh, I felt confused for part of that question because reduce problems, unfortunately, has two meanings. But you, you right, mean, right, right. Sorry. The, the more you like reductionify. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. It's sort of like in science, the like Freud's theories are like, well, arguably Freud's theories or many of them are like not even wrong, quote unquote, which so like they're just, they're, there's, there's no claim that they're making that's precise enough that they can't like wriggle out of it. Um, or if you don't believe that about Freud, you can imagine it's true of other things. Um, and it's like more sort of virtuous, but also just more useful for a scientific theory to make a relatively precise prediction, relatively precise claim that A, would be action guiding because it's precise. <laughs> like like if, if you just say the issue is not that everything's not connected, it is connected. But like I do need to decide right now, do I spend my career on AI or nuclear or climate or the intersection of them? The intersection of them is an option, but it's one of the options that I have to choose between. And there's also, you know, there's a billion intersections I could choose. <laughs> so like, which intersection do I choose? Um, yeah, they're all connected, but like what's action guiding would be a relatively precise claim. And also it's more falsifiable and more learnable from, um, yeah. Yeah, nice. And I, I would also flag, so we talked about that for cause areas, but it's also like for work types and stuff. So th yeah, mm -hmm. just try to notice the things that are driving you to not 
chase the truth. And one thing is kind of like being nice or like avoiding conflict or something. So with cause errors, I think that happens. I think like sometimes it's uh, like it's it's the prioritization mindset requires you sometimes saying something is less important than other things. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of rude. Um, but it, you know, it's probably true. Like it must be. It, they're not all going to be equally important. Um, so uh, yeah, so like try to notice if you're like, pushed a bit towards saying something, something interconnection, something, something systems thinking, because you don't want someone not just to take away from your cause area, but you want everyone to like play nice. You're like, you don't want there to be conflict. You're like, oh, everyone's yelling. I don't want that. Like systems thinking, you're all important. Um, it's like, yeah, yes, yeah. But like, you know, let's focus. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. And again, to be clear, <laughs> to be clear, systems thinking has a place. All of these things have a place. Just don't use them as taboos or buzzwords or something. Like actually think and invoke the concepts when actually thinking. Yeah. Do you maybe want to give a example of where you've seen systems thinking or some of the like terms you've like um, noted there in like a positive way or like you want to like maybe give examples of, yeah, like ways where you do see there being a place? Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a really good question. <laughs> it's good to like poke me on like, hey, can you be virtuous and like acknowledge the other side's strengths? Um, but yeah, for, for sure. So I think one place that's um, so there's uh, the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. Um, a lot of their paper, like Seth Baum, yeah. is either the leader or one of the leaders of it. They have a lot of papers that are about the intersections of things like AI and nuclear or um, bio and AI or something like that. Like various things where like these key variables in the world. How do they interact with each other? Um, and what are the like what are the ways we're trying to reduce one as in like make one of the risks lower uh, rather than decompose? What, what are the ways that trying to make one of the risks lower will be counterproductive for another or have like a bonus benefit for another? Or what are the ways to like use one of them to lower one of the other risks or things like that? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if they're, yeah, I haven't read all the work very closely. I don't know if they're like a sort of paragon of doing this exactly right. Like I think decently often, my take would be their papers are a bit too like laundry listy and in the way that like my early work was as well um and, and like not enough like chase the bottom line quickly it's more like just mapping the landscape and it's like so i think i think it's i think everything in the laundry list it was good that they flag it but there should be like an, another thing where they spend another five hours to like add like which ones are the most important or something um and yeah some of it has a bit of a flavor of like all these things matter a bit but mostly i think that's pretty useful like you know, the, the world isn't just composed of this like AI thing that is in like its own bucket and doesn't touch anything else. Most of these long-term risk things are just powerful technologies or like key components of the world. Like one of the key factors is like the US government uh, which, and the US government like obviously yeah, yeah. connects to a lot of things and like the Chinese government and the EU and, and, and like the academic community or something. So like the key drivers will often be key variables in the world that affect a lot of stuff. Like, it's not that the US government is consciously aware that they're just focused on AI or something. So, like, yeah, it is good to look at the intersections. Just try to do it in a way that really is oriented towards finding what's important, finding what's true, and ultimately prioritizing. Okay. So, um, maybe moving on then, and uh, again, maybe framing this around, like, how listeners can take action and stuff. There's, like, maybe a, uh, like, concrete question here of if I want to be doing impactful research and I now want to like pick the research question or the cause that I want to be working on, what kind of questions should I be asking in order to be doing the like kind of good work that we've been spending the last few hours kind of describing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so so there's two or three main angles I would take on this. One is like cause or topic area, another is type of work and another is type of organization that you work in. So these are like, these are, this isn't the only framing, but this is one framing that's useful, which 
of each of those things should you focus on? Mm. Um, and my like slightly odd hot take is like a kind of inverse hot take is that once you've filtered quite a bit for the sort of thing that are like a, a lot of long-termist people are talking about or the sort of thing that 80,000 hours recommends, mm. within that, the marginal impact of different areas probably doesn't differ hugely as far as we can tell ex ante uh, for the average person. And that those caveats are important. And also that like personal fit and testing fit and building career capital might be more important. So to, to flesh that out, um, I don't just think everything's equally important. Like pet shelters, don't work on pet shelters, please. <laughs> like, like they're slightly useful and it's nice. And like, I'm, I'm sort of like personally glad they exist or whatever, but like don't focus there. Uh, but like once you've narrowed down to something like, uh, like AI, nuclear, bio risk, uh, improving governmental policymaking so that it takes risks into account, working on forecasting methods, cause prioritization research, building the community working on this. A, a set of like 10 things along those lines, there's probably some others, um, once you filter down hard from like the like billion things in the world you could focus on to those 10, I think differences on the margin, it, like impact on the margin of a new person working on these are similar. And I think there's a few things driving that. I'm also not super confident of this. Like one, re a reason this is a hot take is a lot of people tell you like, no, it's AI. Um, or they tell you like, no, it's climate or no, it's bio or something. And I'm sort of like, eh, you know, and this kind of sounds like I'm doing the thing of like, hey, let's all get along. Um, but I think there's some drivers of them that this is making sense. One is, it's really hard to know stuff um, so like probably one of them is way more important like there's a decent chance that just like AI like that if we knew way more we would be confident AI is just going to go well whether we work on it or not um, that, that's pretty plausible but we can't know that um, and also it's like pretty plausible that like you know if we knew more we'd know that like AI is going to kill us all unless we like work extremely hard on it but we can't know that either um, so in reality a, a way more informed observer probably would have much sharper cause prioritization than I do and they would be much more relentlessly focused than I am and, and this is yeah so this is sort of like I'm in between the people who say like we can't know anything it's hard to quantify therefore let's work on whatever uh, I'm in between that and an extremely confident person or something and I'm sort of like we can filter down to these 10 but within those there's not that big a difference um I do still think there's a big difference. So I think like if no one was working on AI, like if no one, sorry, if no one like with this um, strategic sort of backward chaining theory of change mindset, uh, relentlessly focused on doing what's best for the world, not just for them, not just fads, reasoning carefully, forecasting, quantifying. If no one with that kind of mindset was working on either AI or nuclear, I would really want them on AI. I think like AI is a bigger deal on absolute terms. But the community has responded appropriately, not, not not necessarily perfectly, but the EA community has sort of allocated people, like the EA community is paying attention to what's most important on the margin. Mm -hmm. And when there's an imbalance, they somewhat correct it. So this is kind of like the stock markets. Um, if everything was uh, equally, um, like probably some stocks are overpriced or underpriced. And if you knew more, you'd be able to know that, but it's pretty hard to beat the market on any given day. Yeah. Uh, partly because it's hard to know stuff and partly because if you could beat the market, someone else might have done it already. Yeah. We are nowhere near that efficient. We, we are not the same sort of liquid market with something like 7,500 people and uh, like job switching is way harder than selling a stock and buying a new one. You've got to like retrain and stuff like that. But we are a little bit of an efficient market. So if there's a wild imbalance, we'll probably be fixed. Now I talked about that for cause prior, but it also applies for like types of work. So like if there was way more need for operations people than research people or way more need for grant makers than both of those or something, then the community's to some extent going to respond. This is not perfect, but like, yeah, first approximation. So there's one analogy to whatever the equivalent to liquidity is. That's a reason to expect the quote-unquote EA job market to be a little less than perfectly efficient. Any other reasons to expect it to be directionally biased against certain jobs or otherwise inefficient? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I guess you could unpack the liquidity thing. So one is like just the the retraining time required um, means that it is like costly. The the transition cost uh, means that we're it's going to be there's going to be friction in the system, and that will probably usually correct itself eventually. Like if that was the whole thing, then we should expect it to just like slowly adjust. And so you could have sort of like quote unquote arbitrage in time where you like jump on it faster, and it means you like correct it faster, and that makes the world better because like that you're catching the window of opportunity that other people would have missed. Um, but there's another thing which like means that it won't resolve even given time, which is just like some jobs are sort of harder, or it's like harder to find a person for them, or like it's harder for us to find a person for them. So one thing might be like a particular kind of arty person might be harder to find than some types of technical people for our community because of yeah. who we're drawing on. Um, Did you say archy person? Uh, archy, like, like oh, I see, right. artistic or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if I actually buy that example, but like that's that's the sort of sure. thing that plausibly could happen. Um, an example that I do, but so tentatively, or yeah, this is like things I've been thinking about lately. Um, one thing I would guess is more important on the margin. Two things. One is entrepreneurs types, like who will do a really good job aimed at the really good stuff. Um, the A community has a decent number of like really effective doer types and it has a decent number of really effective thinker types. Getting someone who's like enough of both that they'll like do, but it's good. There's <laughs> so, like a lot of doer types who have like a plan where I'm like, oh, please don't. Like, <laughs> or I'm just sort of like, meh, like, okay, whatever. Um, but yeah, having someone who has like a strong, good vision and can execute hugely and can handle the like psychological horror of just doing your own thing. Like for some people it's like thrilling, but for a lot of people it's like a nightmare. Um, those people, I think, are harder to find. And so my guess is on the margin, the entrepreneur types, we, so that's, that's an example of a friction in the system that won't just resolve. Well, maybe it can because we can like work way harder to resolve them. And another example is I think like people who can do China-focused long-termist research really cautiously and mindfully with China language skills. Uh, my guess is that's a pretty rare type of person and we could in theory do with a bunch of them, but there's a lot of types of people who are almost that but make things worse. Yeah. Um, and, and so like that's one where I expect like if you if you are the kind of person who could be that, there's a good chance you should do that. Um, yeah. yeah, but most things I think like you know, we, we can find a decent, um, we, we need more of everything. It's not like I'm saying we can easily get researchers or operations, but it's kind of like balanced or something. Mm. Yeah, maybe unpacking um, what seems like one of the other uh, like important assumptions you made there right at the beginning is like for the average person. So I can imagine uh, that like for like lots of listeners, there might be this like ongoing question of like how much their like background or like existing skill set should like be influencing th this decision. I guess to, like some degrees you've kind of like already addressed this with uh, maybe right like the marginal like impact within this like limited set of things isn't like that different. But can you maybe speak a bit more concretely about how yeah, especially, I guess, like early on in your career where you might not know or might like overthink that like certain like skills and things you have should push you in like one direction, how to, yeah, like navigate like that, that space. Yeah. Okay. So like stepping back briefly, there's like the, um, the thing I've justified so far is that like on the margin, the impact for a person where I don't know anything about the person mm -hmm. is like very roughly equal between various org types, uh, work types and cause areas, not yet yeah, between a filtered set, mm -hmm. um, and to be clear, the filtered set would be something like what you can find a decent number of senior long-termists seeming pretty excited about. Yeah. Uh, which so I'm asking you to defer there, sort of. Mm -hmm. um, but like that's like a proxy or something. Um, the thing I haven't, and then there's an additional claim that I think strengthens this, which is like impact on the margin for the generic person that I don't know anything about isn't the key thing you should think about. It's like you are a specific person and you know yeah. stuff about you. Uh, and like early on, you should be focused a lot on testing fit and building career capital. And then also you should focus on the thing that you're a good fit for. And so then that leads to the question of like passion and backgrounds and stuff like that. And I think the like short version of my answer or the short version of my thoughts on this are like um, passion really matters, but 
don't be overconfident about what you would or wouldn't be passionate about. Like actually try things and check. And also backgrounds are helpful, but people often focus too much on them. And then to like unpack that, um, focusing on the passion thing first. Uh, basically my stats here is just what like 80,000 hours is written about as far as I remember. So just like, yeah, they nailed it. And I just like plus one to them, but I'll say it, um, which is uh, that you want to play the long game. Like you probably most of your impact comes mid or late career. There's just like empirically that tends to happen uh, one reason that might be false is if we have like really short ai timelines or like nuclear war happens pretty soon or something so like you know what's happened with jobs historically in you know doesn't necessarily <laughs> extend into the future for this really big scary reason but generally mid or late career um is where most of your impact happens because for various reasons mm -hmm. and so you want to play for a thing where you can you can rise up the relevant ladder in terms of skills and credentials and promotions and all that uh for it to pay off really big later and that means it's pretty important to find the right track to be on. And it's pretty important to find a track that you'll be happy on and that you'll be like energetically pursuing each day or something. It doesn't mean that like every day you're happy. It doesn't mean that work doesn't feel hard. It doesn't mean you don't get tired. But like you can see yourself doing it for five years and not getting burnt out. Um, but that doesn't mean what you're passionate about right now. You can, you can easily think you'd be passionate about something because you've done some version of it. But after two years, you'd hate it. And you can easily think you wouldn't be passionate about something without having tried it or because you've tried something like it, but not quite right. So one example is like um, talking to people. I think there's like a lot of EAs who think like jobs heavy on talking to people are not going to be good for them because they're like pretty introverted or something. Uh, and I'm one, I'm one example. Uh, which we, we <laughs> At the three hour mark. <laughs> <laughs> That's my point. I, I am like in the wild <laughs> among the normal people. Uh, I, yeah. I'm like fairly introverted and yeah. like pretty socially awkward and stuff like that. And, and so it would be pretty reasonable to think that I shouldn't do a job heavy in talking to people. But if I'm talking to people about something that I think is really important, really interesting, and, and especially like they're kind of part of an intellectual community with me and they like share my goals and like helping them is helping the world. That's like great. I love it. I do loads of it. I go around all over the place. So if, if you've tried something in one environment and you think it doesn't suit you until like, oh, I got to rule this out and, and, and you've tried something in another environment and you think it does suit you, you're like, oh, I'm going to do this for sure. Like, yeah, basically just actually check, like try to empirically test what you would be passionate about and don't rule out. But passion ultimately does matter. Don't do a job you hate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's maybe this like snowballing example I can think of in my mind where, right, like first year of uni, you might be doing like work experience or kind of like you happen to choose the research topic of, let's say, um, I'm trying to think of something. Any topic. You're <laughs> just topic. trying to think of any topic. <laughs> the history of birds. Okay, yeah, the, the history of birds. And then, um, because now, considering like all the research I've done, it seems that I have a comparative advantage in like history of birds. So by the time it comes around to like my second year internship, I will do an internship in the history of birds. And then by the time third year comes around and I need to apply for jobs, clearly my comparative advantage is in history of birds. And then it like keeps on going and going because at every like local time that I like evaluate, um, this seems to be the like thing that I'm like most skilled at. Um, but I guess like the point that you're like making there is like the obvious one of like explore and exploit, right? And like I should be doing a bunch more exploring um, in order to like get information there. Yeah. So, but yeah. So I think that so a lot of people in the EA community are, you know, 24 or something. Yeah. Um, and to them, they've been working on something for a very long time. Uh, <laughs> like it's, you know, their whole adult life. But that's like not very long in the scheme of things. Yeah. Um, uh, so, not assuming that this background is a big cost you paid that makes you a really amazing expert on something and that you couldn't get this on something else. So it might be that you don't, you just don't need a background for some topic. So for example, like a lot of people would think that they can't apply to the team that I'm on because they don't have a background in an area super relevant to AI governance. Sometimes they actually do and they just don't realize it. Like um, 
like uh, law is an area that's relevant. Also, machine learning is an area that's relevant. Also, like cybersecurity, uh, very various things that aren't super obviously relevant that actually do matter. Another thing is you might not need the background. Like we're we're pretty after a type of thinking and a type of goal and a type of uh, writing and things like that. And it matters a bit less your factual knowledge because basically hirers and also when you're making career choices, both as a hiring manager deciding who to hire and when you're choosing what career to do, try to focus your choice on the variables that are pretty hard to change, mm. not the ones that are very flexible. And knowledge is unusually flexible. Like you, you can just like learn new things. Whereas things like the sort of way you think that's like moderately flexible is mm. it's like changeable, but it's hard. And then something like just what you would be passionate about after three months of trying to find a good version of it and trying to get passionate about it. Like if you tried it for three months a, a, in a bunch of ways and you've manipulated all the variables, it might just be that for some reason that's just not for you. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now might be a good time to learn about your own background because I think it embodies some of the things you're talking about. So for instance, uh, what did you what did you study at undergrad? So yeah, I did. Um, I I had a psychology degree, uh -huh. uh, which just doesn't come up in my work, <laughs> like a little uh -huh. bit here. I mean, I've like mentioned a few psychology things, uh, so that's like something it came up in this podcast. Um, but yeah, I had a psychology undergrad, and then I did a like a fourth year in Australia. It's called honors, um, and did a yeah wrote a paper on like cognitive and political psychology. Uh, went pretty well. Then. Was doing stand-up comedy at the time as well. Yeah, um, very and, standard career. Track. Yeah, of course, <laughs> a standard route to national security sure, and yeah. research management. Yeah, the psychology undergrad, uh, some stand-up comedy, some like poetry and short story competitions, yeah. and some music and stuff. Um, then two years as a high school teacher, um, and then just learned about <laughs> effective altruism during this, and was like, oh, okay, no, this makes sense. I'm going to just like pivot hard. And an interesting thing as well, in my opinion, interesting uh, is. That story ends two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like right. <laughs> under three years ago, like my key day-to-day -day concerns were like making sure this particular student in my year seven class doesn't keep swearing while I'm trying to teach basic fraction stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Do you want to call I, them out on the podcast? No, I, 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 the, the first draft of the sentence in my head had their name, and I was like, oh, I don't know, that's probably unethical. I, I, mean, I, I assume they're not in the listening audience. <laughs> but, you won't but, know yeah, until unless you it seems them. better to avoid. Um, but but yeah, also, I mean, another reason to not call out the example was there were many year seven students I wanted to stop swearing <laughs> during me sure. teaching fractions. It would be unfair to single one out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like that, it was recent. Like, like I, I do think my trajectory is notably faster than average. I think it's at least somewhat faster than average, even for like sort of people who are now professionally working in long termism and who've like they have sort of like made it, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. But not way faster. I mean, like arguably, you two have had a faster trajectory, for example, <laughs> which you don't necessarily go into here. But like, yeah, um, yeah, other people have gone faster. Other people have gone like only a little less fast. It, it's like quite. It's not doable for everyone. Again, like. I don't, I sort of want an interesting kind of inspiring message, which isn't, it's going to work out for you. It's rather like, take a bet and see, take a bunch of bets. Yeah. And there's a pretty good chance that one of them is going to work well, out for you. Do you want to talk about some of the bets that you took then? Yeah. Okay. So, well, do you also want, would it, is it useful for me to say how I learned about EA? That's like, I don't know if it's useful, but it's possibly interesting. <laughs> yeah. I guess I don't actually know the answer to the question, so I can't answer that question. But okay. how did you learn about EA? Um, yeah. So there was a few parallel tracks. Um, I, yeah, I, I got horrified by injustice 
and a sense of the world being wrong and like people starving and all that sort of thing. Um, what what did that look like? Was that like seeing like uh, specific case studies? Was it like reading? Was it philosophy or like yeah? Like what what does that actually entail? I think I pro I probably like I was aware that I was pretty privileged and I was pretty happy. Um, and I was aware the rest of it, like, there's a lot of people aren't like that. Yeah. And like, there's like the standard, like world vision ads and charity ads and stuff like yeah. that. And I think like, maybe they just like, I don't think they like emotionally, I, I know there's at least one, per they emotionally impacted me in some ways. Sometimes I think like, usually my emotions are pretty flat and I'm just like cognitively aware everything's horrible, but like every so often the emotions activate and like remind me or something. Yeah. Um, but mostly it was just like, I think noticing I could do something like I think a lot of people like see it, it's awful, then they donate the two dollars to World Vision or they do a 40 hour famine or something like that. Yeah. And I'm sort of like, no, I mean I'll 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 be alive till I'm 80 or something. I'll be working for 60 of those years. I could probably make a good income. Mm. I can like make a big difference. And I like should. And I like decided I'm gonna like do this earning to give thing, which I hadn't heard of, but I was like gonna live down to twenty thousand Australian dollars per year, like live on that money, donate the other like eighty thousand or something. Mm. Um yeah, so and then I learned about things like give well, giving what we can, um, Peter Singer, famine affluence, morality, yeah. the drowning child, et cetera, utilitarianism. Uh, also in parallel, like, yeah, another parallel stream was, but didn't learn about effective altruism because it was like 2010 or something. Yeah. So I think the term didn't quite exist. I think it was like slightly too early. I read all the About Us pages of the websites just before. I think the first time I saw like effective altruism using evidence and reason to the most good possible, would have, I would have been in, but they didn't quite have the slogan yet, yeah. which is really annoying. <laughs> uh, so, so then I wondered about did psychology and stand-up. Um, there's definitely areas where psychology is useful for. I get mm, meandering, but backgrounds, like you also can have a background that is relevant to important work, but it's still not the one you should use. So mm -hmm. there are jobs that use psychology that are really important, mm -hmm. but, but there's, there's a lot of variables about me. And the thing I studied in undergrad is not the only variable. There's many. And in my case, in particular, research management. There's a bunch of things that mean I'm best for research management. And one of the best places to do that is on AI governance, because that's one of the areas we need a lot of people in, yeah. rather than one of the areas that's like really important for a few people. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah. I learned a bit about AI, like TED Talks of Nick Bostrom and stuff like that. Mm. And then eventually when I was a first year teacher, these are all like lingering in the background as interests of mine. When I was a first year teacher, I realized I actually finally do have money to give. And also, I'm no longer sure that teaching is a super socially impactful thing. Because mm. a lot of the time I'm just sort of like helping my students get up the exam leaderboards based on chasing various proxies. Yeah. Rather than like really build, and also like the evidence on critical thinking training is relatively weak. I imagine there are ways to do really good critical thinking training, but like a lot of the methods that have been tried just don't empirically seem to work very well. Yeah, yeah. And that was like one of the things I was like banking on that was like, I was like excited about teaching for. So I was, I was sort of like feeling down on my main career and I was also like, oh, I have money in the bank. I can like make myself feel better if I start donating. So I like dive deep uh, into like give well stuff and also tried to read what 80,000 hours like said about teaching. Yeah, they were like, yeah. nah. <laughs> I was like, oh, you, this sounds kind of wrong. Like your conclusion seems kind of wrong to me, but you do seem smart. So I'm gonna like read your like methodology page and uh -huh. like go deep and then they convince me. Yeah. Uh -huh. Finn here. Michael realized after the recording that he may have oversimplified both his and 80,000 hours uh, perspectives on teaching in this section. So 80,000 hours does not in fact just say nah, uh, but rather, uh, quote, not usually recommended, unquote. And their page on teaching agrees with some arguments for teaching being valuable, but it highlights that some other things seem substantially more valuable, especially on the margin, given how many altruistically motivated people go into teaching anyway. And we'll link to that page in the show notes and on the website. Okay, back to the conversation. And then, yeah, in terms of like the bets I took. So the bets I took 
I learned about Effective Altruism in late 2018. The bets I took started in 2019. Um, my second year of teaching, I knew I had to teach until the end of the second year, roughly, because I I sort of like committed to a two-year program. I could have pulled out, but it would have been a pretty extreme move. Um, or like relative to what I was like socially okay with then, because I was like pretty new to it and I was like swimming in my normal environment. Yeah. Um, it would it felt like an extreme move, but really wouldn't have been. Um yeah, so I applied for like 20 jobs or something of like a super wide range and willing to not not screen myself out based on at first glance being the role seeming to not make sense mm. and the two that I ultimately got I think I probably mentioned sometime a, a billion years of the podcast ago uh, about <laughs> how like the, the two offers I got were um they didn't they they were the things I specifically would have expected I didn't get or maybe I mentioned uh, this to someone yesterday yeah. um you did mention it earlier today. okay cool because <laughs> <laughs> I, I did it I, I talked about very similar things on Thursday at a talk so there's like vague <laughs> deja vu yeah. Um, yeah the two positions I ended up being offered one was an operations role at an effective altruism organization mm-hmm. um and that like I just I seemed like obviously I should be a researchery type person yeah and so operations was really a punt mm-hmm. and ultimately I did go down a researchery route. And I think it makes sense I went down a researchery route. But I also actually do a moderate amount of operations. So I'm now like a research manager and I'm sort of like co-leading a team and helping with a lot of department-wide stuff. For example, I project managed a really big hiring round with eight people we ended up hiring. So there's a lot of operations-y things. I've like helped design a lot of the onboarding processes. So being willing to take a punt at this like quite weird path Mm -hmm. and then learning that I actually got an offer and I would have accepted it if I didn't get the other offer. Like it turned out once it was on the table, I was like, actually, no, this, this is... This is something that I should do if my alternative is like staying as a teacher. Um, and I, if, if at the beginning I was just deciding, I would have put less than 50% chance that I would accept if offered at the beginning. Um, but once I thought about it more, I decided I would accept. Uh, so it was useful to get that evidence. It was useful to have the option on the table and expectation. Uh, and it was useful to get the evidence that has informed my later career stuff of trying to find an intersection between research and like operations and building systems and things like that. And then the other thing I got offered was advertised as basically a maths and computer science research and writing role, which is like okay. you you two will be aware that that is not me. <laughs> <laughs> like like psychology undergrad. Uh, uh, like I, I can think decently quantitatively. I can like factorize things and like think crisply in, in a way that's somewhat associated with technical people. But I'm definitely not myself very much a technical person. I did not have a math background or computer science background. But I just, again, took a punt. Um, was this at an... Yay. Yeah. Aligned. Okay. So this right. was at an organization called Convergence Analysis. Um, and I took a, there was like a smaller punt that I took first, which was um, there's these effective altruism global conferences, uh, and there isn't an effective altruism global in Australia. I was living in Australia at the time. There is an EAGX in Australia, which is like a smaller one like TEDx. Uh, and I asked the local group organizer, I was, I was like really committed to doing EA stuff, but I was still pretty used to normal world things and like trying to be really frugal and not making big crazy moves and stuff. And everyone around me was like doing normal stuff. And I asked this group organizer, like, could it make sense to fly all the way to London for like two days? Because I was, I was a teacher, I was, so I, I like couldn't take much time off. And yeah, I was in a very intense teaching program. So I would have flied just for basically the two days and had like a jet-lagged, crazy conference experience. This is for the EAG in London? EAG in London, yep. um, 2019. W- would it make sense for me to go all the way to Sydney to do the EAGX? Would it make sense for me to go all the way to London? Surely it wouldn't make sense. Which one should I do? I didn't even I didn't even ask should I do both. And this person was like, yes, probably actually both make sense even though they're big and probably actually do both. And they were like really right to do that. And then at, so and I didn't know what my plan was there. So this is an example of like forward chaining rather than backward chaining. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I explained forward chaining or backward no, chaining. No, I don't, but I don't the, think you have. So this is like connected to the theory of change thing. Um, 
<laughs> so so this this links back to one of the many earlier threads. Um, backward chaining is like thinking about where you ultimately want the world to be. Oh, I think I did explain I think them you in did all the explain terms. This. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's think about where you want it to be and like working backwards to what you can do now. Forward chaining is like what are the opportunities available to me now and what can I do? So I'm pretty. I think the world as a whole should do more backward chaining, but sometimes forward chaining is pretty good. And at this one, I was like, I don't really know what going to London will result in. But I can like sketch out 20 things it might result in that seem good. And there might be a bunch of other things like that. And one of the, th yeah, and what happened is on the conference app, this job was advertised and it wasn't advertised very widely and it wasn't on an 8K job board, but it was on this conference app. And so like the key thing from going to the conference was like having access to this conference app and applying for this crazy job that did not make sense to me. <laughs> it like did not fit me. Um, and just like taking a punt on it and then ended up like, I did well in the work test and they were kind of confused or something, but they were like, okay, I guess we can like try to mold the role around you. Mm. It does seem like it makes sense for you to get it, even though this isn't really what the job's meant to be or something. <laughs> and then I, and then that was my first like EA researchy job. And that was like a really important stepping stone for me. Um, Wait, this, this was the convergence job? Yeah, convergence okay. analysis. So right. it's, it's a long-termist strategy organization. Uh, it was just the two co-founders and I was their first employee. So it was like, it was like a unknown. So I quit a permanent, teaching I, I got a permanent teaching job offer and permanency is like properly permanency in teaching yeah. like the unions yeah, are pretty yeah, strong yeah. in australia <laughs> and okay. so yeah i like quit that thing uh two years into my career i got offered permanency quit that just before getting an offer as well mm. i actually hadn't gotten an offer yet but i did i'd been forecasting each of my job like whether i would get to the next stage of each of my job opportunities um, and I've been doing that for a while and I knew I was like relatively calibrated. Uh, and I now had like five things in the pipeline that were decently far along. And I was like, oh, there's like only like a 3% chance I don't get anything or something like that. I'm going to quit teaching. Uh, and worst case, I have some savings. I can like apply for things for another three months. And so then, yeah, I took a job at an organization with like just two co-founders that required me to go fly to England for a one month work trial, not yet fully like hired uh -huh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> thing and taking this punt and seeing what happens. And I'm like really glad I did. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm not saying everyone should do that. Nowadays, the community is better. There's, there's way better pipelines in. I had to like randomly scrabble together to find something. Now there's these like Serian, the Sanford Central Risk Institute initiative, the Cambridge one. These just didn't exist. There wasn't courses like the AGI Safety Fundamentals course. There wasn't as much of the grant opportunities and stuff. Right. Don't do what I did. But like maybe do have the level of like willingness to take bets. Yes, as a kind of existence proof for how yeah. this stuff can pan out. <laughs> yeah. very Nowadays, there's much more of a safety net for people, I think, and much better yeah. ways in. But but do have the mindset of like don't rule things out early. Do have the mindset of being willing to consider big moves. Still consider your own like you know health and well being and stuff. But like notice like maybe I have like four layers of safety nets, and so if this bet doesn't go well, that's still actually okay. Yeah, and even if I guess the. Um... There are more safety nets. There are more kind of obvious opportunities for fellowships and so on. It still requires a certain amount of proactivity on the part of people applying. You can't just you know put open for work on your LinkedIn and hope hope that you get an email two weeks later. Um, and there are various levels of being proactive, but um, very rarely there are costs to like being more proactive than you might by default be. Yeah, I think you. Yeah, I still think nowadays you still should apply for like as many things I applied for, but they'll just be like probably like better, safer things and like easier to like maybe get funding for your phase of applying and stuff mm. rather than having to squeeze it in the. Not 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 that everyone should get that, but like in some cases you you need to, and then they and then you maybe can. Um, and yeah, in terms of like eighty thousand hours, again, big fan. Uh, <laughs> they, they have like this idea along the lines of, um, like, cut off downside risk. 
and then be ambitious or something. Yeah. So like make sure that you'd be safe if things go wrong. Like you're not going to break things. You're not going to make the world worse. And also like you're going to be okay. Like you have a financial safety net or something. Uh, but then once you've done that, then like go hard and like dream big and like take yeah, big yeah. shots and be willing to take big risks. If the if, if the worst case is just like kind of flat rather than like yeah. bad. Yeah. The other Michael Ed origin story I want to get into is your relationship with the EA Forum. I'm just going to leave it like vague that? as that. <laughs> yeah, I guess like um, maybe for context for listeners is you post a lot on the EA Forum. Uh, I'm curious like how you discovered that, why you seem to have like gelled with it so well and like any advice you would give like other people um, in terms of like putting your like work either out there, um, writing on things. Um, yeah, go off. <laughs> <laughs> go off, kid. <laughs> so um, yeah, but the... On a practical level, the origin story is I was in Australia um, <laughs> and specifically Perth, Western Australia, which by some metrics like is actually the most isolated city in the world. Like there are reasonable metrics by which this is true. Um, and it, there's not much of an EA community there. There was sort of like four active people, including me or something. There's like other people like less active. Maybe it's different now. Um, so I didn't have much opportunities to just like, you know, be talent scouted by just like saying intelligent things to people or something. Mm. I like had to like find my way in virtually or whatever. Um, and I was also coming from like a wacky background for what I wanted to do, like like psychology and stand up and stuff. I had just said like, yeah, I couldn't just like have a good CV and have great grades in the relevant thing or just like have think tech. A lot of people luckily come in, a lot of people luckily have a relevant background or they learn about EA earlier in their journeys than I did. And then they like build themselves a relevant background. But I was like, no, I want to take a sharp left turn and get there fast. And I've just, I'm like, I think I am smart and good at this. Yeah, yeah. I've got to like visibly show that. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and then also convergence analysis wanted its like primary, it wanted to be churning out posts fairly, fairly quickly. So the sort of model there was the founder or one of the co-founders had like a bunch of ideas, but wanted someone to help write them, basically. Mm. And then also, like in practice, it ended up being, as I said, like the role was somewhat molded around me. I ended up doing a lot of my own ideas and a lot of things that were kind of in between. But yeah, that was part of the idea. So they wanted to churn out a lot of stuff. They wanted to churn out to the EA forum with an EA target audience in mind, not aiming for like advocacy or look incredible to like most of the world or something. Yeah. And there's a place for that, but that wasn't what they were doing. So... That started me thinking, I, I have lots of post ideas, I want to write lots of posts, I've got to do it for convergence, and then it just sort of went well. And also, yeah, another thing is just, I, I like attention, um, <laughs> and I like positive feedback and stuff. Uh, yeah, that's like, you know, I'm enjoying the podcast for that reason, people are looking at me. I know there'll be other people listening digitally at some point. Um, well, we come from it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm confident, I'm calibrated. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and I did like stand up, and part of why I was a teacher was also like you know captive audience. <laughs> you can like say Tough the little girl, jokes. Girl, it's yeah. not that hard to be the funny teacher. That's another perk. Like when you stand up, uh, it's hard to be the funny stand up. It's not that hard to be the yeah. funny teacher. Yeah. Um, so the I just sort of channeled my sort of social media addiction tendencies. That that type of driver. I just like tried to find a community and an outlet where that would mean day to day, I'm like kind of addicted, but in a useful way mm -hmm. <laughs> and continually feeling like I need to write more and stuff like that. And you were big into Wikipedia before that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think like in general, I just, I, um, I like writing. I like ideas. I like visibly having done things. I like scores. Mm -hmm. So like Wikipedia, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Wikipedia, you like see how many edits you've got. And there's also like some things like they're called barn stars and like other, the Wikipedia editing community is really weird. <laughs> it's quite funny and it's overall mostly nice. And like sometimes a random person sees that you like fixed a bunch of commas or something and then like, 
pops a barn star on your talk page, and like almost no one in the world knows this happened, but I got this barn star. Is Wikipedia editing still potentially a very valuable use of um, someone's time? Well, when I was doing it, it wasn't because it was a valuable use of my uh-huh. time. I was doing it before I got into factual altruism. There was like a tr- there was a, there was a handover. There was like a transitional phase where I was still doing some of it, but talking better. When I originally started doing it, it was just like I w- I'm just like. I liked reading stuff, and whenever I see a misplaced comma, I want to fix it. So, like, okay. I think <laughs> is like picking topics you think are important and improving the Wikipedia pages, for instance. Yeah, I think it's not very useful, but like sometimes, um, like one thing that's relatively easy is if you're if you're th- th- there's a good post by Darius Meissner on this. So, like, if people are pretty interested, I would like encourage you to read that. I seem to recall it has a good summary. Hopefully. Um, uh, yeah, but basically, I think like if you're learning about something anyway via Wikipedia, there's a decent chance that it's worthwhile if you edit it. Uh, it's also possible that if you've like tried, if you tried to test your fit in a bunch of other ways and they aren't working out yet or something, and you're really the sort of person who enjoys Wikipedia editing, then maybe you should like, you know, actively pursue it as a way of like improving humanity's knowledge on some topic. Um, but mostly, I don't think it's the best use for most people. Mm-hmm. There is a personal anecdote I remember you telling about Wikipedia and like music industry. I can't remember the singer, but I, I'd be like keen to, I think that's great content, but like you're obviously like welcome to, to skip <laughs> yeah, that. No, yeah. I, I was going to say it until Finn cut me off to be more focused. But, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so I guess we have a conflict, conflict of visions. Um, yeah, like a, a lot of, I think, I can't remember, there's like a way on Wikipedia you can see which pages you edited most. And a lot of them are like pink. Or for me, <laughs> like the singer Pink. <laughs> oh, I see. Um, or the band Cute is what we aim for, which I'm not. I'm not even that big a fan of Pink. Or, or also Bruno Mars is like songwriting collective, not Bruno Mars himself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't impact focused. It was like I, I don't know. I don't even know what. I'm just like a pretty systematizing mindset. It's like good that EA captured me and like pointed me in the right direction because I was doing like random stuff, but like really intensely, like very yeah, focused and moving productive. very fast. Yeah, in random directions. and not negative directions. We're only just in like motion. Weird yeah. stuff. Yeah. Was that the idea? But EA Pink? Forum, ha- yeah, has karma. So it's the same sort of. Th- there's this, there's the points you get, and at, at like 7 a.m. each morning, you can like see how many you got. And I was like pretty addicted to that. It got a bit too. It was useful fuel for a bit, and then it got too much. Um, and I had to like reorient my approach to it. But I, I would nowadays, I think it's like it's less important nowadays. There's um, a bunch of other ways to get in apart from like independent writing on the forum. But it's sometimes a good way in, sometimes a good way to like be sort of spotted or whatever, or like make connections or like have people know that you've done interesting thinking on topics so they can reach out to you if they want help on something. Yeah. And also it um, a key thing I believe is if you're writing stuff anyway, and it's relevant to effective altruism, and it's not bad to publish either in general or on the forum for like information hazards or public relations type reasons, then you really likely should take the tiny effort required yeah, to yeah. put it on the forum or to take a, take a moderate effort to write a version for the forum. So if you've written a paper for a, a journal, make a version that's more focused on just what matters most and is like more accessible. Sure. Mm. I, um, for what it's worth, in my own experience, I remember coming out of university being really excited about figuring out ways to get involved with this effective altruism stuff, not really knowing anything about anything. And so I had some kind of pandemic free time and um, 
you know, used it to, for instance, write a couple of book summaries of EA books, which hadn't been summarized yet, or just like write up some thoughts on a topic, which I hadn't really seen anyone write about. And it just seemed useful in like, it kind of just, it seemed overdetermined that it was useful because it helped motivate me to actually read these books and digest them. Um, I got feedback when I posted them on the forum from what I missed or what was good. Also now these artifacts exist, which are useful for other people. Also now the artifacts exist, which are useful for me in the sense that it helps me kind of, um, you know, signal that I was like interested in this stuff. So yeah, if you have the free time and there's no other kind of more salient options, just like writing summaries of things and putting them on the forum seems like a really good thing to do. Yeah, I've, I've got a I've got a fairly bland post called reasons for and against posting on the EA forum or something like that. <laughs> nice. um, so you can, I think it's got a summary. It's pretty boring, but like feel free to read it if readers are interested uh, or listeners. Um, but yeah, but I think it's often a good move. I think... I do think there's some like issues or like like some of the benefits are smaller than you might expect. So I think like the feedback benefit I think is actually pretty small in my experience and in particular way smaller than if you send something to people as a doc, mm-hmm. like as a Google doc. You can't do both. Yeah, so uh, th- but that's the key thing. I think like the, the key, it's like similar to the applying for jobs and applying for grants thing. A lot of these is like, you don't need to decide is this like amazing. It's like, if it's really cheap, maybe just do it. So if you've written something anyway, if you think about something anyway, then write something up. And then yeah, I think for me, the biggest benefits were probably pushing me to formulate my thoughts and keep me accountable and stuff. Uh, and then also like maybe writing for the forum and getting that public attention, which feels pretty nice. Uh, you know, in the process, I have a Google doc and then I can send that to people and get actually the, like the lots of feedback and stuff like that. And th- there are there are also like putting it on the forum does have some distinct benefits, like literally the fact it's on the forum, not just the accountability type thing. Like there was a a relatively important report that was going to inform uh, EA organizations relatively major actions mm-hmm. that I was asked to give a bunch of feedback on because I'd written on the topic and there was like only four people who'd written on the topic. Mm-hmm. And so like, because it was like public knowledge that I'd done that, I was able to have this other bit of impact, like pretty early when like my other options for impact weren't that big. And I could like spend like four hours, like giving detailed feedback on this thing. So it like makes you, it, it like pokes your head up and makes you known as a useful person. Mm-hmm. Also, like I can look back at my posts, like earlier today um i like stumbled upon one of my posts and that informed something i said here because i like forgot th- uh this model i had uh a while ago nice. yeah yeah i mean just to like quickly add i think um Aaron Gertler had this like really good line of um if you consider how many hours you spend like producing information or producing research and stuff it would be like insane not to spend an hour like strategically thinking about disseminating it like you're so close to the finish line there right um and like just yeah taking an hour either sharing the doc or posting it um wherever like it's really like low-hanging fruit i say this as somebody who has not posted on the EA forum at all um, <laughs> i think outside of like podcast posts like no um i do the like sharing google docs thing but i haven't yet posted Speaking of low-hanging fruit, speaking of quick wins, Michael, I'm curious if you have any other examples of just short time commitment things which can be incredibly useful for yourself or just for the world. Uh, In the mold of quickly posting things on the forum, which you've already written. Yeah, so I will answer this question, but okay. I, I will note for the listening public uh, that, that Fit Finn made a list of things I do that are useful. So I'm not bragging here. <laughs> I, I am, uh, you know, like, I'm just facilitating yes. his wishes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I do think I do a bunch of this. One thing I'll flag up front is, like, it's not, I think I'm unusually good at this, which makes it, like, not obvious other people should do it, even if I should do it. I think it's also not super obvious I should do it. Uh, there's like a yeah but but overall I do think I should do it and I think some other people should do it the sort of thing I do are things like collections uh, is one simple thing like if I 
like, often what this emerges is like I'm I'm this is me locally optimizing a lot of the time. This is me forward chaining. I like notice something that will be helpful for me or for a person one person I'm talking to. Like uh what one example was someone wanted I met someone in an EA conference and they had a history type background and wanted to do effective altruism cause prioritization research. Mm-hmm. And so I made that that seemed interesting. I was like, oh, what could I what would be interesting history topics? And so I made like a really minimum viable product list of history things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seemed kind of cool and maybe useful for other people. So I turned it into a what's called a short form on the A forum, where it's like basically just allowed to be crap. <laughs> and so it's like a low, lower bar. Uh, so I put it on a short form and some people found that helpful. So then I turned it into a post. And at each stage, I put slightly more time, but at each stage, it was like a couple hours or something. Uh, and I think like, yeah, the, I think in total, I spent something like three hours on this post that's called uh, some history topics that might be very valuable or something. And then that got, I don't know if it's led to things happening in the world, uh, but it had like good reception. It has like a bunch of karma and 80,000 hours like linked to it and like drew on some of its things in like a list they made of questions that got a lot of attention. So that, that like, this is me like making minimum viable products, scaling up iteratively, responding to like known market needs. Mm-hmm. And one thing is if, if I or someone else I'm talking to would find something useful, then there's a decent chance someone else would too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the more people I observe would find it useful, the more I invest time. And you can like gradually scale these things up. So I have a lot of things that have gone through this pipeline of like, I made it just for me or for someone else in like somewhere between five and two hours or five, five minutes and two hours. Um, uh, and then like as more and more people find it useful or just like, I, I guess uh, a long time ago, something along the lines of like, getting input from yourself a week later and seeing if you still believe something or something's still clear to you in a similar way. Like if a month later I'm like, oh, this is useful to me again. Mm-hmm. Or I'm still like, this still seems useful to me. I'm not just excited right now because yeah. sometimes I can get overexcited about something. Um, then that's signal to go in hard on it. And a, a related principle I read in some book on management was the idea of say it twice, write it down, mm-hmm. which is like if in your organization someone asked the same question, like in total, the same question is asked twice then write it down somewhere and put it somewhere where people can find it. Not not so they can, like, maybe they'll ask you again, but you won't have to write it again. You can just link them to the thing. So now a lot of a lot of my, not a lot of my time, but like maybe on average multiple times a day, I send someone a set of thoughts I've already collected earlier. Mm. And that means I don't have to write it out again. <laughs> um, yeah, there's only one example though. That's a pretty good example. <laughs> and I like the fact that it's good. It's just like a public good. Other people can now read these lists and do useful things with them. Also, it's just useful for you if you're going to repeat the same information yeah. that it in fact saves you time to have this list which you can refer back to. So I like that. And that was a good example. It is, it is much faster. Like uh, uh, I, I often have like a lot, a lot of people want career advice in effective altruism. A lot of people want like help with various things. And I just do not have time to write the same things many, many times. Mm-hmm. But I do have time to like send the same link. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, I can like, and then gradually, so like in more than a year ago, I wrote a post that was like my attempt like after various conversations, I kept making Google Docs for each conversation. And then I decided to like make one like master Google Doc that had the things I most often mention. And then that turned into a post. And then that was, that was a post that I linked to a lot of people to for a long time. And then that turned into Rethink Priorities like rejection email for candidates. Uh, so like, like it kind of got adapted to that. So they go like, hey, we've rejected you. But like if you're interested in these roles, here are all the ways in uh, to like help them out. Because we do like believe in their potential and like we want to help them and all that. Um, and then that eventually turned into a new post I have because like just as I have more and more conversations, I'm getting a clearer sense of like what people need and I'm creating nice. more resources as I go. Cool. Um, do you want to take this opportunity to talk about Rethink? Well, essentially, um, one question, for instance, is what does Rethink do? What is it aiming to do? 
Yeah, nice segue from like Thank Rethink you. rejects people. <laughs> so like maybe you should apply. Why might you consider being rejected from Rethink as well? <laughs> but it is it's a really good rejection email. We've got a lot of positive uh, feedback. So you would, you know, yeah. you'd be excited to get it. Yeah, it's win-win. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Rethink Priorities, are, and again, I'm not speaking for Rethink Priorities. I just like work there, so I have a lot of examples. Um, they, we, whatever, are um, a EA-aligned think tank, basically. So we are like pretty explicitly effective altruist. We totally can hire people from outside the community, and we're like excited to do so because almost all the world is outside the community mm-hmm. and includes many smart people. Um, but like our like priorities and vision and the causes we work on and the angles we take are yeah f- driven explicitly by these principles. Doesn't mean we always agree with like quote unquote EA orthodoxy, but like EA orthodoxy doesn't agree with itself. So like yeah, um, yeah, and we yeah, and we will describe ourselves generally as a think tank. Uh, it's also reasonable to describe decent chunks of us as a consultancy. Um, and what we mean by both of those is we re- relatively rarely do quite foundational sort of curiosity driven or like non theory of changey work. We do do some st- strategic level stuff. We do some abstract things, philosophy things. Uh, things that are about like big variables in the world and not just about one decision. That's totally fine as long as there's still a theory of change. Mm. Do you want to give some examples? Yeah. So uh, one that I'm not involved with, but one is how much, basically how much moral weight should we give to different beings? And this is primarily focused on non-human biological animals, which I specify, that maybe sounds like a weird sentence to bother saying, but like I think digital minds is where it's really at. But this this project is focused for now on non-human biological animals um, and which ones of them are conscious? Is consciousness the key thing? What do we mean by consciousness? Uh, do they differ in their moral status or moral weight? Like how much we should care about them and their experiences? Do they differ in their capacity for welfare? These are all like both philosophical and empirical questions. And they're like really big picture. And they're not like, which grant should I make out of these two or something? Yeah, yeah. But they do have a, like, they obviously have a very clear theory of change. Like one of the things is like, how much money should various funders allocate to non-human animals versus humans? And also to different non-human animals and which strategies should we take? Um, so the, like, so a lot of the time with the, like a big picture stuff, um, it's less like we have this one theory of change and it's more like we can, we, we like check, can we sketch five different things that each seem plausible given different, ar- we're like having one answer versus another answer would change what actually happens in the world. And it doesn't have to be that one, it doesn't have to be those are the five most likely things, but like if we can sketch five of them, then it's like pretty likely there's something that can happen, yeah. uh, where it like really impacts the world. Um, and this is like in contrast to something like, you know, just looking into whether a given worm is conscious because that's the gap in the literature or yeah, something. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one worm. We yeah. missed everything else. <laughs> I, I guess I meant a type of worm. To be fair in academia, they'd probably go for a type rather than yeah. like Barry, but still. <laughs> yeah, not a token of a worm. But, um, uh, is there anything that you appreciate about working at Rethink just as a uh, working environment compared to other workplaces? Yeah, lots of stuff. Um, I have a thing that would be hard to Google your way to, but I have like a list on the A forum of like, pros and cons from my perspective of working at Rethink Priorities, which you can like try to find if you're adventurous. I mean, we'll also link it in the write-up. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Yeah, I can do that. Because this one, yeah, it's like a comment. So (laughs) it's very hard to find from Google. Um, But yeah, briefly, um, I guess starting with some cons compared to my other options, uh, like I think I have really good options. So like the key thing is just uh, Rethink Priorities is like clearly great, but there's also other clearly great things and it's plausible some of them are even better. In particular, I think I could like maybe join a different type of research organization or go harder on grant making or go hard on some version of community building. 
And I also have to make this decision kind of like locally a lot of the time, like not switching, but like how much time do I spend on community building-ish things rather than my main job, even if I stay in my main job. Um, yeah, so just other things might be even better. Also, there's some things like uh, remote. B being remote is a con for some people. It's pretty fine for me. Overall, it's good for me because it meant I could start in Australia and it means I can now work in Oxford rather than in the US where much of the company is built, bit based. But like, you know, it's a small con in some ways. Um, the organization as a whole isn't focused on the areas I'm most focused on. Yep. But mostly this is fine because it's sort of like Rethink Priorities effectively is kind of like five organizations that are really friendly and help each other out or something. And so like, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't it hardly negatively affects me that other people are doing other stuff. And it decently often positively affects me. Then in terms of pros, I don't know if that was comprehensive cons, but we'll link to the thing. Um, pros, uh, just like I'm doing work that like matters a hell of a lot. Like it's like, is like horrific that the things we're working on aren't yet done. Mm -hmm. And we have a list of like, my team has like a list of like 90 project ideas. Um, and and you no, know, this list is growing more than shrinking. So like 90 currently, but like it's growing is, you know, it's going to become infinite in, in a matter of time. Um, so yeah, and I mean, probably many of them aren't that important, but like I'm pretty confident at least the top half are like a big deal and like it's terrifying they aren't happening and I'm pretty confident they aren't happening. Uh, and also, like, you know, if they're happening by one group, like one group looking into some important problem doesn't mean that that should be the only thing. Um, Do you want to, again, give some examples there? Or yeah, I can give some to, examples. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't give all the examples. Some of them are spicy and <laughs> secret. <laughs> well, not secret, but like non-public. Um, yeah, one is like, just what is our high-level theory of change for AI governance? Like... <laughs> Yeah, sounds important. <laughs> uh, there's like a lot of people with different beliefs on this. Like, there's definitely somewhat going on of this flavor, but mostly a lot of people running around with quite different beliefs of our high level goals here. Like, what are we aiming towards, and what are the key variables and the key plan? And things there could be like, are we like trying to advance one country or lab to have a long lead time? Uh, <laughs> some listeners are going to be pretty confused how, here because they haven't heard the basics. But if so, that's okay. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, like, are we trying to advance one country or lab so they have a lot of lead time so they can like then proceed carefully and invest a lot in safety and they don't have to like race against someone else. Um, and maybe we've chosen one that is particularly self safety conscious and likely to do well. Or are we trying to create like one sort of like pair coalition? Or are we trying to create a completely like extremely multilateral, like global thing? Um, are, are we trying to like prepare for a world with one extremely powerful AGI or with um, a, a wide range of different things developing continuously in parallel and things like that? So, so like which of these visions are happening? We just, I think we just haven't had someone talk to a bunch of people who've been in the field for a while about why they're doing what they're doing and try to find out why they disagree, where they disagree, why they disagree, and then point out like critiques of each of these worldviews. So that's like an obvious thing that like just super should have happened and it hasn't happened. I'm not saying the community's made a mistake. The community just doesn't have that many people. So like it's pretty plausible. I mean, it's, it's very unlikely we've done exactly the right thing as a community, but like it's plausible we've done, we've probably done roughly the right thing. And they just that does leave things on the table. If people would switch to this instead of what they're doing, then I'd talk about what they're doing instead. Um, Finn here. Michael realized after the recording that he maybe gave the impression that there'd been approximately no work of this type uh, before his team started on it. Whereas really there has been some work focused on this and a lot of miscellaneous work and thinking um, that helps fill a similar role but wasn't really aggregated or done intensively. Uh, Michael also wanted to mention that one researcher in particular, Matthijs Maas, has started publishing a sequence of posts covering similar topics on the EA forum under the heading Strategic Perspectives on Long-Term AI Governance, and we'll link to that on our website.
yeah, anyway. So we have like a crap load of project ideas. It's like screamingly obvious they should all, not all, but they should mostly be done. They haven't been done yet. That sucks. I can help them get done fast. We've grown from a team of two people at the end of last year to 10 people now. Mm. Um, so I, I can like help this happen at scale and build a foundation for this to happen a bunch more. That's just amazingly exciting. And I get to also work with people who are like, you know, they don't like think like me in a way that means we don't have cognitive diversity. Like there's, there are like pretty different perspectives brought to bear and different like thinking styles and reasoning styles and backgrounds and stuff. But we, we basically share the same core goals, at least to a large extent. Um, and we also share some things like, you know, really relentlessly focusing on strategically pursuing what's good rather than just, you know, the ta taboos and yeah, sure. fads and stuff. Um, yeah, remote was a perk as well, but is in both lists. Uh, Pretty decent pay as well, like, uh, you know, from a teaching background. Like, some people are joining us from, yeah. like, software engineering backgrounds right. or whatever. But from a teaching background, uh, <laughs> yes, it looks good. Um, there's probably a bunch more. Nice. Well, at this point, I'm sure listeners are clamoring to know, uh, does Rethink plan to be hiring soon? Or is Rethink currently hiring? So Rethink is sort of always at least somewhat hiring, mm -hmm. I think. So, like, the long-termism department in particular. So I'm on the AI governance strategy team. There's also another team on the long-termism department called the general long-termism team which is currently mostly focused on like ambitious entrepreneurial projects aimed at making the world a bunch better, uh, like aiming to eventually become quote unquote mega projects. Um, we currently have an expression of interest form for both of those teams. And we also have a non-public, but I can probably share it with you, expression of interest form for founders for these projects we might launch. Sure. Um, we aren't like in an active hiring round, but like we plan to continue growing like pretty rapidly and having a big bank of people who we know are interested that we can like invite to the next hiring round and possibly like pluck off cycle. I don't know if we're going to do that sort of thing, but we might sometimes have a particular like short-term contract you need. So yeah, the, the the two expression of interest forms are available on the website and the other one, like probably if you reach out to me, I can share you the founder one. Great. And we'll link to the two public ones for sure. Okay. Let's move on to the home straights. Um, one thing I really wanted to ask about before we finished is this distinction, which I I've heard you mention a couple times before between uh, taking a maximizing mindset to different things as compared to a quote-unquote satisficing mindset. What does that mean? Yeah, so I think like the, what they literally mean, as far as I'm aware, is that satisficing is just like meeting some, like sufficiently meeting some threshold. You meet at least some threshold and then you don't really go harder than that. And then maximizing would be also you could call it optimizing of trying to you know, hit the most of, of some uh, variable and just you always want more, basically. Uh, and my sort of hot take or something, I mean, it's not a very hot take with any A, but I think sure. it's like worth reminding people yeah. of sometimes is like probably try to do a pretty maximizing thing uh, and probably don't, for example, probably don't shoot for like an impactful career, mm. but something roughly like the most impactful career you can have with some caveats. And I do, yeah, one of the reasons I want caveats is because I think like, even if this mindset is correct, I think just like psychologically, it could be challenging for some people because then you're always hunting for something else. It also could be practically a problem because like switching jobs is a cost for you and the employers and stuff. So I'm not saying like constantly jump from thing to thing, have no integrity, constantly doubt yourself. Uh, probably the way to implement this maximizing thing is to have phases where you're really thinking hard about what to do and you're super open to switching and then phases where you get your head down and you do stuff and, and like you, you know like you you're, you're willing to think should i pivot but it's like not actively on your mind very much and you mostly just go hard but yeah in general i think there's a lot of times when i think people with ineffective altruism 
even like with in the most of the world, it's super satisfying. Um, and, and that makes sense for some personal goals. Like for making money, you should, probably should be satisfying. Like if you just want to make yourself happy because of diminishing returns. Um, but yeah, for altruistic stuff, I think you mostly should be maximizing. And I think a lot of EAs aren't uh, like, yeah. And I think one reason is trying to sort of be nice or something like trying to find a job type that is at least somewhat impactful, meet some bar and you can immediately tell someone they can do and then you can make them feel happy and included and stuff. Uh, and whereas I want to be sort of like, there's a pretty good chance there's something they can do that's really good. And I'm, o I'm okay to tell them to hunt for longer and to still, and to try to like make that hunt more pleasant and convenient and like keep them happy and inspired and engaged and, and let them know that they're doing something really valuable by hunting. But don't just want to be like, oh, you've got this background. There's this job that's like kind of like EA-ish with that background and, and that'll help. Or like, oh, you're living in this place. Yeah, there's still pretty useful things to do in that place or something. Like yeah. some people it's fine if they don't move, but like often they should consider moving, like seriously consider it or something. Yeah, I think that's really useful. I think it's interesting to consider how that applies to career decisions. Um, it is the case, presumably, that taking a satisfying mindset, um, which can look like you know, you care about improving the world with your career. Um, and so you take a job which kind of fits that description and then you're happy. <laughs> and that's pretty satisfying. And in fact, you may be doing a bunch of good. Um, contrast that with the maximizing approach, which is maybe you are more scrupulous with the thing you end up doing. You kind of iterate more. You like maybe change course a bit more. You spend more time like prioritizing. Um the stages of finding out what to do that can be in fact psychologically less comfortable and once you end up doing the thing which maybe is let's say a hundred x or a thousand x more impactful on some measure than the satisfying alternative that's not a hundred x or a thousand x more satisfying to you like psychologically and so i think yeah there's an important um explanation of why it's why fewer people maximize for the thing they at least ostensibly care about um and that is that how good it is to how good it feels to take those different approaches doesn't track how good it is for the world right does that make sense yeah that makes sense i think there is um yeah i, I do want to be like careful with this or something because i think like there are also people who are doing something that looks like maximizing but they're doing it too much and it's a bad idea for them or in general and i think there are also trends that can cause that so for example you said like thinking about what you should do is unpleasant uh, i think that is like often true for a lot of people but there's also people who like <laughs> just really love the meta side and they, they really love just like tossing things up and they don't really like doing because doing like there's a lot of mundane stuff like once you figure out that you should be doing ai policy work in government or something and maybe that's true that means like most of your job is like maybe fairly mundane uh and like not working directly on the most important thing so it might be like work more, much more fun so yeah like there are people who spend too long planning and there are people who switch too fast and things like that. But yeah, you also don't want to do it too. So yeah. neither switch too fast nor too slow. Uh, good. Uh, and yeah, I agree that like it is partly about the personal satisfaction thing also. Yeah. yeah. And another thing is um, don't shoot for a, some of this is like received EA wisdom you've probably heard elsewhere, listening public, um, but, but like don't shoot for a high chance of doing at least some good, even if like, and to be clear, at least some good might actually be like more net positive good and expectation, like, you know, one in a million levels or something in the world. Like in the world at large, you might still be doing like way better than most people, but still you're kind of from an EA perspective, kind of satisfying relative to like what your talent could let you achieve. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so don't don't just shoot for like a high chance of that. Instead, focus on like expected value. And as a community, it doesn't mean we don't need everyone to succeed. Like 
and by, what I mean is we don't need everyone to have an impact. Um, we need to maximize the total impact across the community. And that will often look like a lot of people taking bets that might not work out. And then we hopefully set up safeguards to catch these people. And we hopefully remind people that they should like keep themselves protected and have financial runway and stuff before they do this or, or like make sure they would be able to get a grant yeah, or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think this is partly about like career choice. It's also partly about like research, for example. So I think it's like, it's, it's not that hard to set up a theory of change for your research and a research topic that makes it likely to have more net positive impact and expectation than the vast majority of existing research. But don't stop there. Mm-hmm. Like you probably can do much more than that. Uh, yeah, so just keep keep pushing harder. Don't break yourself. Know your limits. Take time off, etc. But like, yeah, in terms of what you choose to spend your time on, push harder. Cool. And I also like the thing you said at the end, which is separating out something like the intensity or ferocity with which you work day to day, and um, uh, the amount you're kind of fixated on this stuff. Apart from just as a decision rule, do you satisfy or do you maximize? You can maximize in an extremely like healthy way in fact you should Um, yeah one thing i do want yeah like a related thing i want to flag is this idea of utilitarianism doesn't tell you and i'm not saying the listeners believe in utilitarianism whatever but like probably you put some credence on it um utilitarianism doesn't tell you to constantly calculate the utilities and i'm not telling you with this maximizing thing like like figuring out what to do is an action and it has a certain expected value and sometimes that action is not worth doing so sometimes like your rough guess as to what's worth doing will suggest that you shouldn't spend longer sharpening that guess and you should enter a do phase. This is similar to my like just apply idea. Like, yeah. So I'm not saying spend ages planning or something. Yeah. And relatedly, this idea of pushing yourself to work the most hours you can stay awake every day of every week. Yeah. maybe just not a good bet for the world. <laughs> like right. setting a, like even if I don't care about your well-being at all, <laughs> which I do, uh, but even if I didn't, uh, it's just not a good bet for the world. Uh, and then also there's a level to it. Even the, the amount of work that would overall be a good bet for the world, maybe just like, you know, cut yourself some slack or something. It just seems like good at a community level for us to be like, don't push yourself right up to the limit, even of what you can do sustainably. Like mm. you, ca- you can ease off that limit a bit if you want. Yeah, very wise. Final questions? Lovely stuff. Yeah, we are literally exactly now at the four hour recording mark. So it feels apt to move on to closing questions. I guess we've been talking about doing impactful research. uh, I mean, basically this whole time. Uh, But one of the questions we do like to ask guests is what are some particular research questions? Uh, And they can be very niche that you would love to see more people doing work on. And feel free to answer that in a meta way if you want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Luca knows me well. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so I think... Yeah, meta thing first. Uh, I think junior people, as I mentioned earlier, and junior, to be clear, doesn't necessarily mean early career. It can mean pivoting. Like you could be like 30 and really damn good at something relevant, but like now you're taking a a hard turn and you're sort of junior on this new path. So yeah, junior people, I think, should be pretty focused on testing fit, building career capital, uh, and using their personal fit. Mm -hmm. And so I think this question just doesn't matter that much. I will still answer it. It matters a bit. Um, But the question of like what, what research topic you should probably do in theory with me not knowing who you are is probably less important than like, where would you get good feedback loops and things like that? Um, and what's best for you? But that being said, one place you can look, yeah, so mostly just apply for jobs and see what happens and get those mentorship and feedback loops. Um, one place you can look if you if you do find yourself with time to look into questions and that is the best move for you for some reason um, is a post I made called a central directory for open research questions. There's just like an overwhelmingly big 
list of lists. Uh, and so you can like browse that for, for example, if you're interested in animal welfare, there's like a set of five lists for that in particular. Do not try to read all the lists on this page. <laughs> try to like skim the subset that like makes sense for you. And then for like two topics we've talked about more than average on this episode were uh, nuclear risk and AI governance. So just like the lists I would suggest for that in particular, my favorite individual public lists on that uh, for nuclear risk, my post of nuclear risk research ideas, uh, and for AI governance, a post from, I think it was put together by the Center for the Governance of AI, but I don't know if it's like officially one of their things or something, uh, called Some AI Governance Research Ideas. Um, I'm not saying these, like, there are more, there are questions that I think are more important than the average one of these that aren't public. And also some of the questions, especially in the GovAI list, I think are like predictably much less important like just not very important in the scheme of things. Mm. Uh, so like be discerning and uh, and feel free to like reach out to people in the field and see if they have any other hot takes. But like these are like good starting points. Mm -hmm. Feel free to answer this question with a meta answer also. But uh, what three books or articles, videos, whatever, uh, would you recommend to someone who's listened to this and wants to read more, but read something that isn't a very long list? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay next question <laughs> or, or you, this can also like be just like three, three things books. that you've recently enjoyed reading and yeah that's like another way yeah. of putting it well yeah okay so i think talents of finn's one i think i can i can manage this because i only have like a short or medium list okay so like for most of this conversation it's like how to do good research on ea topics and for that my uh interest in ea slash long-termist research careers here are my top recommended resources is my top recommended resources um for people interested in AI governance stuff, there's a AGI Safety Fundamentals Governance Track. It's a course that was made. I think it, I haven't sort of gone through the course myself, but I gave feedback on the course content, read the course content. Um, it seems to me probably the best introduction or even like advancing people who are somewhat into the field. Mm. The, the best single thing for like a curated list you can walk through. I don't know when the next actual round will happen, but you can just read through it yourself and do the exercises yourself. Um, on nuclear risk, uh, there's a sequence for the post that Rethink Priorities put together on that, mostly from before I joined. And also the uh, there's also some that ha I haven't put in that sequence yet, partly because they're like rougher, uh, but you can like find them under my profile or I could like, I guess, give you to the link list of links. Um, should I say anything that's not just a blog post uh, and that isn't written You're by me? You're at least welcome to. But that's <laughs> a great, Your that's favorite stand-up comedy set is maybe yeah. the best way to, uh, uh, to okay. round it off. Um, I don't know about favorite, but yeah, I'm, I'm a fairly, I'm a big fan of like Dylan Moran, uh, at least a moderate, like a, a, a uh, sporadic fan of Stuart <laughs> Lee. <laughs> uh, a few others. Yeah, I, a, a lot of what me and my partner, my partner's also a comedian. Uh, or I guess I, I am a former comedian and she is an active comedian doing a show tonight. And so we like a lot of sort of like random indie stuff that mm. isn't particularly well known. So like some, there's there's like a group called Zach and Vigo that are like weird clowning stuff that if you happen to be in London, you might be able to see a Zach and Vigo show, but I don't think it's on Netflix or anything. All right, great answer. Um, and finally, where can people find you and or Rethink and your team uh, online? So for me, um, all of my public EA-relevant writings are, well, yeah, basically all of them are under Michael A. on the Effective Altruism Forum. Uh, I, I said well and paused because there's some that are like semi-public where they're like Google Docs or something. But usually, if, if you if you hunt in my post for long enough, you'll find a link to one of the Google Docs. <laughs> it's a little Easter egg, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, 
for Rethink Priorities, their Rethink Priorities has a site. Um, we also have like a newsletter and a careers page. Um, also, I would flag like if someone's listened to this and they're you know feeling fired up about maybe getting involved in this stuff, mm-hmm. you can just reach out to me. Um, uh, uh, you can the easiest way is the Effective Altruism Forum. There's like a message button. You can hit that and message me. Um, I'm pretty busy, so I might like reply like you know slowly or briefly. Yeah. But usually, like within a few minutes, I can like share some useful links and stuff and. Uh, and suggest other people for you to talk to. And if you do that, I also have a doc on like how to reach out to busy people. And I am one such busy person. So I can... <laughs> it could be like first stage as you saying, like, can you send me that doc? Then I send yeah. you that doc and then you send me a new message tutored by that. That's one yeah, option. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Michael Ed, thank you very much. Thanks. Epic. It's great being on. That was Michael Ed on how to do impact-driven research. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up, and there's a link for that in the show notes. There you'll find links to all the books and various EA forum posts Michael mentioned, plus a full transcript of the conversation. If you find this podcast valuable in some way, uh, one of the most effective ways to help is just to write a review wherever you're listening to this. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are just at Hear This Idea. We also have a new feedback form uh, on the website with a bunch of questions, and there is a free book at the end as a thank you. Should only take 10 or 15 minutes to fill out, and you can choose a book from a decently big selection of books we think you'd enjoy if you're into the kind of topics that we talk about on this podcast. Okay, as always, a big thanks to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes, and also to Claudia for writing full transcripts, uh, especially for editing and transcribing episodes quite as long as this one. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>